including the words, block that Nixon. But as far as his philosophy of helter-skelter was concerned, these were the most important. Charles Manson was already talking about an imminent black-white war when Greg Jacobson first met him in the spring of 1968. There was an underground expression current at the time, the shit is coming down, variously interpreted as meaning the day of judgment was at hand or all hell was breaking loose, and Charlie often used it in reference to the coming racial conflict. But he wasn't rabid about it, Greg said. It was just one of many subjects they discussed. When I first met Charlie in June 1968, he really didn't have any of this helter-skelter stuff going, Paul Watkins told me. He talked a little bit about the shit coming down, but just barely. He said when the shit comes down, the black man will be on one side and the white will be on the other. And that's all he said about it. Then, that December, Capitol issued the Beatles' White Album, one of the songs of which was Helter Skelter. The final stanza went, Look out, Helter Skelter, Helter Skelter, Helter Skelter. Look out, background scream, Helter Skelter. She's coming down fast. Yes, she is. Yes, she is. Manson apparently first heard the White Album in Los Angeles while on a trip there from Barker Ranch, where most of the family remained. When Manson returned to Death Valley on December 31, 1968, he told the group, according to Poston, Are you hep to what the Beatles are saying? Helter Skelter is coming down. The Beatles are telling it like it is. It was the same expression, except that in place of the word for defecation, Manson now substituted Helter Skelter. Another link had been made, this time to the bloody words on the refrigerator door at the LaBianca residence. Though this was the first time Manson used the phrase, it was not to be the last. Watkins. And he started rapping about this Beatle album and Helter Skelter and all these meanings that I didn't get out of it. And he builds this picture up and he called it Helter Skelter. And what it meant was the Negroes were going to come down and rip the cities all apart. After this, Watkins said, we started listening to the Beatles album constantly. Death Valley is very cold in the winter, so Manson found a two-story house at 2910 Gresham Street in Canoga Park in the San Fernando Valley, not too far from Spawn Ranch. In January 1969, Watkins said, we all moved into the Gresham Street house to get ready for Helter Skelter, so we could watch it coming down and see all of the things going on in the city. He, Charlie, called the Gresham Street house the Yellow Submarine from the Beatles movie. It was like a submarine, in that when you were in it, you weren't allowed to go out. You could only peek out of the windows. We started designing dune buggies and motorcycles, and we were going to buy 25 Harley Sportsters, and we mapped escape routes to the desert, supply caches. We had all these different things going. I watched him building this big picture up, Paul noted. He would do it very slowly, very carefully. I swallowed it hook, line, and sinker. Before Helter Skelter came along, Watkins said with a sigh of wistful nostalgia, all Charlie cared about was orgies. Before Jacobson and I had ever discussed the Beatles, I asked him, did Charlie ever talk to you about a black-white revolution? Answer, yeah, that was Helter Skelter, and he believed it was going to happen in the near future, almost immediately. Question. What did he say about this black-white revolution? How would it come about, and what would it accomplish? Answer. 
It would begin with the black man going into white people's homes and ripping off the white people, physically destroying them, until there was open revolution in the streets, until they finally won and took over. Then black man would assume white man's karma. He would then be the establishment. Watkins. He used to explain how it would be so simple to start out. A couple of black people, some of the spades from Watts, would come up into the Bel Air and Beverly Hills district, up in the Rich Piggy district, and just really wipe some people out, just cutting bodies up and smearing blood and writing things on the wall in blood. All kinds of super atrocious crimes that would really make the white man mad. Poston said very much the same thing before I ever talked to Watkins, but with the addition of one very important detail. He, Manson, said a group of real blacks would come out of the ghettos and do an atrocious crime in the richer sections of Los Angeles and other cities. They would do an atrocious murder with stabbing, killing, cutting bodies to pieces, smearing blood on the walls, writing pigs on the walls, in the victim's own blood. This was tremendously powerful evidence, linking Manson not only with the Tate murders, where Pig had been printed in Sharon Tate's blood on the front door of the residence, but also with the LaBianca murders, where death to pigs had been printed in Lino LaBianca's blood on the living room wall. And I questioned Poston in depth as to Manson's exact words, where the conversation had occurred, when, and who else was present. I then questioned everyone Poston mentioned who was willing to cooperate. Ordinarily, I try to avoid repetitious testimony in a trial, knowing it can antagonize the jury. However, Manson's helter-skelter motive was so bizarre that I knew if it was expounded by only one witness, no juror would ever believe it. The conversation had occurred in February 1969 at the Gresham Street house, Poston said. We now had evidence that six months before the Tate-LaBianca murders, Charles Manson was telling the family exactly how the murders would occur, complete even to writing pigs in the victim's own blood. We now had also linked Manson with every one of the bloody words found at both the Tate and LaBianca residences. But this would only be the beginning, Manson told Watkins. These murders would cause mass paranoia among the whites. Out of their fear, they would go into the ghetto and just start shooting black people like crazy. But all they would kill would be the ones that were with Whitey in the first place. The true black race whom Manson identified at various times as the Black Muslims and the Black Panthers, wouldn't even be affected by it. They would be in hiding, waiting, he said. After the slaughter, the Black Muslims would come out and appeal to the whites, saying, Look what you have done to my people. And this would split Whitey down the middle, Watkins said, between the hippie liberals and all the uptight conservatives. And it would be like the war between the states, brother against brother, white killing white. Then, after the whites had mostly killed off each other, the black Muslims would come out of hiding and wipe them all out. All except Charlie and the family, who would have taken refuge in the bottomless pit in Death Valley. The karma would then have turned. Blackie would be on top. And he would begin to clean up the mess, just like he always has done. He will clean up the mess that the white man made and build the world back up a little bit, build the cities back up but then he wouldn't know what to do with it. He couldn't handle it. According to Manson, Watkins said, the black man had a problem. He could only do what the white man had taught him to do. He wouldn't be able to run the world without Whitey showing him how. Watkins. Blackie then would come to Charlie and say, you know, I did my thing. I killed them all, and 
You know I am tired of killing now. It is all over. And then Charlie would scratch Blackie's fuzzy head and kick him in the butt and tell him to go pick cotton and go be a good nigger, and we would live happily ever after. The family, now grown to 144,000, as predicted in the Bible, a pure white master race, would emerge from the bottomless pit. And it would be our world then. There would be no one else except for us and the black servants. And according to the Gospel of Charlie, as he related it to his disciple, Paul Watkins, he, Charles Willis Manson, the fifth angel, J.C., would then rule that world. Paul Watkins, Brooks Poston, and Greg Jacobson had not only defined Manson's motive, helter-skelter, Watkins had supplied that missing link. In his sick, twisted, disordered mind, Charles Manson believed that he would be the ultimate beneficiary of the black-white war and the murders which triggered it. One day at the Gresham Street house, while they were on an acid trip, Manson had reiterated to Watkins and the others that Blackie had no smarts, that the only thing Blackie knows is what Whitey has told him or shown him, and so someone is going to have to show him how to do it. I asked Watkins, how to do what? Answer, how to bring down helter-skelter, how to do all these things. Watkins, Charlie said the only reason it hadn't come down already was because Whitey was feeding his young daughters to the black man in Haight-Ashbury, and he said that if his music came out, and all of the beautiful people, love, he called it, left Haight-Ashbury, Blackie would turn to Bel Air to get his rocks off. Blackie had been temporarily pacified by the young white girls, Manson claimed. But when he took away the pacifier, when his album came out and all the young loves followed Pied Piper Charlie to the desert, Blackie would need another means of getting his frustrations out, and he would then turn to the establishment. But Terry Melcher didn't come through. The album wasn't made. Sometime in late February of 1969, Manson sent Brooks and Juanita to Barker Ranch. The rest of the family moved back to Spawn and began preparing for Helter Skelter. Now there was an actual physical effort to get things together so they could move to the desert, Greg said. Jacobson, who visited the ranch during this period, was startled at the change in Manson. Previously, he had preached oneness of the family, complete in itself, self-sufficient. Now he was cultivating outsiders, the motorcycle gangs. Before this, he had been anti-materialistic. Now he was accumulating vehicles, guns, money. It struck me that all this contradicted what Charlie had done and talked to me about before, Greg said explaining that this was the beginning of his disenchantment and eventual break with Manson. The newly materialistic Manson came up with some wild money-making schemes. For example, someone suggested that the girls in the family could earn $300 to $500 a week apiece working as topless dancers. Manson liked the idea. With 10 broads pulling in $3,000 a week and upward, he could buy jeeps, dune buggies, even machine guns, and he sent Bobby Beausoleil and Bill Vance to the Girard Agency on the Sunset Strip to negotiate the deal. There was only one problem. With all his powers, Manson was unable to transform molehills into mountains. With the exception of Sadie and a few others, Charlie's girls simply did not have impressive busts. For some reason, Manson seemed to attract mostly flat-chested girls. While at the Gresham Street house, Manson had told Watkins that the atrocious murders would occur that summer. 
It was almost summer now, and the blacks were showing no signs of rising up to fulfill their karma. One day in late May or early June of 1969, Manson took Watkins aside, down near the old trailer at Spawn, and confided, the only thing Blackie knows is what Whitey has told him. He then added, I'm going to have to show him how to do it. According to Watkins, I got some weird pictures from that. A few days later, Watkins took off for Barker, fearful that if he stuck around, he would see those weird pictures materialize into nihilistic reality. It was September of 1969 before Manson himself returned to Barker Ranch to find that Watkins and Poston had defected. Though Manson told Watkins about cutting Shorty into nine pieces, he made no mention whatsoever of the Tate-LaBianca murders. In discussing Helter Skelter with Watkins, however, Manson said, without explanation, I had to show Blackie how to do it. LAPD had interviewed Greg Jacobson in late November of 1969. When he attempted to tell them about Manson's far-out philosophy, one of the detectives replied, Ah, Charlie's a madman. We're not interested in all that. The following month, two detectives went to Shoshone and talked to Crockett and Poston. LAPD also contacted Watkins. All three were asked what they knew about the Tate-LaBianca murders, and all three said they didn't know anything, which in their minds was true, none having previously made the connection between Manson and these murders. After the interview with Poston and Crockett, one of the detectives remarked, Looks like we made a trip for nothing. Initially, I found it difficult to believe that none of the four even suspected that Manson might be behind the Tate-LaBianca murders. There were, I discovered, several probable reasons for this. When Manson had told Jacobson how Helter Skelter would start, he had said nothing about writing words in blood. He had told this to both Watkins and Poston, even telling Poston about the word pigs. But there were no newspapers at Barker Ranch, and its location was such that there was no radio reception. Though they had heard about the murders on their infrequent supply trips into Independence and Shoshone, both stated they hadn't picked up many details. The main reason, however, was simply a fluke. Though the press did report that there was bloody riding at the La Bianca residence, LAPD had succeeded in keeping one fact secret, that two of the words were helter-skelter. Had this been publicized, undoubtedly Jacobson, Watkins, Poston, and numerous others would have connected the LaBianca murders, and probably the Tate murders also, because of their proximity in time, with Manson's insane plan. And it seems a safe assumption that at least one would have communicated his suspicions to the police. It was one of those odd happenstances, for which no one was at fault, the repercussions of which no one could foresee. But it appears possible that had this happened, the killers might have been apprehended days rather than months after the murders, and Donald Shorty Shea and possibly others might still be alive. Though I was now convinced we had the motive, other leads failed to pan out. None of the employees of the Standard Station in Silmar or the Jack Frost store in Santa Monica could identify anyone in our family album. As for the LaBianca credit cards, all appeared to be accounted for, while Susan Struthers was unable to determine if a brown purse was missing from her mother's personal effects. The problem was that Rosemary had several brown purses. By the time LAPD requested the Spawn Ranch phone records, most of the billings for May and July 1969 had been lost or destroyed. All the numbers for the other months, April to October 1969, 
were identified, and though we obtained some minor background information on the activities of the family, we were unable to find any link between the killers and the victims. Nor did any appear in the phone records of the Tate and LaBianca residences. Exposure to rain and sunlight over a prolonged period of time breaks down human blood components. Many of the spots on the clothing the TV crew had found gave a positive benzidine reaction, indicating blood, but Granado was unable to determine whether it was animal or human. However, Granado did find human blood, type B, on the white T-shirt. Parent, Folger, and Frykowski were type B, and human blood, possible type O, on the dark velour turtleneck. Tate and Sebring were type O. He did not test for subtypes. He also removed some human hair from the clothing, which he determined had belonged to a woman, and which did not match that of the two female victims. I called Captain Carpenter at Sybil Brand and requested a sample of Susan Atkins's hair. On February 17th, Deputy Sheriff Helen Tabb took Susan to the jail beauty shop for a wash and set. Afterwards, she removed the hair from Susan's brush and comb. Later, a sample of Patricia Krenwinkel's hair was similarly obtained. Granado eliminated the Krenwinkel sample, but although he wasn't able to state positively that they were the same, he found the Atkins sample very, very similar to that taken from the clothing, concluding it was very likely the hair belonged to Susan Atkins. Note. The points of similarity included color, diameter, length, as well as the metallary characteristics. End of note. Some white animal hairs were also found on the clothing. Winifred Chapman said they looked like the hair from Sharon's dog. Since the dog had died shortly after Sharon's death, no comparison could be made. I intended to introduce the hair into evidence anyway, and let Mrs. Chapman state what she had told me. On February 11th, Kitty Lutzinger had given birth to Bobby Beausoleil's child. Even before this, she was an unwilling witness, and the little information I got from her came hard. Later, she would return to the family, leave it, go back. Unsure of what she might say on the stand, I eventually decided against calling her as a witness. I made the same decision in relation to biker Al Springer, though for different reasons. Most of his testimony would be repetitive of DiCarlo's. Also, his most damning testimony, Manson's statement, we got five of them the other night, was inadmissible because of Aranda. I did interview Springer several times, and one remark Manson made to him, read the murders, gave me a glimpse into Manson's possible defense strategy. In discussing the many criminal activities of the family, Manson had told Springer, no matter what happens, the girls will take the rap for it. I interviewed Danny numerous times, one session lasting nine hours, obtaining considerable information that hadn't come out in previous interviews. Each time I picked up a few more examples of Manson's domination. Manson would tell the family when it was time to eat. He wouldn't permit anyone to be served until he was seated. During dinner, he would lecture on his philosophy. I asked Danny if anyone ever interrupted Manson while he was talking. He recalled that one time, a couple of broads started talking. Question. What happened? Answer. He threw a bowl of rice at them. Although DiCarlo was extremely reluctant to testify, Sergeant Gutierrez and I eventually persuaded him that it was in his own best interests to do so. I had less success with Dennis Wilson, singer and drummer for the Beach Boys. 
Though Wilson initially claimed to know nothing of importance, he finally agreed to level with me, but he refused to testify. It was obvious that Wilson was scared, and not without good reason. On December 4, 1969, three days after LAPD announced they had broken the case, Wilson had received an anonymous death threat. It was, I learned, not the only such threat, and the others were not anonymous. Though denying any knowledge of the family's criminal activities, Wilson did supply some interesting background information. In the late spring of 1968, Wilson had twice picked up the same pair of female hitchhikers while driving through Malibu. The second time, he took the girls home with him. For Dennis, home was 14400 Sunset Boulevard, a palatial residence formerly owned by humorist Will Rogers. The girls, Ella Jo Bailey and Patricia Krenwinkel, stayed a couple of hours, Dennis said, mostly talking about this guy named Charlie. Wilson had a recording session that night and didn't get home until 3 a.m. When he pulled into the driveway, a strange man stepped out of his back door. Wilson, frightened, asked, Are you going to hurt me? The man said, Do I look like I'm going to hurt you, brother? He then dropped to his knees and kissed Wilson's feet, obviously one of Charlie's favorite routines. When Manson ushered Wilson into his own home, he discovered he had about a dozen uninvited house guests, nearly all of them girls. They stayed for several months, during which time the group more than doubled in number. It was during Manson's Sunset Boulevard period that Charles Tex Watson, Brooks Poston, and Paul Watkins became associated with the family. The experience, Dennis later estimated, cost him about $100,000. Besides Manson's constantly hitting him for money, Clem demolished Wilson's uninsured $21,000 Mercedes-Benz by plowing it into a mountain on the approach to Spawn Ranch. The family appropriated Wilson's wardrobe and just about everything else in sight. And several times, Wilson found it necessary to take the whole family to his Beverly Hills doctor for penicillin shots. It was probably the largest gonorrhea bill in history, Dennis admitted. Wilson even gave Manson nine or ten of the Beach Boys' gold records and paid to have Sadie's teeth fixed. The newly divorced Wilson obviously found something attractive about Manson's lifestyle. Except for the expense, Dennis told me, I got along very well with Charlie and the girls. He and Charlie would sing and talk, Dennis said, while the girls cleaned house, cooked, and catered to their needs. Wilson said he liked the spontaneity of Charlie's music, but added that Charlie never had a musical bone in his body. Despite this, Dennis tried hard to sell Manson to others. He rented a recording studio in Santa Monica and had Manson recorded. Though I was very interested in hearing the tapes, Wilson claimed that he had destroyed them because... The vibrations connected with them don't belong on this earth. Wilson also introduced Manson to a number of people in or on the fringes of the entertainment industry, including Melcher, Jacobson, and Altabelli. At one party, Charlie gave Dean Martin's daughter, Dina, a ring and asked her to join the family. Dina told me she kept the ring, which she later gave to her husband, but declined Manson's invitation as did the other Beach Boys, none of whom shared Dennis's fondness for the scruffy little guru, as one described him. Wilson denied having any conflicts with Manson during this period. However, in August 1968, three weeks before his lease was to expire, Dennis moved in with Greg, leaving to his manager the task of evicting Charlie and the girls. From Sunset Boulevard, the family moved to Spawn Ranch. Although Wilson apparently avoided the group for a time, he did see Manson occasionally, 
Dennis told me that he didn't have any trouble with Charlie until August 1969. Dennis could not recall the exact date, but he did know it was after the Tate murders. When Manson visited him, demanding $1,500 so he could go to the desert. When Wilson refused, Charlie told him, Don't be surprised if you never see your kid again. Dennis had a seven-year-old son, and obviously this was one reason for his reluctance to testify. Manson also threatened Wilson himself, but Dennis did not learn of this until an interview I conducted with both Wilson and Jacobson. According to Jacobson, not long after Dennis refused Manson's request, Charlie handed Greg a 44 caliber bullet and told him, Tell Dennis there are more where this came from. Knowing how the other threat had upset Dennis, Greg hadn't mentioned it to him. This incident had occurred in late August or early September of 1969. Jacobson was startled by the change in Manson. The electricity was almost pouring out of him. His hair was on end. His eyes were wild. The only thing I can compare it to is that he was just like an animal in a cage. It was possible there was still another threat, but this is strictly conjecture. In going through the Spawn Ranch phone bills, I found that on September 22, 1969, someone called Dennis Wilson's private number from the payphone at Spawn, and that the following day Wilson had the phone disconnected. Looking back on his involvement with the family, Dennis told me, I'm the luckiest guy in the world because I got off only losing my money. From rock star to motorcycle rider to ex-call girl, the witnesses in this case all had one thing in common. They were afraid for their lives. They needed only to pick up a newspaper or turn on TV to see that many of the family members were still roaming the streets. That Steve Grogan, a.k.a. Clem, was out on bail, while the Inyo County grand theft charges against Bruce Davis had been dismissed for lack of evidence. Neither Grogan, Davis, nor any of the others suspected of beheading Shorty Shea had been charged with that murder, there being as yet no physical proof that Shea was dead. Perhaps in her cell at Sybil Brand, Susan Atkins recalled the lyrics of the Beatles song Sexy Sadie. Sexy Sadie, what have you done? You made a fool of everyone. Sexy Sadie, you broke the rules. You laid it out for all to see. Sexy Sadie, you'll get yours yet, however big you think you are. Or perhaps it was simply that the numerous messages Manson was sending by other family members were getting to her. Susan called in Caballero and told him that under no circumstances would she testify at the trial. And she demanded to see Charlie. Caballero told Aaron and me that it looked as if we'd lost our star witness. We contacted Gary Fleischman, Linda Kasabian's attorney, and told him we were ready to talk. From the start, Fleischman, dedicated to the welfare of his client, had wanted nothing less than complete immunity for Linda Kasabian. Not until after I had talked to Linda myself did I learn that she had been willing to talk to us, immunity or not, and that only Fleischman had kept her from doing so. I also learned that she had decided to return to California voluntarily, against the advice of Fleischman, who had wanted her to fight extradition. After a number of discussions, our office agreed to petition the Superior Court for immunity after she had testified. In return, it was agreed, one, that Linda Kasabian would give us a full and complete statement of her involvement in the Tate-LaBianca murders, two, that Linda Kasabian would testify truthfully at all trial proceedings against all defendants, and three, that in the event Linda Kasabian did not testify truthfully, or that she refused to testify, for whatever reason, 
she would be prosecuted fully, but that any statement that she gave the prosecution would not be used against her. The agreement was signed by Younger, Levy, Bush, Stovitz, and myself on February 26, 1970. Two days later, I interviewed Linda Kasabian. It was the first time she had discussed the Tate-LaBianca murders with anyone connected with law enforcement. As noted, given a choice between Susan and Linda, I'd preferred Linda, sight unseen. She hadn't killed anyone, and therefore would be far more acceptable to a jury than the bloodthirsty Susan. Now, talking to her in Captain Carpenter's office at Sybil Brand, I was especially pleased that things had turned out as they had. Small, with long, light brown hair, Linda bore a distinct resemblance to the actress Mia Farrow. As I got to know her, I found Linda a quiet girl, docile, easily led. Yet she communicated an inner sureness, almost a fatalism, that made her seem much older than her twenty years. The product of a broken home, she herself had had two unsuccessful marriages, the last of which, to a young hippie, Robert Kasabian, had broken up just before she went to Spawn Ranch. She had one child, a girl named Tanya, age two, and was now eight months pregnant with another, conceived, she thought, the last time she and her husband were together. She had remained with the family less than a month and a half. I was like a little blind girl in the forest, and I took the first path that came to me. Only now, talking about what had happened, did she feel she was emerging from the darkness, she said. On her own since 16, Linda had wandered from the East Coast to the West, looking for God. In her quest, she had lived in communes and crash pads, taken drugs, had sex with almost anyone who showed an interest. She described all this with a candor that at times shocked me, yet which I knew would be a plus on the witness stand. From the first interview, I believed her story, and I felt that a jury would also. There were no pauses in her answers, no evasions, no attempts to make herself appear something she was not. She was brutally frank. When a witness takes the stand and tells the truth, even though it is injurious to his own image, you know he can't be impeached. I knew that if Linda testified truthfully about those two nights of murder, it would be immaterial whether she had been promiscuous, taken dope, stolen. The question was, could the defense attack her credibility regarding the events of those two nights? And I knew the answer from our very first interview. They wouldn't be able to do so, because she was so obviously telling the truth. I talked to her from 1 to 4.30 p.m. on the 28th. It was the first of many long interviews, a half dozen of them lasting six to nine hours, all of which took place at Sybil Brand, her attorney usually the only other person present. At the end of each interview, I tell her that if, back in her cell, anything occurred to her which we hadn't discussed, to jot it down. A number of these notes became letters to me, running to a dozen or more pages, all of which, together with my interview notes, became available to the defense under discovery. The more times a witness tells his story, the more opportunities there are for discrepancies and contradictions, which the opposing side can then use for impeachment purposes. While some attorneys try to hold interviews and pretrial statements to a minimum so as to avoid such problems, my attitude is the exact opposite. If a witness is lying, I want to know it before he ever takes the stand. In the more than 50 hours I spent interviewing Linda Kasabian, I found her, like any witness, unsure in some details, confused about others, but never once did I catch her even attempting to lie. Moreover, when she was unsure, she admitted it. Though she added many details, Linda Kasabian's story of those two nights was basically the same as Susan Atkins's. 
there were only a few surprises, but they were big ones. Prior to my talking to Linda, we had assumed that she had probably witnessed only one murder, the shooting of Steve Parent. We now learned that she had also seen Katie chasing Abigail Folger across the lawn with an upraised knife and Tex stabbing Wojciech Frykowski to death. She also told me that on the night the LaBiancas were killed, Manson had attempted to commit three other murders. Part 5. Don't you know who you're crucifying? For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that, if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Wherefore, if they shall say unto you, Behold, he is in the desert, go not forth. Matthew 24, 24, 26. Just before we got busted in the desert, there was twelve of us apostles and Charlie, family member Ruth Ann Morehouse. I may have implied on several occasions to several different people that I may have been Jesus Christ, but I haven't decided yet what I am or who I am. Charles Manson March 1970 On March 3rd, accompanied by attorney Gary Fleischman and some dozen LAPD and LASO officers, I took Linda Kasabian out of Sybil Brand. For Linda, it was a trip back in time to an almost unbelievable night nearly seven months ago. Our first stop was 10,050 Shallow Drive. In late June of 1969, Bob Kasabian had called Linda at her mother's home in New Hampshire, suggesting a reconciliation. Kasabian was living in a trailer in Topanga Canyon with a friend, Charles Melton. Melton, who had recently inherited $20,000 and had already given away more than half, planned to drive to the tip of South America, buy a boat, and sail around the world. He'd invited Linda and Bob, as well as another couple, to come along. Linda, together with her daughter Tanya, flew to Los Angeles, but the reconciliation was unsuccessful. On July 4, 1969, Catherine Scher, a.k.a. Gypsy, visited Melton, whom she had met through Paul Watkins. Gypsy told Linda about this beautiful man named Charlie, the family, and how life at Spawn was all love, beauty, and peace. To Linda, it was as if the answer to an unspoken prayer. Note. My interviews with Linda Kasabian were not taped. Exact quotations are from either my interview notes, her trial testimony, or her narrative letters to me. End of note. That same day, Linda and Tanya moved to Spawn. Though she didn't meet Manson that day, she did meet most of the other members of the family, and they talked of little else. It was obvious to her that they worshipped him. That night, Tex took her into a small room and told her far-out things. Nothing was wrong. All was right. Things I couldn't comprehend. Then, he made love to me, and a strange experience took place. It was like being possessed. When it was over, Linda's fingers were clenched so tightly they hurt. Gypsy later told her that what she had experienced was the death of the ego. After making love, Linda and Tex talked, Linda mentioning Melton's inheritance. Tex told her that she should steal the money. According to Linda, she told him she couldn't do that. Melton was a friend, a brother. Tex told her that she could do no wrong and that everything should be shared. The next day, Linda went back to the trailer and stole $5,000, which she gave to either Leslie or Tex. She had already turned over all her possessions to the family, 
the girls having told her, What's yours is ours, and what's ours is yours. Linda met Charles Manson for the first time that night. After all she had heard about him, she felt as if she were on trial. He asked why she had come to the ranch. She replied that her husband had rejected her. Manson reached out and felt her legs. He seemed pleased with them, Linda recalled. Then he told her she could stay. Before making love to her, he told her that she had a father hang-up. Linda was startled by his perception because she disliked her stepfather. She felt that Manson could see inside her. Linda Kasabian became a part of the family, went on garbage runs, had sex with the men, creepy crawled a house, and listened as Manson lectured about the Beatles, Helter Skelter, and the bottomless pit. Charlie told her that the black man was together, but the white man was not. However, he knew a way to unite the white man, he said. It was the only way. But he didn't tell her what it was. Nor did she ask. From the first time they met, Manson had stressed, never ask why. When something he said or did puzzled her, she was reminded of this. Also of another of his favorite axioms, no sense makes sense. The whole family, Linda said, was paranoid of Blackie. On weekends, George Spahn did a brisk business renting horses. Occasionally, among the riders, there would be blacks. Manson maintained they were panthers, spying on the family. He always hid the young girls when they were around. At night, everyone was required to wear dark clothing so as to be less conspicuous, and eventually Manson posted armed guards who roamed the ranch until dawn. Gradually, Linda became convinced that Charles Manson was Jesus Christ. He never told her this directly, but one day he asked her, Don't you know who I am? She replied, No. Am I supposed to know something? He didn't answer, just smiled, and playfully twirled her around. Yet she had doubts. The mothers were not allowed to care for their own children. They separated her and Tanya, Linda explained, because they wanted to kill the ego that I put in her. And, at first I agreed to it. I thought that it was a good idea that she should become her own person. Also, several times she saw Manson strike Diane Lake. Linda had been in many communes, from the American Psychedelic Circus in Boston to Sons of the Earth Mother near Taos. But she'd never seen anything like this, and, forgetting Charlie's commandment, she did ask Gypsy why. Gypsy told her that Diane really wanted to be beaten, and Charlie was only obliging her. Overriding all doubts was one fact. She had fallen in love with Charles Manson. Linda had been at Spahn Ranch a little over a month, when, on the afternoon of Friday, August 8, 1969, Manson told the family, Now is the time for helter-skelter. Had Linda stopped there, supplying that single piece of testimony and nothing else, she would have been a valuable witness. But Linda had a great deal more to tell. That Friday evening, about an hour after dinner, seven or eight members of the family were standing on the boardwalk in front of the saloon when Manson came out, and calling Tex, Sadie, Katie, and Linda aside, told each to get a change of clothing and a knife. He also told Linda to get her driver's license. Linda, I later learned, was the only family member with a valid license, excepting Mary Bruner, who had been arrested that afternoon. This was, I concluded, probably one of the reasons why Manson had picked Linda to accompany the others, each of whom, unlike her, had been with him a year or more. Linda couldn't find her own knife. Sadie had it. 
but she obtained one from Larry Jones. The handle was broken and had been replaced with tape. Brenda found Linda's license and gave it to her just about the time Manson told Linda, go with Tex and do whatever Tex tells you to do. According to Linda, in addition to Tex, Katie, and herself, Brenda McCann and Larry Jones were present when Manson gave this order. Brenda remained hardcore and refused to cooperate with law enforcement. Larry Jones, true name Lawrence Bailey, was a scrawny little ranch hand who was always trying to ingratiate himself with the family. However, Jones had what Manson considered negroid features, and according to Linda, Charlie was always putting him down, referring to him as the drippings from a white man's dick. Since Jones had been present when Manson instructed the Tate killers, he could be a very important witness, providing independent corroboration of Linda Kasabian's testimony, and I asked LAPD to bring him in. They were unable to find him. I then gave the assignment to the DA's Bureau of Investigation, who located Jones, but he wouldn't give us the time of day. Linda said that after Manson instructed her to go with Tex, the group piled into ranch hand Johnny Swartz's old Ford. I asked Linda what each was wearing. She wasn't absolutely sure, but she thought Sadie had on a dark blue t-shirt and dungarees, that Katie's attire was similar, and that Tex was wearing a black velour turtleneck and dark dungarees. When shown the clothing the TV crew had found, Linda identified six of the seven items, failing to recall only the white t-shirt. The logical assumption was that she hadn't seen it because it had been worn under one of the other shirts. What about footwear? I asked. The girls, she believed, were all barefoot. She thought, but couldn't be sure, that Tex had on cowboy boots. A number of bloody footprints had been found at the Tate murder scene. After eliminating those belonging to LAPD personnel, two remained unidentified, a boot heel print and the print of a bare foot, thus supporting Linda's recollections. Again, as with Susan Atkins, I badly needed independent corroboration of Linda's testimony. I then asked Linda the same question I'd asked Susan. Had any of them been on drugs that night? And received the same reply. No. As Tex started to drive off, Manson said, Hold it, or wait. He then leaned in the window on the passenger side and said, Leave a sign. You girls know what to write. Something witchy. Tex handed Linda three knives and a gun, telling her to wrap them in a rag and put them on the floor. If stopped by the police, Tex said, she was to throw them out. Linda positively identified the twenty-two caliber Longhorn revolver. Only at this time, she said, the grip had been intact and the barrel unbent. According to Linda, Tex did not tell them their destination or what they were going to do. However, she presumed they were going on another creepy-crawly mission. Tex did say that he had been to the house and knew the layout. As we drove up Shallow Drive in the sheriff's van, Linda showed me where Tex had turned, in front of the gate at 10,050, then parked next to the telephone pole. He had then taken a pair of large, red-handled wire cutters from the back seat and shinnied up the pole. From where she was sitting, Linda couldn't see Tex cutting the wires, but she saw and heard the wires fall. When shown the wire cutters found at Barker Ranch, Linda said they looked like the pair used that night. Since the wire cutters had been found in Manson's personal dune buggy, her identification linked them not just to the family, but to Manson himself. I was especially pleased at this evidence, unaware that link would soon be severed, literally.
When Tex returned to the car, they drove to a spot near the bottom of the hill and parked. The four then took the weapons and extra clothing and stealthily walked back up to the gate. Tex also had some white rope, which was draped over his shoulder. As Linda and I got out of the sheriff's van and approached the gate at 10,050 Shallow Drive, two large dogs belonging to Rudy Altabelli began barking furiously at us. Linda suddenly began sobbing. What are you crying about, Linda? I asked. Pointing to the dogs, she said, Why couldn't they have been here that night? Linda pointed to the spot, to the right of the gate, where they had climbed the embankment and scaled the fence. As they were descending the other side, a pair of headlights suddenly appeared in the driveway. Lay down and be quiet, Tex ordered. He then jumped up and ran to the automobile, which had stopped near the gate control mechanism. Linda heard a man's voice saying, Please don't hurt me. I won't say anything. She then saw Tex put the gun in the open window on the driver's side and heard four shots. She also saw the man slump over in the seat. Something here puzzled me, and still does. In addition to the gunshot wounds, Stephen Parent had a defensive stab wound that ran from the palm across the wrist of his left hand. It severed the tendons as well as the band of his wristwatch. Obviously, Parent had raised his left hand, the hand closest to the open window, in an effort to protect himself, the force of the blow being sufficient to hurl his watch into the back seat. It therefore appeared that Tex must have approached the car with a knife in one hand, a gun in the other, and that he first slashed at Parent, then shot him. Yet neither Susan nor Linda saw Tex with a knife at this point, nor did either recall the stabbing. Linda saw Tex reach in the car and turn off the lights and ignition. He then pushed the car some distance up the driveway, telling the others to follow him. The shooting put her in a state of shock, Linda said. My mind went blank. I was aware of my body walking toward the house. As we went up the driveway, I asked Linda which lights had been on that night. She pointed to the bug light on the side of the garage, also the Christmas tree lights along the fence. Little details, yet important if the defense contended Linda was fabricating her story from what she had read in the papers, since neither these nor numerous other details I collected had appeared in the press. As we approached the residence, I noticed that Linda was shivering and her arms were covered with goosebumps. Though it wasn't cold that day, Linda was now nine months pregnant, and I slipped off my coat and put it over her shoulders. The shivering continued, however, all the time we were on the premises, and often, in pointing out something, she would begin crying. There was no question in my mind that the tears were real, and that she was deeply affected by what had happened in this place. I couldn't help contrasting Linda with Susan. When they reached the house, Linda said, Tex sent her around the back to look for an unlocked window or door. She reported that everything was locked, though she hadn't actually checked. This explained why they ignored the open nursery window. Tex then slid a screen on one of the front windows with a knife. Though the actual screen had since been replaced, Linda pointed to the correct window. She also said the slash was horizontal, as it had been. Tex then told her to go back and wait by the car in the driveway. Linda did as she was told. Perhaps a minute or two later, Katie came back and asked Linda for her knife. This was the knife with the taped handle, and told her, listen for sounds. A few minutes later, Linda heard horrifying sounds coming from the house. 
A man moaned, No, 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 then screamed very loudly. The scream, which seemed continuous, was punctuated with other voices, male and female, begging and pleading for their lives. Wanting to stop what was happening, Linda said, I started running toward the house. As she reached the walk, there was a man, a tall man, just coming out of the door, staggering, and he had blood all over his face, and he was standing by a post, and we looked into each other's eyes for a minute. I don't know however long, and I said, Oh, God, I'm so sorry. And then he just fell into the bushes. And then Sadie came running out of the house, and I said, Sadie, please make it stop. People are coming. Which wasn't true, but I wanted to make it stop. And she said, It's too late. Complaining that she had lost her knife, Susan ran back into the house. Linda remained outside. Susan had earlier told me, and the grand jury, that Linda had never entered the residence. Turning, Linda saw a dark-haired woman in a white gown running across the lawn. Katie was pursuing her, an upraised knife in her hand. Somehow, the tall man managed to stagger from the bushes next to the porch onto the lawn, where he had again fallen. Linda saw Tex hit him over the head with something. It could have been a gun, but she wasn't sure. Then stab him repeatedly in the back as he lay on the ground. Shown a number of photographs, Linda identified the tall man as Wojciech Frykowski, the dark-haired woman as Abigail Folger. Examining the autopsy report on Frykowski, I found that five of his 51 stab wounds were to the back. Linda turned and ran down the driveway. For what seemed like maybe five minutes, she hid in the bushes near the gate, then climbed the fence again and ran down shallow to where they had parked the Ford. Question. Why didn't you run to one of the houses and call the police? I asked Linda. Answer. My first thought was get help. Then my little girl entered my mind. She was back at the ranch with Charlie. I didn't know where I was or how to get out of there. She got in the car and had started the engine when, all of a sudden, they were there. They were covered with blood. They looked like zombies. Tex yelled at me to turn off the car and get over. He had a terrible look in his eyes. Linda slid over to the passenger side. Then he started in on Sadie and yelled at her for losing her knife. Tex had put the twenty-two revolver on the seat between them. Linda noticed that the grip was broken, and Tex told her it had smashed when he hit the man over the head. Sadie and Katie complained that their heads hurt because the people had pulled their hair while they were fighting with them. Sadie also said the big man had hit her over the head, and that the girl, it was unclear whether she meant Sharon or Abigail, had cried for her mother. Katie also complained that her hand hurt, explaining that when she stabbed, she kept hitting bones, and since the knife didn't have a regular handle, it bruised her hand. Question. How did you feel, Linda? Answer. In a state of shock. Question. What about the others? How did they act? Answer. As if it was all a game? Tex, Sadie, and Katie changed their clothing while the car was in motion, Linda holding the wheel for Tex. Linda herself didn't change, since there was no blood on her. Tex told them he wanted to find a place to hose the blood off, and he turned off Benedict Canyon onto a short street not too far from the Tate residence. Linda's account of the hosing incident paralleled Susan Atkins's and Rudolph Weber's. Weber's house was located 1.8 miles from the Tate premises. From there, 
Tex turned onto Benedict Canyon again and drove along through a dark, hilly country area. He stopped the car on a dirt shoulder off the road, and Tex, Sadie, and Katie gave Linda their bloody clothing, which on Tex's instructions she rolled up in one bundle and threw down the slope. Since it was dark, she couldn't see where it landed. After driving off, Tex told Linda to wipe the knives clean of fingerprints, then throw them out the window. She did, the first knife hitting a bush at the side of the road, the second, which she tossed out a few seconds later, striking the curb and bouncing back into the road. Looking back, she saw it lying there. Linda believed she threw the gun out a few minutes later, but she wasn't sure. It was possible that Tex did it. After driving for a time, they stopped at a gas station. Linda was unable to recall the street, where Katie and Sadie took turns going into the restroom to wash the rest of the blood off their bodies. Then they drove back to Spawn Ranch. Linda did not have a watch, but guessed it must have been about 2 a.m. Charles Manson was standing on the boardwalk in the same spot where he had been when they drove off. Sadie said she saw some blood on the outside of the car, and Manson had the girls get rags and sponges and wash the car, inside and out. He then told them to go to the bunkhouse. Brenda and Clem were already there. Manson asked Tex how it had gone. Tex told him that there was a lot of panic, that it was real messy, and that there were bodies lying all over the place, but that everyone was dead. Manson asked the four, Do you have any remorse? All shook their heads and said no. Linda did feel remorse, she told me, but she didn't admit it to Charlie because I was afraid for my life. I could see in his eyes he knew how I felt, and it was against his way. Manson told them, go to bed and say nothing to the others. Linda slept most of the day. It was almost sundown when Sadie told her to go into the trailer, that the TV news was coming on. Although Linda could not recall seeing Tex, she remembered Sadie, Katie, Barbara Hoyt, and Clem being there. It was the big news. For the first time, Linda heard the names of the victims. She also learned that one, Sharon Tate, had been pregnant. Only a few days earlier, Linda had learned that she herself was pregnant. As we were watching the news, Linda said, in my head I kept saying, why would they do such a thing? After Linda and I left the Tate residence, I asked her to show us the route they had taken. She found the dirt shoulder where they had pulled off to dispose of the clothing, but was unable to find the street where Tex had turned off Benedict Canyon, so I had the sheriff's deputy, who was driving, take us directly to Portola. Once on the street, Linda immediately identified 9870, pointing to the hose in front. Number 9870 was Rudolph Weber's house. She also pointed to the spot where they had parked the car. It was the same spot Weber had indicated. Neither his address nor even the fact that he had been located had appeared in the press. We were back on Benedict, looking for the area where Linda had thrown out the knives, when one of the deputies said, We've got company. Looking out the window, we saw we were being followed by a Channel 2 TV unit. Its presence in the area may have been a coincidence, but I doubted it. More likely, someone at the jail or in the courts had alerted the press that we were taking Linda out. All this time, only a few people knew that Linda Kasabian would be a witness for the prosecution. I'd hoped to keep this secret as long as possible. I'd also hoped to take Linda to the LaBianca residence and several other sites, but now that would have to wait. Telling Linda to turn her head away so she wouldn't be recognized, I asked the driver to hightail it back to Sybil Brand.
Once on the freeway, we tried to outrun the TV unit, but without success. They filmed us all the way. It was like a Max Senate comedy, only with the press in pursuit of the fuzz. After Linda was back in jail, I asked Sergeant McGann to get some cadets from the police academy, or a troop of Boy Scouts, and conduct a search for the knives. From Linda's testimony, we knew that they had probably been thrown out of the car somewhere between the clothing site and the hill where young Stephen Weiss had found the gun, an area of less than two miles. We also knew that since Linda had looked back and seen one of the knives lying in the road, there must have been some illumination nearby, which could be another clue. The following day, March 4th, Gypsy made another visit to Fleischman's office. She told him, in the presence of his law partner, Ronald Goldman, if Linda testifies, 30 people are going to do something about it. I'd already checked out the security at Sybil Brand. Until her baby was born, Linda was being kept in an isolation cell off the infirmary. She had no contact with the other inmates. Deputies brought her meals. After the baby was born, however, she would be reassigned to one of the open dormitories, where she might be threatened, even killed, by Sadie, Katie, or Leslie. I made a note to talk to Captain Carpenter to see if other arrangements could be made. Attorney Richard Caballero had been able to postpone the inevitable, but he couldn't prevent it. The meeting between Susan Atkins and Charles Manson took place in the Los Angeles County Jail on March 5th. Caballero, who was present, would later testify, one of the first things they wanted to know was whether either one had gotten to see Linda Kasabian yet. Neither having done so, it was decided both should keep trying. Manson asked Susan, Are you afraid of the gas chamber? Susan grinned and replied that she wasn't. With that, Caballero must have realized that he had lost her. Susan and Charlie talked for an hour or so more, but Caballero hadn't the foggiest idea of what they said. At some point in the conversation, they began to talk in sort of a double-talk or pig Latin, and when they reached that point, they lost me. However, the looks they exchanged said it all. It was like a joyous homecoming. Sadie Mae Glutz had returned to the irresistible Charles Manson. She fired Caballero the next day. On March 6th, Manson appeared in court and argued a number of novel motions. One asked that the deputy district attorneys in charge of the trial be incarcerated for a period of time under the same circumstances that I have been subject to. Another requested that he be free to travel to any place I should deem fit in preparing my defense. There were more, and Judge Keene declared himself appalled at Manson's outlandish requests. Keene then said he had reviewed the entire file on the case, from his nonsensical motions to his numerous violations of the gag order. He had also discussed Manson's conduct with Judges Lucas and Dell, before whom Manson had also appeared, concluding that it had become abundantly clear to me that you are incapable of acting as your own attorney. Infuriated, Manson shouted, It's not me that's on trial here as much as this court is on trial. He also told the judge, Go wash your hands. They're dirty. The court. Mr. Manson, your status at this time of acting as your own attorney is now vacated. Against Manson's strong objections, Keene appointed Charles Hollipeter, a former president of the Los Angeles Criminal Courts Bar, as Manson's attorney of record. You can kill me, Manson said, but you can't give me an attorney. I won't take one. 
Keene told Manson that if he found an attorney of his own choosing, he would consider a motion to substitute him for Hollipeter. I knew Hollipeter by reputation. Since he'd never be Charlie's bootlicker, I guessed he'd last about a month. I was too generous. Toward the end of the proceedings, Manson shouted, There is no God in this courtroom. As if on cue, a number of family members jumped up and yelled at Keene, You are a mockery of justice. You are a joke. The judge found three of them, Gypsy, Sandy, and Mark Ross, in contempt, and sentenced each to five days in the county jail. When Sandy was searched prior to being booked, among the items found in her purse was a buck knife. After this, the sheriff's deputies, who are in charge of maintaining security in the Los Angeles criminal courts, began searching all spectators before they entered the courtroom. On March 7th, Linda Kasabian was taken to the hospital. Two days later, she gave birth to a boy, whom she named Angel. On the 13th, she was returned to the jail without the child, Linda's mother having taken him back to New Hampshire. In the interim, I had talked to Captain Carpenter, and he had agreed to let Linda remain in her former cell just off the infirmary. I checked it out myself. It was a small room, its furnishings consisting of a bed, toilet bowl, wash basin, and a small desk and chair. It was clean but bleak. Far more important, it was safe. Every few days I called McGann. No, he hadn't got around to looking for the knives yet. On March 11th, Susan Atkins, after formally requesting that Richard Caballero be relieved as her attorney, asked for Day Shin in Caballero's place. Inasmuch as Shin, one of the first attorneys to call on Manson after he was brought down from Independence, had represented Manson on several matters and had visited him more than 40 times, Judge Keene felt there might be a possible conflict of interest involved. Shin denied this. Keene then warned Susan of the possible dangers of being represented by an attorney who had been so closely involved with one of her co-defendants. Susan said she didn't care. She wanted Shin. Keene granted the substitution. I hadn't come up against Shin before. He was about 40, Korean-born. According to the press, his main practice, before allying himself with the Manson defense, had been obtaining Mexican domestics for Southern California families. On leaving the courtroom, Shin told waiting reporters that Susan Atkins definitely will deny everything she told the grand jury. On March 15th, we took Linda Kasabian out again. Only this time we used not a conspicuous sheriff's van, but unmarked police cars. I wanted Linda to trace the route the killers had taken the night the LaBiancas were killed. After dinner that night, Saturday, August 9, 1969, Linda and several other family members were standing outside the kitchen at Spawn. Manson called Linda, Katie, and Leslie aside and told them to get a change of clothing and meet him in the bunkhouse. This time he mentioned nothing to Linda about knives, but he did tell her again to get her driver's license. I just looked at him and, you know just sort of pleaded with my eyes, please don't make me go, because, Linda said, I just knew we were going out again, and I knew it would be the same thing, but I was afraid to say anything. Last night was too messy, Manson told the group when they assembled in the bunkhouse. This time I'm going to show you how to do it. Tex complained that the weapons they had used the previous night weren't effective enough. Linda saw two swords in the bunkhouse, one of which was the straight Satan sword. She did not see anyone pick them up, 
but later she noticed the Satan sword and two smaller knives under the front seat of the car. In questioning to Carlo, I'd learned that one night about this time he'd noticed that the sword had been taken out. Again, the group piled into Swartz's Ford. This time, Manson himself slipped into the driver's seat, with Linda next to him, Clem on the passenger side, Tex, Sadie, Katie, and Leslie crowded in back. All wore dark clothing, Linda said, except for Clem, who had on an olive drab field jacket. As he often did, Manson wore a leather thong around his neck, the two ends extending down to his breastbone, where they were looped together. I asked Linda if anyone else was wearing such a thong. She said no. Before they left, Manson asked Bruce Davis for some money. Just as DiCarlo took care of the family guns, Davis acted as controller for the group, taking care of the stolen credit cards, fake ID, and so forth. As they drove off, Manson told them that tonight they would divide into two groups. Each would take a separate house. He said he'd drop off one group, then take the second group with him. When they stopped to buy gas, using cash, not a credit card, Manson told Linda to take over the driving. Questioning Linda, I established that Manson, and Manson alone, gave all the instructions as to where they were to go and what they were to do. At no time, she said, did Tex Watson instruct anyone to do anything. Charlie was in complete command. Following Manson's directions, Linda took the freeway to Pasadena. Once off it, he gave her so many directions, she was unsure where they were. Eventually, he told her to stop in front of a house, which Linda described as a modern, one-story, middle-class type home. This was the place where, as described by Susan Atkins, Manson got out, had them drive around the block, then got back in, telling them that, having looked in the window and seen photographs of children, he didn't want to do that particular house, though he added in the future it might be necessary to kill children also. Linda's account was essentially the same as Susan's. After riding around Pasadena for some time, Manson again took over the driving. Linda, I remember we started driving up a hill with lots of houses, nice houses, rich houses, and trees. We got to the top of the hill and turned around and stopped in front of a certain house. Linda couldn't remember if it was one story or two, only that it was big. Manson, however, said the houses were too close together here, so they drove off. Shortly after this, Manson spotted a church. Pulling into the parking lot next to it, he again got out. Linda believed, but wasn't absolutely sure, that he told them he was going to get the minister or priest. However, he returned a few minutes later, saying the church door was locked. Susan Atkins had neglected to mention the church in her account. I learned of it for the first time from Linda Kasabian. Manson again told Linda to drive, but the route he gave her was so confusing that she soon became lost. Later, driving up sunset from the ocean, there occurred another incident which Susan Atkins had neglected to mention. Observing a white sports car ahead of them, Manson told Linda, at the next red light, pull up beside it. I'm going to kill the driver. Linda pulled up next to the car, but just as Manson jumped out, the light changed to green and the sports car zoomed away. Another potential victim, unaware to this day how close to death he had come. Thus far, their wanderings appeared totally at random, Manson seemingly having no particular victims in mind. As I'd later argue to the jury, up to this time no one in the vast, sprawling metropolis of seven million people, whether in a home, a church, or even a car, was safe from Manson's insatiable lust for death, 
blood and murder. But after the sports car incident, Manson's directions became very specific. He directed Linda to the Los Feliz section of Los Angeles, not far from Griffith Park, having her stop on the street in front of a home in a residential area. Linda recognized the house. In June of 1968, she and her husband had been driving from Seattle to Taos when they stopped off in Los Angeles. A friend had taken them to the house, 3267 Waverly Drive, for a peyote party. One of the men who were living there, she recalled, was named Harold. In another of the many coincidences which abounded in this case, Linda had also been to the Harold True residence, though at a time none of the family members were there. Linda asked, Charlie, you're not going to do that house, are you? Manson replied, No, the one next door. Telling the others to stay in the car, Manson got out. Linda noticed him shove something into his belt, but she couldn't see what it was. She watched him walking up the driveway until it curved and he disappeared from sight. I presumed, although I couldn't be sure of this, that Manson had a gun. For Rosemary and Lino LaBianca, the horror that would end in their deaths had begun. Linda guessed the time was about 2 a.m. Some ten minutes later, she said, Manson returned to the car. I asked Linda if he was still wearing the leather thong around his neck. She said she hadn't noticed, though she did notice later that night that he no longer had it. I showed her the leather thong used to bind the wrists of Lino LaBianca, and she said it was the same kind Manson had been wearing. Manson told Tex, Katie, and Leslie to get out of the car and bring their clothing bundles with them. Obviously, they were to be the first team. Linda heard some, though not all, of the conversation. Manson told the trio that there were two people inside the house, that he had tied them up and told them that everything was going to be all right and that they shouldn't be afraid. He also instructed Tex, Katie, and Leslie that they were not to cause fear and panic in the people as had happened the night before. The Labiancas had been creepy-crawled, pacified with Charles Manson's unctuous assurances, then set up to be slaughtered. Linda heard only bits and pieces of the rest of the conversation. She did not hear Manson specifically order the three to kill the two persons, nor did she see them carrying any weapons. She believed she heard Manson say, Don't let them know you are going to kill them. And she definitely heard him instruct them that when they were done they were to hitchhike back to the ranch. As the trio started toward the house, Manson got back in the car and handed Linda a woman's wallet, telling her to wipe off the prints and remove the change. In opening it, she noticed the driver's license, which had a photo of a woman with dark hair. She recalled the woman's first name was Rosemary, while the last name was either Mexican or Italian. She also remembered seeing a number of credit cards and a wristwatch. When I asked Linda the color of the wallet, she said it was red. Actually, it was brown. She also claimed to have removed all the change, but when the wallet was found, there were still some coins in one of the inner compartments. Both were understandable errors, I felt, particularly overlooking the extra change compartment. Manson again took over the driving. Linda was now on the passenger side, Susan and Clem in back. Manson told Linda that when they reached a predominantly colored area, he wanted her to toss the wallet out onto a sidewalk so a black person would find it, use the credit cards, and be arrested. This would make people think the Panthers had committed the murders, he explained. Manson drove onto the freeway not far from where they had dropped off Tex, Katie, and Leslie. After driving for a long time, 
he pulled off the freeway and stopped at a nearby service station. Apparently having changed his plans, Manson now told Linda to put the wallet in the women's restroom. Linda did, only she hid it too well, lifting the top of the toilet tank and placing it over the bulb, where it would remain undiscovered for four months. I asked Linda if she could remember anything distinctive about the station. She remembered there was a restaurant next door and that it seemed to radiate the color orange. There was a Denny's restaurant next to the standard station in Silmar with a large orange sign. While Linda was in the restroom, Manson went to the restaurant, returning with four milkshakes. Probably at the same time the Labiancas were being murdered, the man who had ordered their deaths was sipping a milkshake. Again, Manson had Linda drive. After a long time, perhaps an hour, they reached the beach somewhere south of Venice. Linda recalled seeing some oil storage tanks. All four got out of the car, Sadie and Clem, at Charlie's instructions, dropping behind while he and Linda walked ahead in the sand. Suddenly, Manson was again all love. It was as if the events of the last 48 hours had never happened. Linda told Charlie that she was pregnant. Manson took Linda's hand, and, as she described it, it was sort of nice, you know, we were just talking. I gave him some peanuts, and he just sort of made me forget about everything. Made me feel good. Would the jury understand this? I thought so, once they understood Manson's charismatic personality and Linda's love for him. Just as they reached a side street, a police car pulled up and two officers got out. They asked the pair what they were doing. Charlie replied, we were just going for a walk. Then, as if they should recognize him, he asked, don't you know who I am? Or, don't you remember my name? They said no, then returned to the patrol car and drove off, without asking either for identification. It was, Linda said, a friendly conversation, lasting only a minute. Finding the two officers on duty in the area that night should be fairly easy, I thought, unaware how wrong I could be. Clem and Sadie were already back in the car when they returned. Manson then told Linda to drive to Venice. En route, he asked the three if they knew anyone there. None did. Manson then asked Linda, What about the man you and Sandy met in Venice? Wasn't he a piggy? Linda replied, Yes, he's an actor. Manson told her to drive to his apartment. I asked Linda about the actor. One afternoon in early August, Linda said, she and Sandy had been hitchhiking near the pier when this man picked them up. He told them he was Israeli or Arab, Linda couldn't recall which, and that he had appeared in a movie about Khalil Gibran. The two girls were hungry, and he drove them to his apartment and fixed them lunch. Afterward, Sandy napped, and Linda and the man made love. Before the girls left, he gave them some food and spare clothing. Linda couldn't remember the man's name, only that it was foreign. However, she felt sure she could find the apartment house, as she had located it when Manson asked her to drive there that night. When they pulled up in front, Manson asked Linda if the man would let her in. I think so, she replied. What about Sadie and Clem? Linda said she guessed so. Manson then handed her a pocket knife and demonstrated how he wanted her to slit the actor's throat. Linda said she couldn't do it. I'm not you, Charlie, Linda told Manson. I can't kill anybody. Manson asked her to take him to the man's apartment. 
Linda led Charlie up the stairs, but deliberately pointed to the wrong door. On returning to the car, Manson gave the trio explicit instructions. They were to go to the actor's apartment. Linda was to knock. When the man let her in, Sadie and Clem were to go in also. Once they were inside, Linda was to slit the man's throat, and Clem was to shoot him. When finished, they were to hitchhike back to the ranch. Linda saw Manson hand Clem a gun, but was unable to describe it. Nor did she know if Sadie also had a knife. If anything goes wrong, Manson told them, just hang it up. Don't do it. He then slid into the driver's seat and drove off. Like the church and sports car incidents, Susan Atkins had not mentioned the Venice incident to me, nor had she said anything about it when testifying before the grand jury. While I felt that she might have forgotten the two earlier incidents, I suspected the third was omitted intentionally, since it directly involved her as a willing partner in still another attempted murder. It was possible, however, that had I had more time to interview Susan, this too might have come out. The actor's apartment was on the top, or fifth floor, but Linda did not tell Clem or Sadie this. Instead, on reaching the fourth floor, she knocked on the first door she saw. Eventually, a man sleepily asked, Who is it? She replied, Linda. When the man opened the door a crack, Linda said, Oh, excuse me, I have the wrong apartment. The door was open only a second or two, and Linda caught just a glimpse of the man. She had the impression, though she was unsure of this, that he was middle-aged. The three then left the building, but not before Sadie, ever the animal, defecated on the landing. It was obvious that Linda Kasabian had prevented still another Manson-ordered murder. As independent evidence corroborating her story, it was important that we locate not only the actor, but the man who answered the door. Perhaps he'd remember being awakened at 4 or 5 a.m. by a pretty young girl. From the apartment house, Clem, Sadie, and Linda walked to the beach, a short distance away. Clem wanted to ditch the gun. He disappeared from sight behind a sand pile near a fence. Linda presumed that he had either buried the gun or tossed it over the fence. Walking back to the Pacific Coast Highway, they hitched a ride to the entrance of Topanga Canyon. There was a hippie crash pad nearby, next door to the Malibu feed bin, and Sadie said she knew a girl who was staying there. Linda recalled there was also an older man there, and a big dog. The three stayed about an hour, smoking some weed, then left. They then hitched two rides, the last taking them all the way to the entrance of Santa Susana Pass Road, where Clem and Linda got out. Sadie, Linda learned the next day, remained in the car until it reached the waterfall area. When Linda and Clem arrived at the ranch, Tex and Leslie were already there, asleep in one of the rooms. She didn't see Katie, though she learned the next day that, like Sadie, she had gone on to the camp by the waterfall. Linda went to bed in the saloon. Two days later, Linda Kasabian fled Spawn Ranch. The manner of her departure, however, would cause the prosecution a great deal of concern. Rather than taking Linda directly to the La Bianca residence, I had the sheriff's deputy drive to the Los Feliz area to see if Linda could find the house itself. She did, pointing out both the La Bianca and True houses, the place where they had parked, the driveway up which Manson had walked, and so on. I also wanted to find the two houses in Pasadena where Manson had stopped earlier that night, 
but though we spent hours looking for them, we were at this time unsuccessful. Linda did find the apartment house where the actor had lived, 1101 Oceanfront Walk, and pointed out both his apartment, 501, and the door on which she had knocked, 403. I asked Patchett and Gutierrez to locate and interview both the actor and the man who had been living in 403. Linda also showed us the sand pile near the fence where she believed Clem had disposed of the gun, but though we got out shovels and dug up the area, we were unable to locate the weapon. It was possible that someone had already found it, or that Clem or one of the other family members had reclaimed it later. We never did learn what type of gun it was. Having been out since early in the morning, we stopped at a Chinese restaurant for lunch. That afternoon, we returned to Pasadena and must have driven past 40 churches before Linda found the one where Manson had stopped. I asked LAPD to photograph it and the adjoining parking lot as a trial exhibit. Linda also identified the standard station in Silmar where she'd left the wallet, as well as Denny's restaurant next door. Despite all our security precautions, we were spotted. The next day, the Herald Examiner reported, in addition to winning immunity, Mrs. Kasabian was given a bonus in the form of a Chinese dinner at Madame Wu's garden restaurant in Santa Monica. Restaurant employees confirmed Mrs. Kasabian, defense attorney Fleischman, and prosecutor Bugliosi ate their Sunday. The paper neglected to mention that our party included a half-dozen LAPD officers and two LASO deputies. We took Linda out twice more, trying to find the two houses in Pasadena. On both occasions, we were accompanied by South Pasadena PD officers who directed us to neighborhoods similar to those Linda had described. We finally found the large house atop the hill. Though I had it and the adjoining houses photographed, they were close together, as Manson had said, I decided against talking to the owners, sure they would sleep better not knowing how close to death they had come. We were never able to locate the first house, which both Susan and Linda had described, where Manson looked in the window and saw the photographs of the children. We did grant Linda one special privilege, which might have been called a bonus. On the three occasions we took her out of Sybil Brand, we let her call her mother in New Hampshire and talk to her two children. Her attorney paid for the calls. Though Angel was only a month old and much too young to understand, just speaking to them obviously meant a great deal to Linda. Yet she never asked to do this. She never asked for anything. She told me not once but several times that although she was pleased to be getting immunity, because it meant that eventually she could be with her children, it didn't matter that much if she didn't get it. There was a sort of sad fatalism about her. She said she knew she had to tell the truth about what had happened, and that she had known she would be the one to tell the story ever since the murders occurred. Unlike the other defendants, she seemed burdened with guilt, though, again, unlike them, she hadn't physically harmed anyone. She was a strange girl, marked by her time with Manson, yet not molded by him in the same way the others were. Because she was compliant, easily led, Manson apparently had had little trouble controlling her, up to a point. But she had refused to cross that point. I'm not you, Charlie. I can't kill anybody. Once I asked her what she thought about Manson now. She was still in love with him, Linda said. Some things he said were the truth, she observed thoughtfully. Only now I realize he could take a truth and make a lie of it. Shortly after the story broke that Linda Kasabian would testify for the prosecution, 
Al Wyman, the reporter with the Channel 7 crew which had found the clothing, showed up in my office. If Kasabian was cooperating with us, then she must have indicated where she threw the knives, Wyman surmised. He begged me to pinpoint the area. His station, he promised, would supply a search crew, metal detectors, everything. Look, Al, I told him, you guys have already found the clothing. How is it going to look at the trial if you find the knives, too? Tell you what, I'm trying to get someone out. If they won't go, then I'll tell you. After Wyman left, I called McGann. Two weeks had passed since I'd asked him to look for the knives. He still hadn't done it. My patience at an end, I called Lieutenant Helder and told him about Wyman's offer. Think how LAPD is going to look if it comes out during the trial that a ten-year-old boy found the gun and Channel 7 found both the clothing and the knives. Bob had a crew out the next day. No luck. But at least during the trial we'd be prepared to prove that they had looked. Otherwise, the defense could contend that LAPD was so skeptical of Linda Kasabian's story that they hadn't even bothered to mount a search. That they'd failed to find the knives was a disappointment, but not too much of a surprise. Over seven months had passed since the night Linda tossed the knives out of the car. According to her testimony, one had bounced back into the road, while the other had landed in the bushes nearby. The street, though in the country, was much traveled. It was quite possible they had been picked up by a motorist or passing cyclist. I had no idea how often the police had interviewed Winifred Chapman, the Polanski's maid. I talked to her a number of times myself before I realized there was one question so obvious we'd all overlooked it. Mrs. Chapman had stated that she washed the front door of the Tate residence just after noon on Friday, August 8th. This meant Charles Watson had to have left his print there sometime after this. However, there was a second print found at the Tate residence, Patricia Krenwinkel's, located inside the door that led from Sharon Tate's bedroom to the pool. I asked Mrs. Chapman, Did you ever wash that door? Yes. How often? A couple of times a week. She had to, she explained, because the guests usually used that door to get to the pool. The big question. Did you wash it the week of the murders? And if so, when? Answer. Tuesday was the last time. I washed it down, inside and out, with vinegar and water. Under discovery, I was only required to make a note of the conversation and put it in our tubs. However, in fairness to both Fitzgerald and his client, I called Paul and told him, if you're planning on having Krenwinkel testify that she went swimming at the Tate residence a couple of weeks before the murders and left her print at that time, better forget it. Mrs. Chapman is going to testify she washed that door on Tuesday, August 5th. Paul was grateful for the information. Had he based his defense on this premise, Mrs. Chapman's testimony could have been devastating. There was, in such conversations, something assumed, though unstated. Whatever his public posture, I was sure that Fitzgerald knew that his client was guilty, and he knew that I knew it. Though only on rare occasions does a defense attorney slip up and admit this in court, when it comes to in-chambers discussions and private conversations, it's often something else. There were two items of evidence in our files which I did not point out to the defense. I was sure they had already seen them. Both were among the items photocopied for them, but I was hoping they wouldn't realize their importance. One was a traffic ticket, the other an arrest report. Separately, each seemed unimportant. Together they made a bomb that would demolish Manson's alibi defense.
On first learning from Foles that Manson might claim that he was not in the Los Angeles area at the time of the murders, I had asked LaBianca detectives Patchett and Gutierrez to see if they could obtain evidence proving his actual whereabouts on the subject dates. They did an excellent job. Together with information obtained from credit card transactions and interviews, they were able to piece together a timetable of Manson's activities during the week preceding the start of Helter Skelter. On about August 1, 1969, Manson told several family members that he was going to Big Sur to seek out new recruits. He apparently left on the morning of Sunday, August 3rd, as sometime between 7 and 8 he purchased gas at a station in Canoga Park using a stolen credit card. From Canoga Park, he headed north toward Big Sur. At about four the next morning, he picked up a young girl, Stephanie Schramm, outside a service station some distance south of Big Sur, probably at Gorda. An attractive 17-year-old, Stephanie was hitchhiking from San Francisco to San Diego, where she was living with her married sister. Manson and Stephanie camped in a nearby canyon that night, probably Salmon or Lime Kiln Creek, both hippie hangouts, Manson telling her his views on life, love, and death. Manson talked a lot about death, Stephanie would recall, and it frightened her. They took LSD and had sex. Manson was apparently unusually smitten with Stephanie. Usually he'd have sex with a new girl a few times, then move on to a new young love. Not so with Stephanie. He later told Paul Watkins that Stephanie, who was of German extraction, was the result of 2,000 years of perfect breeding. On August 4th, Manson, still using the stolen credit card, purchased gas at Lucia. Ripping off the place, which bore a large sign reading, Hippies Not Allowed, must have given him a special satisfaction, as he did it again the next day. On the night of the 5th, Manson and Stephanie drove north to a place whose name Stephanie couldn't recall, but which Manson described as a sensitivity camp. It was, he told her, a place where rich people went on weekends to play at being enlightened. He was obviously describing Esalen Institute. Esalen was, at this time, just coming into vogue as a growth center. Its seminars, including such diverse figures as yogis and psychiatrists, salvationists and Satanists. Obviously, Manson felt Esalen a prime place to espouse his philosophies. It is unknown whether he had been there on prior occasions, those involved in the Institute refusing to even acknowledge his visits there. Note. At 3.07 p.m., July 30, 1969, someone at the Tate residence called the Esalen Institute, Big Sur, California, telephone number 408-667-2335. It was a brief station-to-station call, total charge 95 cents. It is unknown who placed the call, or, since the number is that of the switchboard, who was called. Since the call occurred just six days before Charles Manson's visit to Esalen, it arouses a certain amount of speculation. A few things are known, however. None of the Tate victims was at Big Sur during the period Manson was there. Abigail Folger had attended seminars at Esalen in the past, and several of her San Francisco friends visited there periodically. It is possible that she was simply trying to locate someone, but this is just a guess. Though both the call and Manson's visit to Esalen remain mysterious, I should perhaps note that, with a single exception, the Hatami-Tate-Manson confrontation on March 23, 1969, I was unable to find a prior link of any kind between any of the Tate-LaBianca victims and their killers. End of note. Manson took his guitar and left Stephanie in the van. After a time, she fell asleep. When she awakened the next morning, Manson had already returned. 
He was in less than a good mood, as, later that day, he unexpectedly struck her. Still later, at Barker Ranch, Manson would tell Paul Watkins, to quote Watkins, that while at Big Sur, he had gone to Esalen and played his guitar for a bunch of people who were supposed to be the top people there, and they rejected his music. Some people pretended that they were asleep, and other people were saying, this is too heavy for me, and I'm not ready for that. And others were saying, well, I don't understand it. And some just got up and walked out. Still another rejection by what Manson considered the establishment, this occurring just three days before the Tate murders. With his single recruit, Manson left Big Sur on August 6th, making gas purchases that same day at San Luis Obispo and Chatsworth, a few miles from Spawn Ranch. According to Stephanie, they had dinner at the ranch that night, and she met the family for the first time. She felt uncomfortable with them, and, learning that Manson shared his favors with the other girls, told him she would stay only if he would promise to remain with her, and her alone, for two weeks. Surprisingly, Manson agreed. They spent that night in the van, parked not far from the ranch, then drove to San Diego the next day to pick up Stephanie's clothes. En route, about ten miles south of Oceanside on Interstate 5, they were stopped by California Highway Patrol Officer Richard C. Willis. Though pulled over for a mechanical violation, Manson was cited only for having no valid driver's license in his possession. Manson gave his correct name and the ranch address and signed the ticket himself. Officer Willis noted on the ticket that Manson was driving a 1952 cream-colored Ford Bakery van, license number K70683. The date was Thursday, August 7, 1969. The time, 6.15 p.m. The ticket, which Patchett and Gutierrez found, proved Manson was in Southern California the day before the Tate murders. While Stephanie was getting her clothes together, Manson talked to her sister, who was also a Beatles fan. She had the White Album, and Manson told her the Beatles had laid out the whole scene in it. He warned her that the blacks were getting ready to overthrow the whites, and that only those who fled to the desert and hid in the bottomless pit would be safe. As for those who remained in the cities, Manson said, people are going to be slaughtered. They'll be lying on their lawns dead. Just a little over 24 hours later, his prediction would be fulfilled, in all its gory detail, at 10,050 Shallow Drive, with a little help from his friends. That night, according to Stephanie, she and Charlie parked somewhere in San Diego and slept next to the van, returning to Spawn Ranch the following day, arriving there about two in the afternoon. Stephanie was a bit vague when it came to dates. She thought the day they returned to Spawn Ranch was Friday, August 8th, but she wasn't sure. I anticipated that the defense would make the most of this, but I wasn't concerned because that second piece of evidence conclusively placed Manson back at the ranch on Friday, August 8, 1969. According to Linda Kasabian, on the afternoon of August 8th, Manson gave Mary Bruner and Sandra Good a credit card and told them to purchase some items for him. At four that afternoon, the two girls were apprehended while driving away from a Sears store in San Fernando, after store employees checked and found the credit card was stolen. The San Fernando PD arrest report stated that they were driving a van 1952 Ford license K70683. Because of the fine job of digging by the LaBianca detectives, we now had physical proof that Manson was back at Spawn Ranch on Friday, August 8, 1969. Though both the traffic ticket and arrest report were in the discovery materials, so were hundreds of other documents. 
I was hoping that the defense would overlook their common denominator, that vehicle description with its telltale license number. If Manson went with an alibi defense, and I proved that alibi was fabricated, this would be strong circumstantial evidence of his guilt. There was, of course, other evidence placing Manson at Spawn Ranch that day. In addition to the testimony of Schramm, DiCarlo, and others, Linda Kasabian said that when the family got together that afternoon, Manson discussed his visit to Big Sur, saying that the people there were really not together. They were just off on their little trips, and that the people wouldn't go on his trip. It was just after this that Manson told them, now is the time for helter-skelter. Bits and pieces, often largely circumstantial, yet patiently dug out and assembled, they became the people's case. And with almost every interview, it became a little stronger. I spent many hours interviewing Stephanie Schramm, who, together with Kitty Lutzinger, had fled Barker Ranch just hours before the October 1969 raid, shotgun-wielding Clem in close pursuit. I often wondered what would have happened to the two girls had the raid been timed just a day later, or Clem been a little faster. Unlike Kitty, Stephanie had severed all contact with the family. Though we had kept her current address from the defense, Squeaky and Gypsy found her working at a dog grooming school. Charlie wants you to come back, they told her. Stephanie replied, no thanks. Considering what she knew, her forthright refusal was a brave act. From Stephanie, I learned that while at Barker, Manson had conducted a murder school he had given a buck knife to each of the girls and had demonstrated how they should slit the throats of pigs by yanking the head back by the hair and drawing the knife from ear to ear, using Stephanie as a very frightened model. He also said they should stab them in either their ears or eyes and then wiggle the knife around to get as many vital organs as possible. The details became even gorier. Manson said that if the police pigs came to the desert, they should kill them, cut them in little pieces, boil the heads, then put the skulls and uniforms on posts to frighten off others. Note. Much later, I discovered that LASO deputies George Palmer and William Gleason had obtained much of this same information from Stephanie Schramm on December 3, 1969, but LASO had not informed LAPD of this. End of note. Stephanie had told LAPD that Manson had spent the nights of Friday, August 8th, and Saturday, August 9th, with her. On questioning her, I learned that about an hour after dinner on August 8th, Manson took her to the trailer at Spawn and told her to go to sleep, that he would join her soon. However, she didn't see him again until shortly before dawn the next morning, at which time he awakened her and took her with him to Devil's Canyon, the camp across the road from the ranch. That night, August 9th, Stephanie said, when it got dark he left and he came back either sometime during the night or early in the morning. If Manson was planning on using Stephanie Schramm as an alternative alibi, we were now more than ready for him. On March 19th, Hollapeter, Manson's court-appointed attorney, made two motions, that Charles Manson be given a psychiatric examination and that his case be severed from that of the others. Enraged, Manson tried to fire Hollapeter. Asked whom he wished to represent him, Manson replied, Myself. When Judge Keene denied the change, Manson picked up a copy of the Constitution and, saying it meant nothing to the court, tossed it in a wastebasket. Manson eventually requested that Ronald Hughes be substituted for Hollapeter. Like Reiner and Shin, 
Hughes had been one of the first attorneys to call on Manson. He had remained on the periphery of the case ever since, his chief function being to run errands for Manson, as indicated by a document Manson had signed on February 17th, designating him one of his legal runners. Keene granted the substitution. Hollopeter, whom the press called one of L.A. County's most successful defense attorneys, was out after 13 days. Hughes, who had never before tried a case, was in. Something of an intellectual, Hughes was a huge, balding man with a long, scraggly beard. His various items of apparel rarely matched and usually evidenced numerous food stains. As one reporter remarked, you could usually tell what Ron had for breakfast for the past several weeks. Hughes, whom I would get to know well in the months ahead, and for whom I developed a growing respect, once admitted to me that he had bought his suits for a dollar apiece at MGM. They were from Walter Slazak's old wardrobe. The press was quick to dub him Manson's hippie lawyer. Hugh's first two acts were to withdraw the motions for the psychiatric examination and the severance. Granted. His third and fourth were requests that Manson be allowed to revert to pro-per status and to deliver a speech to the court. Denied. Although Manson was displeased with Keene's last two rulings, he couldn't have been too unhappy with the defense team, which now consisted of four attorneys, Reiner, Van Houten, Shin, Atkins, Fitzgerald, Krenwinkel, and Hughes, Manson, each of whom had been associated with him since early in the case. Unknown to us, there were still changes ahead. Among the casualties would be both Ira Reiner and Ronald Hughes, each of whom dared go against Manson's wishes. Reiner would lose considerable time and money for having linked himself with the Manson defense. His loss would be small, however, compared to that of Hughes, who just eight months later would pay with his life. On March 21st, Aaron and I were walking down the corridor in the Hall of Justice when we spotted Irving Canarak emerging from the elevator. Although little known elsewhere, Canarak was something of a legend in the Los Angeles courts. The attorney's obstructionist tactics had caused a number of judges to openly censure him from the bench. Canarak's stories were so common, and usually incredible, as to seem fictional when they were actually fact. Prosecutor Burton Katz, for example, recalled that Canarak once objected to a prosecution witness's stating his own name, because having first heard his name from his mother, it was hearsay. Such frivolous objections were minor irritations compared with Canarak's dilatory tactics. As samples... In the case of People v. Goodman, Canarak had stretched a simple theft case, which should have taken a few hours or a day at most, to three months. The amount stolen? $100. The cost to the taxpayers? $130,212. In the case of People v. Smith and Powell, Canarak spent 12 and a half months on pretrial motions. After an additional two months trying to pick a jury, Canarak's own client fired him in disgust. A year and a half after Irving Canarak came onto the case, the jury still hadn't been selected, nor a single witness called. In the case of People v. Bronson, Superior Court Judge Raymond Roberts told Canarak, I am doing my best to see that Mr. Bronson gets a fair trial in spite of you. I have never seen such obviously stupid, ill-advised questions of a witness. Are you paid by the word or by the hour that you can consume the court's time? You are the most obstructionist man I have ever met. Outside the presence of the jury, Judge Roberts defined Canarak's modus operandi as follows. You take interminable lengths of time in cross-examining on the most minute, unimportant details. 
you ramble back and forth with no chronology of events, to just totally confuse everybody in the courtroom, to the utter frustration of the jury, the witnesses, and the judge. After examining the transcript, the appellate court found the judge's remarks were not prejudicial, but were substantiated by the trial record. All we need, Vince, Aaron remarked jocularly to me, is to have Irving Canarek on this case. We'd be in court ten years. The next day, Ronald Hughes told a reporter that he may ask Van Nuys attorney I.A. Canarek to enter the case as Manson's lawyer. He mentioned that he and Manson conferred with Canarek at the county jail Monday night. Though no miracle was involved, the Black Panther, whom Charles Manson had shot and killed in July 1969, had resurrected. Only he wasn't a panther, just a former dope dealer, and contrary to what Manson and the family had believed, after Manson shot him, he hadn't died, though his friends had told Manson that he had. His name was Bernard Crow, but he was best known by the descriptive nickname Lots of Papa. Our long search for Crow ended when an old acquaintance of mine, Ed Tolmas, who was Crow's attorney, called me. He told me he had learned we were looking for his client and arranged for me to interview Crow. Crow's story of the incident was essentially the same as that DiCarlo had told LAPD, although even Charlie didn't know the surprise ending. After Manson and TJ had left the Hollywood apartment where the shooting took place, Crow, who had been playing dead, told his friends to call an ambulance. They did, then split. When questioned by the police at the hospital, Crow said he didn't know who had shot him or why. He nearly didn't make it. He was on the critical list for 18 days. The bullet was still lodged next to his spine. I was interested in Crow for two reasons. One, the incident proved that Charles Manson was quite capable of killing someone on his own. Though I knew I couldn't get this into evidence during the guilt phase of the trial, I was hopeful of introducing it during the penalty phase, when other crimes can be considered. Two, from the description, it appeared that the gun Manson had shot Crow with was the same 22 caliber Longhorn revolver, which, just a little over a month later, Tex Watson would use in the Tate homicides. If we could remove the bullet from Crow's body and match it up with the bullets test-fired from the 22 caliber revolver, we'd have placed the Tate murder weapon in Manson's own hand. Sergeant Bill Lee of SID wasn't optimistic about the bullet. He told me that since it had been embedded in the body for over nine months, it was likely that acids had obliterated the stria to an extent where a positive identification would be difficult. Still, it might be possible. I then talked to several surgeons. They could take out the bullet, they told me, but the operation was risky. I laid it out for Crow. We'd like to have the bullet and would arrange to have it removed at the Los Angeles County Hospital but there were serious risks involved, and I didn't minimize them. Crow declined the operation. He was sort of proud of the bullet, he said. It made quite a conversation piece. Eventually, Manson would have learned, through discovery, of the resurrection of Bernard Crow. Before this, however, Crow was jailed on a marijuana charge. As he was being escorted down the hall, he passed Manson and his guard, who were on their way back from the attorney room. Charlie did a quick about-face, then told Crow, according to the deputies who were present, Sorry I had to do it, but you know how it is. Crow's response, if there was one, went unreported. Toward the end of March, the prosecution nearly lost one of its key witnesses. Paul Watkins, once Manson's chief lieutenant, 
was pulled out of a flaming Volkswagen camper and rushed to Los Angeles County General Hospital with second-degree burns on 25% of his face, arms, and back. When sufficiently recovered to talk to the police, Watkins told them he had fallen asleep while reading by candlelight, and either that or a marijuana cigarette he had been smoking could have caused the fire. These were only guesses, Watkins told them, as he was unsure of the origin of the blaze. Three days before the fire, Inyo County authorities had heard a rumor that Watkins was going to be killed by the family. As far back as November 1969, I'd asked LAPD to infiltrate the family. I not only wanted to know what they were planning as far as defense strategy was concerned. I told the officers it would be tragic if there was another murder which we could have prevented. I made this request at least ten times, LAPD finally contending that if they did plant an undercover agent in the family, he would have to commit crimes, for example, smoke marijuana. For there to be a crime, I noted, there had to be criminal intent. If he was doing it as part of his job, to catch a criminal, it wouldn't be a crime. When they balked at this, I said he didn't even have to be a police officer. If they had paid informers in narcotics, bookmaking, even prostitution cases, surely they could manage to come up with one in one of the biggest murder cases of our time. No dice. Finally, I turned to the DA's Bureau of Investigation, and they found a young man willing to accept the assignment. I admired his determination, but he was clean-cut, with short hair, and looked as straight as they come. As desperate as we were for information, I couldn't send him into that den of killers. Once they stopped laughing, they'd chop him to pieces. Eventually, I had to abandon the idea. We remained in the dark as to what the family was planning to do next. April 1970 The words pig, death to pigs, rise, and helter-skelter contain only 13 different letters. Handwriting experts told me it would be extremely difficult, if not impossible, to match the bloody words found at the Tate and LaBianca residences with printing exemplars obtained from the defendants. It wasn't only the small number of letters involved. The words were printed, not written. The letters were oversized. In both cases, unusual writing implements had been used. A towel at the Tate residence, probably a rolled-up piece of paper at the LaBianca's. And all but the two words found on the refrigerator door at the latter residence had been printed high up on the walls, the person responsible having to stretch unnaturally high to make them. As evidence, they appeared worthless. However, thinking about the problem, I came up with an idea which, if successful, could convert them into very meaningful evidence. It was a gamble, but if it worked, it would be worth it. We knew who had printed the words. Susan Atkins had testified before the grand jury that she had printed the word pig on the front door of the Tate House, while Susan had told me, when I interviewed her, that Patricia Krenwinkle had admitted printing the words at the LaBiancas. Though Susan's grand jury testimony and her statements to me were inadmissible because of the deal we had made with her, she had confessed the printing at Tate to Ronnie Howard, so we had her on that but we had nothing admissible on Krenwinkle. The Fifth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution provides that no person shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself. The U.S. Supreme Court has ruled that this is limited to verbal utterances and that a defendant cannot refuse to give physical evidence of himself, like appearing in a lineup, submitting to a breath analysis test for drunken driving, giving fingerprint and handwriting exemplars, hair samples, and so on. 
After researching the law, I drew up very explicit instructions for Captain Carpenter at Sybil Brand, stating exactly how to request the printing exemplars of Susan Atkins, Patricia Krenwinkel, and Leslie Van Houten. Each was to be informed, 1. You have no constitutional right to refuse. 2. You have no constitutional right to have your attorney present. 3. Your constitutional right to remain silent does not include the right to withhold printing exemplars. And 4. If you submit to this process, this can be used as evidence by the prosecution in your case. Captain Carpenter assigned Senior Deputy H. L. Mouse to obtain the exemplars. According to my instructions, she informed Susan Atkins of the above, then told her, The word pig was printed in blood at the Tate residence. We want you to print the word pig. Susan, without complaint, printed the exemplar as requested. Leslie Van Houten and Patricia Krenwinkel were brought in individually and given similar instructions concerning their rights. However, each was told, orally, the words helter-skelter, death to pigs, and rise were printed in blood at the LaBianca residence. We want you to print those words. In my memo to Captain Carpenter, there was one additional instruction for the deputy. Do not write any of this for them. I wanted to see if Krenwinkel misspelled helter as H-E-A-L-T-E-R, as she had on the refrigerator door. Leslie Van Houten printed the exemplar. Patricia Krenwinkel refused. We'd won the gamble. We could now use her refusal in the trial as circumstantial evidence of her guilt. As evidence, this was doubly important since, before this, I'd had absolutely no independent evidence corroborating Linda Kasabian's testimony regarding Patricia Krenwinkel's involvement in the LaBianca murders. And without corroborating evidence, as a matter of law, Krenwinkel would have been entitled to an acquittal on those charges. Though we'd won that gamble, Krenwinkel herself could just as easily have emerged the winner. Leslie could have refused to make an exemplar also, which would have diluted the force of Katie's refusal. Or Katie could have made the exemplar, the handwriting experts then failing to match her printing with that found at the LaBiancas. We were less lucky when it came to putting the Tate-Sebring rope and the wire cutters in Manson's possession before the murders, evidence I was counting on to provide the necessary corroboration of Linda Kasabian's testimony as to Manson. We knew from DiCarlo, who had been present, that Manson had purchased about 200 feet of the white three-strand nylon rope at the Jack Frost Surplus store in Santa Monica in June 1969. However, when Tate detectives finally interviewed Frost, three and a half months after my initial request, he was unable to find a purchase order for the rope. Nor could he definitely state that this was the same rope he had stocked. Note. Frost recalled stocking some three-strand white nylon rope, but he believed it was one-half inch thick. The Tate-Sebring rope was five-eighths of an inch thick. While it was possible that Frost had been mistaken, or the rope had been mislabeled, the defense could argue that it simply wasn't the same rope. End of note. An attempt to identify the manufacturer, then trace it back to Frost, also failed. Frost usually picked up his stock in odd lots from jobbers or through auctions, rather than directly from the manufacturer. Just as these were blind alleys, so was one other, literally. According to DiCarlo, Manson had given part of the rope to George Spahn for use on the ranch. Spahn's near blindness, however, eliminated him as a witness. It was then I thought of Ruby Pearl. For some reason, 
Though the police had visited Spawn Ranch numerous times, none of the officers had interviewed Ruby, George's ranch manager. I found her a fund of valuable information. Examining the Tate Sebring rope, she not only said it looked like the rope Manson had, she also supplied numerous examples of Manson's domination. Recalled seeing the 22 Longhorn at the ranch many times. Identified the leather thong found at the LaBiancas as similar to the ones Manson often wore, and told me that, prior to the arrival of the family at Spawn, she had never seen any buck knives there, but that in the summer of 1969, suddenly it seemed everyone had one. While disappointed that we couldn't obtain documented proof of the rope sale, I was pleased with Ruby. Being an experienced horse wrangler, as well as a tough, gallant lady who showed not the slightest fear of the family, her testimony would carry weight. Note. When Manson was brought to Los Angeles from Independence, Ruby Pearl visited him at the jail. I only came here for one reason, Charlie, she told him. I want to know where Shorty was buried. Manson, unwilling to meet her gaze, looked down at the floor and remarked, Ask the Black Panthers. Charlie, you know the Black Panthers have never been up to the ranch, she responded, turning her back on him and walking out. End of note. There was a fine streak of stubborn authority about her. Another find was Randy Starr, whom I interviewed the same day as Ruby. A sometime movie stuntman who specialized in fake hangings, Starr said the Tate Sebring rope was identical to a rope he'd once used to help Manson pull a vehicle out of the creek bed. Starr told me Manson always kept the rope behind the seat in his dune buggy. Even more important was Randy Starr's positive identification of the 22 Longhorn revolver, for Starr had once owned the gun and had given it to Manson. Note, the gun, serial number 1902708, had been among a number of weapons taken from the archery headquarters in El Monte, California, during a burglary on the night of March 12, 1969. According to Starr, he obtained it in a trade with a man known only as Ron. Manson was always borrowing the gun for target practice, and Randy finally gave it to him in trade for a truck that had belonged to Danny DiCarlo. End of note. One question remained unanswered. Why, on the night of the Tate murders, did the killers bring along 43 feet 8 inches of rope? To tie up the victims? Manson accomplished this the next night with a single leather thong. I obtained a glimpse of a possible answer during one of my interviews with DiCarlo. According to Danny, in late July of 1969, Manson had told him that the establishment pigs ought to have their throats cut and be hung up by their feet. This would really throw the fear into people, Manson said. The logical inference, I felt, was that the killers brought along the rope intending to hang their victims. It was only a guess, but I suspected it was correct. The wire cutters presented their own problems. Linda Kasabian said the pair found in Manson's dune buggy looked like the pair that had been in the car that night. Fine. Joe Granato of SID used them to test cut a section of the Tate telephone wire and concluded that the two cuts were the same. Great. But then, Officer Dwayne Wolfer, considered LAPD's foremost expert on physical evidence, made some test cuts also, and he concluded that these wire cutters couldn't have been the ones used. Not about to give up, I asked Wolfer if the tautness of the wire could have been a factor. Possibly, he said. I then asked Wolfer to accompany telephone company representatives to 10,050 Shallow Drive and make another cut. Only this time I wanted him to sever the wire while it was strung up and tight, 
the way it was the night of the murders. Wolfer eventually made the test, but his opinion remained unchanged. The actual cut made on the night of the murders and the test cut did not match. While it was possible that the cutting edge of the wire cutters could have been damaged subsequent to the Tate murders, Wolfer's tests literally severed this important link between Manson and the Tate evidence. When I'd accompanied LAPD to Spawn Ranch on November 19, 1969, we'd found a number of 22 caliber bullets and shell casings. Because of the terrific windstorm and the necessity of following up other leads, our search had been cursory, however, and I'd asked Sergeant Lee to return and conduct a more thorough search. The much repeated request became even more important when, on December 16, 1969, LAPD obtained the 22 caliber Longhorn revolver. Yet it was not until April 15, 1970, that Lee returned to Spawn. Again concentrating on the gully area some 200 feet behind George Spawn's residence, Lee found 23 more 22 caliber shell casings. Since 22 had been found during the first search, this brought the total to 45. Note. None of the 22 caliber bullets recovered during the two searches matched up with the bullets found at the murder scene or those test fired from the weapon. End of note. It was not until after the latter search that Lee ran comparison tests on any of the spawn shell casings. When he finally did, he concluded that 15 of the 45 had been fired from the Tate murder gun. Note. Lee determined this by comparing the rim marks on the spawn shell casings with 1. the rim marks on the shell casings found in the cylinder of the weapon, 2. the rim marks of shell casings test fired from the gun, and 3. the firing pin of the gun. End of note. Belatedly, but fortunately in time for the trial, we now had scientific evidence linking the gun to spawn ranch. Only one thing would have made me happier if Lee had returned and found the rest of the shell casings before the gun was discovered. As it was, the defense could contend that during the four and a half months between the two searches, the police and or prosecution had planted this evidence. For months, one item of physical evidence had especially worried me. The pair of eyeglasses found near the trunks in the living room at the Tate murder scene. The natural conclusion was that if they didn't belong to any of the victims, they must belong to one of the killers. Yet neither Watson, Atkins, Krenwinkel, nor Kasabian wore glasses. I anticipated that the defense would lean heavily on this, arguing that since they didn't belong to any of the defendants, at least one of the killers was still at large. From there it was only a short step to the conclusion that maybe the wrong people were on trial. This posed an extremely serious problem for the prosecution. That problem, though not the mystery itself, vanished when I talked to Roseanne Walker. Since Susan Atkins had confessed the murders to both Virginia Graham and Ronnie Howard, it occurred to me that she might have made incriminating statements to others. So I asked LAPD to locate any girls Atkins had been particularly close to at Sybil Brand. One former inmate who agreed to talk to me, though she wasn't very happy about it, was Roseanne Walker, a pathetic, heavy-set black girl who had been sent to Sybil Brand on five drug-related charges Roseanne had been a sort of walking commissary, selling candy, cigarettes, and makeup to the other inmates. Not until the fifth or sixth time I interviewed her did Roseanne recall a conversation which, though it seemed unimportant to her, I found very significant. Susan and Roseanne were listening to the radio one day when the newscaster began talking about a pair of eyeglasses LAPD had found at the Tate murder scene. 
Amused, Susan remarked, Wouldn't it be too much if they arrested the person the glasses belonged to, when the only thing he was guilty of was losing his glasses? Roseanne replied that maybe the glasses did belong to the killer. Susan said, That ain't the way it went down. Susan's remark clearly indicated that the glasses did not belong to the killers. Other problems remained. One of the biggest concerned Linda Kasabian's escape from Spawn Ranch. Linda told me that she decided to flee after the night of the LaBianca murders. However, Manson sent her to the waterfall area later that day, August 11th, and she was afraid to leave that night because of the armed guards he had posted. Early the next morning, August 12th, Manson sought her out. She was to put on a straight dress, then take a message to Mary Bruner and Sandra Good at Sybil Brand, as well as Bobby Beausoleil at the county jail. The message? Say nothing. Everything's all right. After borrowing a car from Dave Hannum, a new ranch hand at Spawn, Linda went to Sybil Brand, but learned that Bruner and Good were in court. At the county jail, her identification was rejected, and she wasn't allowed to see Beausoleil. When she returned to the ranch and told Manson she had been unsuccessful, he told her to try again the next day. Linda saw her chance. That night, she packed a shoulder bag with some clothing and Tanya's diapers and pins and hid it in the parachute room. Early the next morning, August 13th, she again borrowed Hannum's car. On going to get the bag, however, she found Manson and Stephanie Schramm sleeping in the room. Deciding to forget the bag, she went to get Tanya, but discovered that the children had been moved to the waterfall area. There was no way she could go there to get Tanya, she said, without having to explain her actions. So she left the ranch without her. Instead of going to Los Angeles, as instructed, Linda began driving to Taos, New Mexico, where her husband was now living. Hannum's car broke down outside Albuquerque. When she tried to have it repaired, using a credit card Bruce Davis had earlier given her for gas, the gas station owner checked and learned the card was no longer valid. Linda then wrote a letter to Hannum, enclosing the keys, telling him where he could find the car, and apologizing. She then hitchhiked the rest of the way. Susan Atkins apparently intercepted the letter, as she gave Hannum the information and keys, but didn't show him the rest of the letter. Understandably unhappy, Hannum took a bus to Albuquerque to reclaim the vehicle. Linda found her husband living with another girl in a commune at Lorien, outside Taos. She told him about the Tate murders, the events of the second night, and leaving Tanya at Spawn. Bob Kasabian suggested they return to Spawn together and get Tanya, but Linda was afraid Manson would kill them all. Kasabian said he wanted to think about it for a few days. Unwilling to wait, Linda hitchhiked into Taos and went to see Joe Sage. Sage, who had a reputation for helping people, was a rather colorful character. When the 51-year-old Zen monk wasn't busy running his macrobiotic church, he was campaigning for President of the United States on an anti-pollution ticket. Linda asked Sage for enough money to return to Los Angeles to get her little girl. Sage, however, began questioning Linda, and eventually she told him and a youth named Jeffrey Jacobs about the murders. Not believing Linda's tale, Sage placed a call to Spawn Ranch, talking first to an unidentified girl, then to Manson himself. Sage asked Manson, whose reaction can only be imagined, if Linda's story was true. Manson told him Linda had flipped out, that her ego was not ready to die, and so she had run away. Linda did not talk to Charlie, but she did talk to one of the other girls, 
she believed, but was not sure, it was Squeaky, who told her about the August 16th raid. The authorities had kept Tanya, she learned. She was now in a foster home. Linda also spoke to Patricia Krenwinkel, Katie saying something to the effect, you just couldn't wait to open your big mouth, could you? Linda subsequently called the Malibu police station and learned the name of the social worker who was handling Tanya's case. Note. On calling the social worker, Linda learned that another girl, posing as Tanya's mother, had attempted to reclaim Tanya a short time before. Though I couldn't prove it, I suspected that Manson had sent one of his girls to get Tanya, as insurance that Linda wouldn't talk. End of note. Sage gave Linda enough money for round-trip airfare, as well as the name of a Los Angeles attorney, Gary Fleischman, who he felt might be able to help her reclaim Tanya. When Linda saw Fleischman, she did not tell him about the murders, only that she had left the ranch to look for her husband. Eventually, after a court hearing, the mother and daughter were reunited and flew back to Taos. Bob was still involved with the other girl, however, and Linda took Tanya and hitchhiked first to Miami, Florida, where her father was living, then to her mother's home in Concord, New Hampshire. It was here on December 2, 1969, when the news broke that she was being sought in connection with the Tate murders, that Linda turned herself in to the local police. Waiving extradition, she was returned to Los Angeles the next day. I asked Linda, why, between the time you reclaimed Tanya and the date of your arrest in December, didn't you contact the police and tell them what you knew about the murders? She was afraid of Manson, Linda said, afraid that he might find and kill both her and Tanya. Also, she was pregnant and didn't want to go through this ordeal until after the baby was born. There were, of course, other reasons, the most important being her distrust of the police. In the drug-oriented world she inhabited, police were considered neither friends nor allies. I felt that this explanation, if properly argued, would satisfy the jury. An even bigger question remained. How could you leave your daughter in that den of killers? I was concerned not only with the jury's reaction to this, but also with the use to which the defense could put it. That Linda had left Tanya with Manson and the others at Spawn Ranch could be circumstantial evidence that she did not really believe them to be killers, clearly contradicting the main thrust of her testimony. Therefore, both the question and her answer became extremely important. Linda replied that she felt Tanya would be safe there, just so long as she did not go to the police. Something within me told me that Tanya would be all right, Linda said, that nothing would happen to her, and that now was the time to leave. I knew I would come back and get her. I was just confident that she would be all right. Would the jury accept this? I didn't know. This was among my many concerns as the trial date drew ever closer. When contacted by Lieutenant Helder and Sergeant Gutierrez, both Sage and Jacobs verified Linda's story. I was unable to use either as a witness, however, most of their testimony being inadmissible hearsay. Ranch hand David Hannum said he had begun work at Spawn on August 12th and that Linda had borrowed his car that same day, as well as the next. And a check of the jail records verified that Bruner and Good had been in court on August 12th. The various interviews yielded unexpected bonuses. Hannum said that once, when he killed a rattlesnake, Manson had angrily castigated him, yelling, How would you like it if I chopped your head off? He then added, I'd rather kill people than animals. 
At the same time I interviewed Linda's husband, Robert Kasabian, I also talked to Charles Melton, the hippie philanthropist from whom Linda had stolen the $5,000. Melton said that in April 1969, before Linda ever met the family, he had gone to Spawn Ranch to see Paul Watkins. While there, Melton had met Tex, who, admiring Melton's beard, commented, Maybe Charlie will let me grow a beard someday. It would be difficult to find a better example of Manson's domination of Watson. These were pluses. There were minuses. And they were big ones. To prove to the jury that Linda's account of these two nights of murder wasn't fabricated out of whole cloth, I desperately needed some third person to corroborate any part of her story. Rudolph Weber provided that corroboration for the first night. But for the second night, I had no one. I gave LAPD this all-important priority assignment. Find the two officers who spoke to Manson and Linda on the beach, the man whose door Linda knocked on that night, the man and woman at the house next to the Malibu feed bin, or any of the drivers who gave them rides. I'd like to have had all these people, but if they could turn up even one, I'd be happy. Linda had located the spot where the two police officers stopped and questioned them. It was near Manhattan Beach. But Los Angeles being the megalopolis that it is, it turned out to be an area where there were overlapping jurisdictions, not one, but three separate law enforcement agencies patrolling it. And a check of all three failed to turn up anyone who could recall such an incident. We had better luck when it came to locating the actor Linda had mentioned. LaBianca detectives Sartucci and Nielsen found him still living in apartment 501, 1101 Oceanfront Walk, Venice. Not Israeli, but Lebanese, his name was Saladin Nader, age 39. Unemployed since starring in Broken Wings, the movie about the poet Khalil Gibran, he remembered picking up the two hitchhiking girls in early August 1969. He described both Sandy and Linda accurately, including the fact that Sandy was noticeably pregnant, picked out photos of each, and related essentially the same story Linda had told me, neglecting to mention only that he and Linda had gone to bed. After questioning Nader, the investigating officers, according to their report, explained to subject the purpose of the interview, and he displayed amazement that such sweet and sociable young ladies would attempt to inflict any harm upon his body after he assisted them to the best of his ability. Though their stories jived, Nodder was only partial support for Linda's testimony, as, fortunately for him and thanks to Linda, he did not encounter the group that night. One floor down was the apartment of the man on whose door Linda had knocked. Linda had pointed out the door, 403, for us, and I'd asked Gutierrez and Patchett to try to locate the man, hopeful he'd recall the incident. When I got their report, it was on the tenant of 404. Returning, they learned from the landlady that 403 had been vacant during August 1969. It was possible some transient may have been staying there, she said. It wouldn't have been the first time. But beyond that, we drew a blank. According to the rental manager of 3921 Topanga Canyon Boulevard, the house next to the Malibu feed bin where Linda said she, Sadie, and Clem had stopped just before dawn, a group of hippies had moved into the unrented building about nine months ago. There had been, he said, as many as 50 different persons living there, but he didn't know any of them. Sartucci and Nielsen, however, did manage to locate two young girls who had lived there from about February to October 1969. Both were friends of Susan Atkins, and both recalled meeting Linda Kasabian. One recalled that once Susan, another girl, and a male had visited them. She remembered the incident, 
though not the date, the time, or the other persons present, because she was on acid and the trio appeared evil. Both girls admitted that during this period they were stoned so much of the time their recollections were hazy. As witnesses, they would be next to useless. Nor was LAPD able to locate any of the drivers who had picked up the hitchhikers that night. The LaBianca detectives handled all these investigations. Going over their reports, I was convinced they had done everything possible to run down the leads. But we were left with the fact that of the six to eight persons who could have corroborated Linda Kasabian's story of the events of that second night, we hadn't found even one. I anticipated that the defense would lean heavily on this. Any defendant may file at least one affidavit of prejudice against a judge and have him removed from the case. It isn't even necessary to give a reason for such a challenge. On April 13th, Manson filed such an affidavit against Judge William Keene. Judge Keene accepted Manson's challenge, and the case was reassigned to Judge Charles H. Older. Though more affidavits were expected, each defendant was allowed one. The defense attorneys, after a brief huddle, decided to accept Older. I'd never tried a case before him. By reputation, the 52-year-old jurist was a no-nonsense judge. A World War II fighter pilot who had served with the Flying Tigers, he had been appointed to the bench by Governor Ronald Reagan in 1967. This would be his biggest case to date. The trial date was set for June 15th. Because of the delay, we were again hopeful that Watson might be tried with the others, but that hope was quickly dashed when Watson's attorney requested, and received, still another postponement in the extradition proceedings. The retrial of Beausoleil for the Hinman murder had begun in late March. Chief witness for the prosecution was Mary Bruner, first member of the Manson family, who testified that she had witnessed Beausoleil stab Hinman to death. Bruner was given complete immunity in exchange for her testimony. Claiming that he had only been a reluctant witness, Beausoleil himself took the stand and fingered Manson as Hinman's murderer. The jury believed Bruner. In Beausoleil's first trial, the case against him had been so weak that our office hadn't asked for the death penalty. This time, Prosecutor Burton Katz did, and got it. Two things concerned me about the trial. One was that Mary Bruner did everything she could to absolve Manson, making me wonder just how far Sadie, Katie, and Leslie would be willing to go to save Charlie. And the other, that Danny DiCarlo hedged on many of his previous statements to LAPD. I was worried that Danny might be getting ready to split, all too aware that he had little reason to stick around. Though the motorcycle engine theft charge had been dropped in return for his testimony in the Hinman case, we had made no deal with him on Tate LaBianca. Moreover, although he had a good chance of sharing the $25,000 reward, it was not necessary that he testify to obtain it. DiCarlo and Bruner did testify that same month before the grand jury, which brought additional indictments against Charles Manson, Susan Atkins, and Bruce Davis on the Hinman murder. But testifying before a grand jury in secret and having to face Manson himself in court were two different things. Nor could I blame Danny for being apprehensive. As soon as the grand jury indictments were made public, Davis, who had been living with the family at Spawn, vanished. May 1970 In early May, Crockett, Poston, and Watkins encountered Clem, Gypsy, and a youth named Kevin, one of the newer family members, in Shoshone. Clem told Watkins, 
Charlie says that when he gets out, you all had better not be around the desert. From a source at Spawn Ranch, we learn that family members there appeared to be preparing for some activity. The Manson girls were interviewed so often that they were on a first-name basis with many of the reporters. Inadvertently, several times they implied that Charlie would be out soon. Perhaps significantly, the girls said nothing about his being acquitted or released. It was obvious that something was being planned. On May 11th, Susan Atkins filed a declaration repudiating her grand jury testimony. Both Manson and Atkins used the declaration as basis for habeas corpus motions, which were subsequently denied. Aaron and I conferred with District Attorney Younger. Sadie couldn't have it both ways. Either she had told the complete truth before the grand jury, and according to our agreement, we would not seek a first-degree murder conviction against her, or according to her recent declaration, she recanted her testimony, in which case the agreement was breached. My personal opinion was that Susan Atkins had testified substantially truthfully before the grand jury, with these exceptions. Her omission of the three other murder attempts the second night, her hedging on whether she had stabbed Wojciech Fikowski, which she admitted to me when I interviewed her, and my instinctive but strong feeling, corroborated by her confessions to Virginia Graham and Ronnie Howard, that she had lied when she testified that she had not stabbed Sharon Tate. Under Atkins's agreement with our office, substantially wasn't good enough. She had to tell the complete truth. With her declaration, however, the issue was closed. On the basis of her repudiation, Aaron and I asked Younger's permission to seek the death penalty against Susan Atkins, as well as the other defendants. He granted it. Sadie's about-face was not unexpected. Another change, however, caught almost everyone off guard. In court to petition for a new trial, Bobby Beausoleil produced an affidavit signed by Mary Bruner stating that her testimony in his trial was not true and that she had lied when she said Beausoleil stabbed Hinman to death. Although obviously stunned, Prosecutor Bert Katz argued that the other evidence in the trial was sufficient to convict Beausoleil. Investigating further, Bert learned that a few days before she was due to testify, Mary Bruner had been visited by Squeaky and Brenda at her parents' home in Wisconsin. She was again visited by Squeaky, this time accompanied by Sandy, two days before she signed the affidavit. Bert charged that the girls, representing Manson, had coerced Mary Bruner into repudiating her testimony. Called to the stand, Mary Bruner first denied this. Then, after conferring with counsel, did another about-face and repudiated her repudiation. Her testimony in the trial was true, she said. Still later, she again reversed herself. Eventually, Beausoleil's motion for a new trial was denied, and he was sent to San Quentin's death row to wait out his appeal. The district attorney's office was left with a perplexing legal dilemma, however. After her testimony in the Beausoleil trial, the court had granted Mary Bruner complete immunity for her part in the Hinman murder. Except for the possibility that she might be tried for perjury, it looked as if Mary Bruner had managed to beat the rap. Indicted on the Hinman murder, Manson appeared before Judge Dell to request that he be allowed to represent himself. When Dell denied the motion, Manson requested that Irving Canarak and Day Shin be made his attorneys. Judge Dell ruled there would be a clear conflict of interest if Shin represented both Manson and Susan Atkins. This left Canarak. Commenting, I think we are well aware of Mr. Canarak and his record. Manson told Judge Dell, 
I do not wish to hire this man as my attorney, but you leave me no alternative. I understand what I am doing. Believe me, I understand what I am doing. This is the worst man in town I could pick, and you are pushing him on me. If Dell would permit him to represent himself, Manson said, then he would forget about having Canarac. I am not going to be blackmailed, Dell told Manson. Manson, then I will take it up to the bigger father. Judge Dell said that Manson could, of course, appeal his decision. However, since Manson was already appealing the revocation of his pro-per status in the Tate-LaBianca proceedings, Dell was willing to postpone a final decision until that writ was either accepted or rejected. Aaron and I discussed the possible Canarac substitution with District Attorney Younger. In view of his record, with Canarac on the case, the prospect that the trial might last two or more years was very real. Younger asked us if there was any legal basis for removing an attorney from a case. We told him we knew of none. However, I'd researched the law. Younger asked me to prepare an argument for the court and suggested that it stress Canarac's incompetency. From what I had learned of Canarac, I did not feel that he was incompetent. His obstructionism, I felt, was the major issue. I had no trouble obtaining evidence of this. From judges, deputy DAs, even jurors, I heard examples of his dilatory obstructionist tactics. One deputy DA, on learning that he had to oppose Canarac a second time, quit the office. Life was too short for that, he said. Anticipating that Manson would ask to substitute Canarac on Tate LaBianca, as well as Hinman, I began preparing my argument. At the same time, I had another idea which just might make that argument unnecessary. Maybe, with the right bait, I could persuade Manson to dump Canarac himself. On May 25th, I was going through LAPD's tubs on the LaBianca case when I noticed, standing against the wall, a wooden door. On it was a multicolored mural. The lines from a nursery rhyme, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, all good children go to heaven. And in large letters, the words, Helter Skelter is coming down fast. Stunned, I asked Gutierrez, where in the hell did you get that? Spawn Ranch. When? He checked the yellow property envelope affixed to the door. November 25th, 1969. You mean for five months, while I've been desperately trying to link the killers with Helter Skelter, you've had this door with those very words on it? The same bloody words that were found at the LaBianca residence? Gutierrez admitted they had. The door, it turned out, had been found on a cabinet in Juan Flynn's trailer. It had been considered so unimportant that to date no one had even bothered to book it into evidence. Gutierrez did so the next day. Again, as I had on numerous other occasions, I told the detectives that I wanted to interview Juan Flynn. I had no idea how much Flynn actually knew. Along with Brooks Poston and Paul Watkins, the Panamanian cowboy had been interviewed by the authors of a quickie paperback that appeared even before the trial, but he obviously held back a great deal, since many of the incidents I'd learned about from Brooks and Paul were not included. June 1st to 14th, 1970. Two weeks before the start of the Tate-LaBianca trial, Manson requested, and obtained, the substitution of Irving Canarac for Ronald Hughes. I asked for a conference in chambers. Once there, I pointed out that the legal issues in this case were tremendously complex.
Even with attorneys known to handle matters expeditiously, the trial could last four or more months. But, I added, it is my frank opinion that if Mr. Canarak is permitted to represent Mr. Manson, the case could last several years. I noted, it is common knowledge among the legal profession that Mr. Canarak is a professional obstructionist. I believe the man is conscientious. I believe he is sincere. However, I continued, there is no way for the court to stop Mr. Canarak. Even holding him in contempt will not stop this man, because he will gladly spend the night in jail. Rather than have the trial become a burlesque on justice, I had an alternative suggestion, I told the court. It was one I had considered for a long time, and though I had discussed it with Aaron, I knew it would come as a surprise to everyone else. As a possible solution, the prosecution has no objection to permitting Mr. Manson to represent himself, as he has desired throughout, and let him have an attorney of his choice to assist him. Manson looked at me with a startled expression. This was probably the last thing he had expected to hear from the prosecution. Although I was hoping that, given this opportunity, Manson would dump Canarac, I was sincere in making the suggestion. From the start, Manson had maintained that only he could speak for himself. He'd strongly implied that, failing in this, he'd make trouble. And there was no question in my mind that this was his reason for choosing Canarac. Two, even though lacking formal education, Manson was bright. Having dominated them in the past, he could cross-examine such prosecution witnesses as Linda Kasabian, Brooks Poston, and other ex-family members with probably more effectiveness than many straight attorneys. And to assist him in legal matters, he would have not only his own lawyer, but three other experienced attorneys alongside him at the council table. Also, looking far ahead, I was concerned that the denial of Manson's request to defend himself might be an issue on appeal. Aaron then quoted Manson's own statement, made in Judge Dell's court, that Canarek was the worst man he could pick. Canarek objected so strongly to the proceedings that Judge Older remarked, Now the things that Mr. Stovitz and Mr. Bugliosi said about you, Mr. Canarek, while they might appear to be unfair, there certainly is, as a matter of common knowledge among the judges in this court, a good deal of truth in what they say. I am not impugning your personal motives, but you do have a reputation for taking an inordinately long time to do what someone else can do in a much shorter period. However, Holder said, the only reason he was considering the matter was that he wanted to be absolutely sure Manson wanted Canarac as his attorney. His remarks before Judge Dell had injected some doubt on that point. In one respect, Manson replied, Canarac would be the best attorney in town. In a lot of respects, he would be the worst attorney that I could take. But, Manson continued, I don't think there is any attorney that can represent me as well as I can myself. I am smart enough to realize that I am not an attorney, and I will sit behind these men and I won't make a scene. I am not here to make trouble. There is a lot involved here that does not meet the eye. A person is born, he goes to school, he learns what he is told in a book, and he lives his life by what he knows. The only thing he knows is what someone has told him, he is educated. He does what an educated person does. But go out of this realm, you go into a generation gap, a free love society. You get into insane drugs or smoking marijuana. And in this other world, the reality differs, Manson noted. Here, experience alone is the teacher. Here, you discover, there is no way that you can know the taste of water unless you drink it, or unless it has rained on you, or unless you jump in the river. 
the court. All I want to do, Mr. Manson, is find out if you are happy with Mr. Canarak or if you have second thoughts. Manson, I thought I explained that. I would not be happy with anyone but myself. No man can represent me. I asked the court's permission to question Manson. Though Canarak objected, Charlie was agreeable. I asked him if he had consulted the other defense attorneys as to whether he should be represented by Canarak. I had heard the two of them, Fitzgerald and Reiner, were very unhappy about Canarak's entry into the case. Manson, I don't ask other men's opinions. I have my own. Bugliosi, do you feel Mr. Canarak can give you a fair trial? Manson, I do. I feel you can give me a fair trial. You showed me your fairness already. Bugliosi, I will give you a fair trial, Charlie, but I am out to convict you. Manson, what's a fair trial? Bugliosi, that's when the truth comes out. Declaring it would be a miscarriage of justice to permit you to represent yourself in a case having the complications this case has, Older again asked Manson, Are you affirming Mr. Canarak as your attorney? I am forced into a situation, Manson replied. My second alternative is to cause you as much trouble as possible. A little over a week later, we'd get our first sample of what he had in mind. On being taken to Patton State Hospital in January, 16-year-old Diane Lake had been labeled schizophrenic by a staff psychologist. Though I knew the defense would probably try to use this to discredit her testimony, I wasn't too worried, since psychologists are not doctors and are not qualified to make medical diagnoses. The staff psychiatrists, who were doctors, said her problems were emotional, not mental. Behavioral disorders of adolescence plus possible drug dependence. They also felt she had made excellent progress and were now sure she would be able to testify at the trial. With Sergeant Patchett, I visited Patton in early June. The little ragamuffin I'd first seen in the jail in Independence now looked like any teenager. She was getting straight A's in school, Diane told me proudly. Not until getting away from the family, she said, had she realized how good life was. Now, looking back, she felt she had been in a pit of death. In interviewing Diane, I learned a number of things which hadn't come out in her earlier interviews. While they were in the desert together, at Willow Springs, Patricia Krenwinkel had told her that she had dragged Abigail Folger from the bedroom into the living room of the Tate residence. And Leslie Van Houten, after admitting to her that she had stabbed someone, had commented that at first she had been reluctant to do so, but then she discovered the more you stabbed, the more fun it was. Diane also said that on numerous occasions, in June, July, and August of 1969, Manson had told the family, we have to be willing to kill pigs in order to help the black man start helter-skelter. And several times, she believed it was in July, about a month before the Tate-LaBianca murders, Manson had also told them, I'm going to have to start the revolution. The interview lasted several hours. One thing Diane said struck me as very sad. Squeaky, Sandy, and the other girls in the family could never love anyone else, not even their parents, she told me. Why not, I asked. Because, she replied, they've given all their love to Charlie. I left Patton with the very strong feeling that Diane Lake had now escaped that fate. 
In court on June 9th, Manson suddenly turned in his chair so his back was to the judge. The court has shown me no respect, Manson said, so I am going to show the court the same thing. When Manson refused to face the court, Judge Older, after several warnings, had the bailiffs remove him from the courtroom. He was taken to the lockup adjoining the court, which was equipped with a speaker system so he could hear, though not participate in, the proceedings. Although Older gave him several opportunities to return, on the understanding that he would agree to conduct himself properly, Manson rejected them. We had not given up in our attempt to have Irving Canarac taken off the case. On June 10th, I filed a motion requesting an evidentiary hearing on the Canarac Hughes substitution. The thrust of my motion? Manson did not have the constitutional right to have Canarac as his lawyer. The right of counsel of one's choice, I argued, was not an unlimited, unqualified, absolute right. This right was given to defendants seeking a favorable verdict for themselves. It was obvious from Manson's statements that he wasn't picking Canarac for this reason, but rather to subvert, thwart, and paralyze the due and proper administration of justice. And we submit that he cannot use the right to counsel of his choice in such an ignoble fashion. Canarac responded that he would be glad to let the court read the transcripts of his cases to see if he used dilatory tactics. I thought I saw Judge Older wince at this, but I wasn't sure. Older's somber expression rarely changed. It was very difficult to guess what he was thinking. In researching Canarac's record, I had learned something which was not part of my hour-long argument. For all his filibustering, disconnected ramblings, senseless motions, and wild, irresponsible charges, Irving Canarac frequently scored points. He noted, for example, that our office hadn't tried to challenge Ronald Hughes, who had never tried a case before, on the grounds that his representation might hurt Manson. And in conclusion, Canarac, very much to the point, asked that the prosecution's motion be struck on the basis there is no basis for it in law. I'd frankly admitted this in my argument, but had noted that this was a situation so aggravated that it literally cries out to the court to take a pioneer stand. Judge Older disagreed. My motion for an evidentiary hearing was denied. Although District Attorney Younger had Older's ruling appealed to the California Supreme Court, it was let stand. Though we had tried to save the taxpayers perhaps several million dollars and everyone involved a great deal of time and unnecessary effort, Irving Canarac would remain on the Tate-LaBianca cases just as long as Charles Manson wanted him. If your honor does not respect Mr. Manson's rights, you need not respect mine, Susan Atkins said, rising and turning her back to the court. Leslie Van Houten and Patricia Krenwinkel followed suit. When Older suggested that the defense attorneys confer with their clients, Fitzgerald admitted that would do little good, because there is a minimum of client control in this case. After several warnings, Older had the girls removed to one of the vacant jury rooms upstairs, and a speaker was placed there also. I had mixed feelings about all this. If the girls parroted Manson's actions during the trial, it would be additional evidence of his domination. However, their removal from the courtroom might also be considered reversible error on appeal, and the last thing we wanted was to have to try the whole case over again. Under the current law, Allen v. Illinois, defendants can be removed from a courtroom if they engage in disruptive conduct. Another case, however, People v. Zamora, raised a subtler point. In that case, in which there were 22 defendants, the counsel tables were so situated that it was extremely difficult for the attorneys to communicate with their clients while court was in session. 
This led to a reversal by the appellate court, which ruled that the right of counsel implies the right of consultation between a defendant and his lawyer during the trial. I mentioned this to Older, suggesting that some type of telephonic communication be set up. Older felt it unnecessary. After the noon recess, the girls professed a willingness to return. Speaking for all three, Patricia Krenwinkel told Older, we should be able to be present at this play here. To Krenwinkel, it was just that, a play. Remaining standing, she turned her back to the bench. Atkins and Van Houten immediately mimicked her. Older again ordered all three removed. Bringing all the defendants back into court the next day, Judge Older warned them that if they persisted in their conduct before a jury, they could badly jeopardize their cases. So I would ask you to seriously reconsider what you were doing, because I think you were hurting yourselves. After again attempting to revert to pro-per status, Manson said, Okay, then you leave me nothing. You can kill me now. Still standing, Manson bowed his head and stretched out his arms in a crucifixion pose. The girls quickly emulated him. When the deputies attempted to seat them, all resisted, Manson ending up scuffling with the deputy on the floor. Two deputies bodily carried him to the lockup, while the matrons took the girls out. Canarac, I would ask medical assistance for Mr. Manson, Your Honor. The court, I will ask the bailiff to check and see if he needs any. If he does, he will get it. He didn't. Once in the lockup, out of sight of the press and spectators, Manson became an entirely different person. He donned another mask, that of the complacent prisoner. Having spent more than half his life in reformatories and prisons, he knew the role all too well. Thoroughly institutionalized, he played by the rules, rarely causing trouble in the jail itself. After the noon recess, we had several examples of Canarac in action. Arguing a search-and-seizure motion, he said that Manson's arrest was illegal because Mr. Caballero and Mr. Bugliosi conspired to have Miss Atkins make certain statements, and that the district attorney's office suborned the perjury. As ridiculous as this was, subornation of perjury is an extremely serious charge, and since Canarac was making it in open court, in front of the press, I reacted accordingly. Bugliosi. Your Honor, if Mr. Canarek is going to have diarrhea of the mouth, I think he should make an offer of proof back in chambers. This man is totally irresponsible. I urgently request the court we go back in chambers. God knows what this man is going to say next. The court. Confine yourself to the argument, Mr. Canarek. The argument, when Canarek did eventually get around to making it, left even the other defense attorneys looking stunned. Canarek stated that since... The warrant of arrest for the defendant Manson was based on illegally obtained and perjured testimony. Therefore, the seizure of the person of Mr. Manson was illegal. The person of Mr. Manson must therefore be suppressed from evidence. While I was wondering how you could suppress a person, Kenarek provided an answer. He asked that that piece of physical evidence, which is Mr. Manson's physical body, not be before the court conceptually to be used in evidence. Presumably, by Canarek's convoluted logic, witnesses shouldn't even be allowed to identify Manson. Older denied the motion. Another aspect of Irving Canarek was exhibited that day, a suspicious distrust that at times bordered on paranoia. The prosecution had told the court that we would not introduce Susan Atkins's grand jury testimony in the trial. One would think the introduction of this testimony, 
in which Susan stated that Charles Manson ordered the Tate-LaBianca murders, would have been the last thing Manson's attorney would want in evidence. But Canterac, suddenly wary, charged that if we weren't using those statements, they must be tainted in some way. Older recessed court for the weekend. The preliminaries were over. The trial would begin the following Monday, June 15, 1970. Part 6. The Trial If the tale that is unfolding were not so monstrous, aspects of it would break the heart. Gene Stafford June 15th to July 23rd, 1970 Judge Charles Older's court, Department 104, was located on the 8th floor of the Hall of Justice. As the first panel of 60 prospective jurors was escorted into the crowded courtroom, their expressions changed from boredom to curiosity. Then, as eyes alighted on the defendants, mouths dropped open in abrupt shock. One man gasped, loud enough for those around him to hear, My God, it's the Manson trial. In chambers, the chief topic was sequestration. Judge Older had decided that once jury selection was completed, the jurors would be locked up until the end of the trial, to protect them from harassment and to prevent their being exposed to trial publicity. Arrangements had already been made for them to occupy part of a floor at the Ambassador Hotel. Although spouses could visit on weekends, at their own expense, bailiffs would take all necessary precautions to see that the jury remained isolated from both outsiders and any news about the case. No one was sure how long this would be. Estimates of the trial's length ranged from three to six months and up, but obviously it would be severe hardship for those chosen. Stovitz Your Honor has, and I don't say this in comedy, sentenced some felons for less than three months in custody. The court, no doubt about it. Fitzgerald, not at the ambassador, though. Although all the attorneys had some reservations about sequestration, only one strongly opposed it, Irving Canarac. Since Canarac had screamed the loudest about the taint of publicity adverse to his client, I concluded that Manson, not Canarac, must have been behind the motion. And I had my own opinion as to why Charlie didn't want the jury locked up. Rumor had it that Judge Older himself had already received several threats. A secret memo he'd sent the sheriff, outlining courtroom security measures, ended with the following paragraph. The sheriff shall provide the trial judge with a driver bodyguard, and security shall be provided at the trial judge's residence on a 24-hour basis, until such time as all trial and post-trial proceedings have been concluded. Twelve names were drawn by lot. When the prospective jurors were seated in the jury box, Older explained that the sequestration could last as much as six months. Asked if any felt this would constitute undue hardship, eight of the twelve raised their hands. Note. Later, after obtaining revised estimates from the various attorneys, Judge Older changed this to three or more months, after which the hardship excuses abruptly declined. End of note. Envisioning a mass exodus from the courtroom, Older was very strict when it came to excuses for cause. However, anyone who stated that he or she could not vote the death penalty under any circumstances was automatically excused, as was anyone who had read Susan Atkins's confession. This was usually approached obliquely, the prospective juror being asked something like, Have you read where any defendant has made any type of incriminating statement or confession? To which several answered on the order of, 
Yes, that thing in the L.A. Times. Questioning on this and other issues dealing with pretrial publicity was done individually and in chambers to avoid contaminating the whole panel. After Older finished the initial questioning, the attorneys began their individual voir dire examination. I was disappointed in Fitzgerald, who led off. His questions were largely conversational and quite often showed no sign of prior thought. For example, have you or any member of your family ever been the unfortunate victim of a homicide? Fitzgerald asked this not once, but twice, before one of his fellow lawyers nudged him and suggested that if the prospective juror was a homicide victim, he wouldn't be of much use on a jury. Reiner was much better. It was obvious that he was doing his best to separate his client, Leslie Van Houten, from the other defendants. It was also obvious that in doing so, he was incurring Manson's wrath. Canarek objected to Reiner's questions almost as often as did the prosecution. Shin asked the first prospective juror only 11 questions, seven of which Older ruled improper. His entire voir dire, including objections and arguments, took only 13 pages of transcript. Canarek began by reading a number of questions obviously written by Manson. This apparently didn't satisfy Charlie, as he asked Older if he could ask the jurors a few simple, tiny, childlike questions that are real to me in my reality. Refused permission, Manson instructed Canarek, you will not say another word in court. Manson contended, Canarek later told the court, that he was already presumed guilty. Therefore, there was no need to question the jurors, since it didn't matter who was selected. To my amazement, Canarek, usually a very independent sort, actually followed Manson's instructions and declined to ask further questions. Lawyers are not supposed to educate jurors during voir dire, but every lawyer worth his salt tries to predispose a jury to his side. For example, Reiner asked, Have you read anything in the press or heard anything on TV to the effect that Charles Manson has a kind of hypnotic power over the female defendants? Obviously, Reiner was less interested in the answer than in implanting the suggestion in the minds of the jurors. Similarly, walking the thin line between inquiry and instruction, I asked each juror, Do you understand that the people only have the burden of proving a defendant guilty beyond a reasonable doubt? We do not have the burden of proving his guilt beyond all doubt. Only a reasonable doubt? Initially, Older would not permit the attorneys to instruct the prospective jurors in the law. I had a number of heated discussions with him about this before he let us couch such questions in general terms. This was, I felt, an important victory. For example, I didn't want to go through the whole trial only to have some juror decide, we can't convict Manson of the five Tate murders because he wasn't there. He was back at Spawn Ranch. The heart of our case against Manson was the vicarious liability rule of conspiracy. Each conspirator is criminally responsible for all the crimes committed by his co-conspirators, if said crimes were committed to further the object of the conspiracy. This rule applies even if the conspirator was not present at the scene of the crime. For example, A, B, and C decide to rob a bank. A plans the robbery, B and C carry it out. Under the law, A, though he never entered the bank, is as responsible as B and C, I pointed out to the jury. From the prosecution's point of view, it was important that each juror understand such gut issues as reasonable doubt, conspiracy, motive, direct and circumstantial evidence, and the accomplice rule. We hoped Judge Older would not declare Linda Kasabian an accomplice. 
but we were fairly sure he would, in which case the defense would make much of the fact that no defendant can be convicted of any crime on the uncorroborated testimony of an accomplice. Note, he later did. End of note. In researching the law, I found a California Supreme Court case, People v. Wayne, in which the court said only slight evidence was needed to constitute corroboration. After I brought this to Older's attention, he permitted me to use the word slight in my questioning. This, too, I considered a significant victory. Though Older had ascertained that each prospective juror could, if the evidence warranted it, vote a verdict of death, I went beyond this, asking each if he could conceive of circumstances wherein he would be willing to vote such a verdict against, one, a young person, two, a female defendant, or three, a particular defendant, even though the evidence showed that he himself did not do any actual killing. Obviously, I wanted to eliminate anyone who answered any of these questions negatively. Manson and the girls caused no disruptions during jury selection. In chambers during the individual voir dire, however, Manson would often stare at Judge Older for literally hours. I could only surmise that he had developed his incredible concentration while in prison. Older totally ignored him. One day, Manson tried it with me. I stared right back, holding his gaze until his hand started shaking. During the recess, I slid my chair over next to his and asked, What are you trembling about, Charlie? Are you afraid of me? Bugliosi, he said, you think I'm bad, and I'm not. I don't think you're all bad, Charlie. For instance, I understand you love animals. Then you know I wouldn't hurt anyone, he said. Hitler loved animals too, Charlie. He had a dog named Blondie, and from what I've read, Adolf was very kind to Blondie. Usually, a prosecutor and a defendant won't exchange two words during an entire trial. But Manson was no ordinary defendant, and he loved to rap. In this, the first of many strange, often highly revealing conversations we had, Manson asked me why I thought he was behind these murders. Because both Linda and Sadie told me you were, I replied. Now, Sadie doesn't like me, Charlie, and she thinks you're Jesus Christ. So why would she tell me this if it wasn't true? Sadie's just a stupid little bitch, Manson said. You know, I only made love to her two or three times. After she had her baby and lost her shape, I couldn't have cared less about her. That's why she told that story, to get attention. I would never personally harm anyone. Don't give me that crap, Charlie, because I won't buy it. What about lots of Papa? You put a bullet in his stomach. Well, yeah, I shot that guy, Manson admitted. He was going to come up to Spawn Ranch and get all of us. That was kind of in self-defense. Manson was enough of a jailhouse lawyer to know that I couldn't use anything he told me unless I'd first informed him of his constitutional rights. Yet this, and many subsequent admissions, surprised me. There was a strange sort of honesty about him. It was devious. It was never direct, but it was there. Whenever I pinned him down, he might evade, but not once in this or the numerous other conversations we had did he flatly deny that he had ordered the murders. An innocent man protests his innocence. Instead, Manson played word games. If he took the stand and did this, I felt the jury would see through him. Would Manson take the stand? The general consensus was that Manson's prodigious ego, plus the opportunity to use the witness stand as a forum to expound his philosophy before the world press, would impel him to testify.
But, though I had already put in many hours preparing my cross-examination, no one but Manson really knew what he would do. Toward the end of the recess, I told him, I have enjoyed talking to you, Charlie, but it would be much more interesting if we did it with you on the stand. I have lots and lots of things I'm curious about. For instance? For instance, I replied, where in the world, Terminal Island, Haight-Ashbury, Spawn Ranch, did you get the crazy idea that other people don't like to live? He didn't answer. Then he began to smile. He'd been challenged and knew it. Whether he'd decide to accept the challenge remained to be seen. Though silent in court, Manson remained active behind the scenes. On June 24th, Patricia Krenwinkel interrupted Fitzgerald's voir dire to ask that he be relieved as her attorney. I have talked with him about the way I wish this to be handled right now, and he doesn't do as I ask, she told the court. He is to be my voice, which he is not. Older denied her request. Later, the defense attorneys had a meeting with their clients. Fitzgerald, who had given up his public defender's job to represent Krenwinkel, emerged with tears in his eyes. I felt very badly about this, and putting my arm around his shoulder, told him, Paul, don't let it get you down. She'll probably keep you. And if she doesn't, so what? They're just a bunch of murderers. They're savages, ingrates, Fitzgerald said bitterly. Their only allegiance is to Manson. Fitzgerald didn't tell me what had occurred during the meeting, but it wasn't hard to guess. Directly, or through the girls, Manson had probably told the attorneys, do it my way or you're off the case. Fitzgerald and Reiner told Los Angeles Times reporter John Kendall that all the attorneys had been instructed to remain silent and not question prospective jurors. When the following day, Reiner disobeyed this order and continued his voir dire, Leslie Van Houten tried to fire him, repeating almost verbatim the words Krenwinkel had used. Older denied her request also. What Reiner was going through could be gleaned from some of his questions. For example, he asked one prospective juror, even if it appears that Leslie Van Houten desired to stand or fall with the other defendants, could you nevertheless acquit her if the evidence against her was insufficient? On July 14th, both the prosecution and the defense agreed to accept the jury. The twelve were then sworn. The jury consisted of seven men and five women, ranging in age from 25 to 73, in occupation from an electronics technician to a mortician. Note. The twelve jurors were... John Bayer, an electrical tester, Alva Dawson, a retired deputy sheriff, Mrs. Shirley Evans, a school secretary, Mrs. Evelyn Hines, a dictaphone teletype operator, William McBride II, a chemical company employee, Mrs. Thelma McKenzie, a clerical supervisor, Miss Marie Mesmer, former drama critic for the now-defunct Los Angeles Daily News, Mrs. Jean Roseland, an executive secretary, Ann Lee Sisto, an electronics technician, Herman Tubick, a mortician, Walter Vizzelio, a retired plant guard, and William Zamora, a highway engineer. End of note. It was very much a mixed jury, neither side getting exactly what it wanted. Almost automatically, the defense will challenge anyone connected with law enforcement. Yet Alva Dawson, the oldest member of the jury, had worked 16 years as a deputy sheriff with LASO, while Walter Vizzelio had been a plant security guard for 20 years and had a brother who was a deputy sheriff. On the other hand, Herman Tubick, the mortician, and Mrs. Jean Roseland, a secretary with TWA, 
each had two daughters in approximately the same age group as the three female defendants. Studying the jurors' faces as they were sworn, I felt that most appeared pleased to have been selected. After all, they had been chosen to serve on one of the most famous trials of all time. Older was quick to bring them back to earth. He instructed them that when they came to court the following morning, they should bring their suitcases, clothing, and personal items, as from that point on they would be sequestered. There remained the selection of the alternate jurors. Because of the anticipated length of the trial, Older decided to pick six, an unusually large number. Again, we went through the whole voir dire. Only this time it was without Ira Reiner. On July 17th, Leslie Van Houten formally requested that Reiner be relieved as her attorney, and Ronald Hughes appointed instead. After questioning Hughes, Manson, and Van Houten on the possibility of a conflict of interest, Judge Older granted the substitution. Reiner was out, receiving not even so much as a thank you for the eight months he had devoted to the case. Manson's former attorney, the hippie lawyer Ronald Hughes, with his Santa Claus beard and Walter Slezak suits, became Leslie Van Houten's attorney of record. Ira Reiner had been fired for one reason, and one reason only. He had tried to represent his client to the best of his ability. And he had properly decided that his client was not Charles Manson, but Leslie Van Houten. There was a slight but perceptible smile on Manson's face, with good reason. He had succeeded in forming a united defense team. Although Fitzgerald remained its nominal head, it was obvious who was calling the shots. On July 21st, the six alternates were sworn, and they too were sequestered. Note, the six alternate jurors were Miss Frances Chasen, a retired civil service employee, Kenneth Dott, Jr., a State Division of Highways employee, Robert Douglas, an employee of the Army Corps of Engineers, John Ellis, a telephone installer, Mrs. Victoria Campman, a housewife, and Larry Sheely, a telephone maintenance man. End of note. Jury selection had taken five weeks, during which 205 people had been examined and nearly 4,500 pages of transcript accumulated. It had been a rough five weeks. Older and I had clashed on several occasions, Reiner and Older even oftener. And Older had threatened four of the attorneys with contempt, carrying through on one. Three were for violations of the gag order. Aaron Stovitz was cited for an interview he had given the magazine Rolling Stone. Paul Fitzgerald and Ira Reiner for their quoted remarks in the Los Angeles Times story, Tate Suspects Try to Silence Lawyers. Though Older eventually dropped the contempt citations against all three, Irving Canarak was less lucky. On July 8th, he was seven minutes late to court. He had a valid reason. It was very difficult to find a parking space at the time court convened. But Older, who had previously threatened Canarak with contempt when he was just three minutes late, was not sympathetic. He ruled Canarak in contempt and fined him $25. While we were busy selecting a jury, two of Manson's killers were set free. Mary Bruner was re-indicted and re-arrested for the Hinman murder. Her attorneys filed a writ of habeas corpus. Ruling that she had fulfilled the conditions of the immunity agreement, Judge Kathleen Parker granted the writ and Bruner was released. Meanwhile, Clem, true name Steve Grogan, pleaded guilty to a grand theft auto charge stemming from the Barker raid. Van Nuys Judge Sterry Fagan heard the case. He was aware of Grogan's lengthy rap sheet. Moreover, the probation department, usually very permissive, in this case recommended that Grogan be sentenced to a year in the county jail. 
Aaron also informed the judge that Clem was exceedingly dangerous, and that he had not only been along on the night the LaBiancas were killed, but we also had evidence that he had beheaded Shorty Shea. Yet, unbelievably enough, Judge Fagan gave Clem straight probation. On learning that Clem had returned to the family at Spawn Ranch, I contacted his probation officer, asking him to revoke Clem's probation. There was more than ample cause. Among the terms of his probation were that he maintain residence at the home of his parents, seek and maintain employment, not use or possess any narcotics, not associate with known narcotics users. Moreover, he had been seen on several occasions, even photographed, with a knife and a gun. His probation officer refused to act. He later admitted to LAPD that he was afraid of Clem. Though Bruce Davis had gone underground, most of the other hardcore family members were very much in evidence. Some dozen of them, including Clem and Mary, haunted the entrances and corridors of the Hall of Justice each day, where they would cast cold, accusing stares at the prosecution witnesses as they arrived to testify. The problem of their presence in the courtroom, a concern since Sandy had been found carrying a knife, was solved by Aaron. Prospective witnesses are excluded when other witnesses are testifying. Aaron simply subpoenaed all the known family members as prosecution witnesses, an act which raised a tremendous furor from the defense, but made everyone else breathe a little easier. July 24th to 26th, 1970. Tate murder trial starts today. Hint prosecution will reveal surprise motive. Sharon's father expected to be first witness. Many of the spectators had been waiting since 6 a.m., hoping to get a seat and a glimpse of Manson. When he was escorted into the courtroom, several gasped. On his forehead was a bloody X. Sometime the previous night, he had taken a sharp object and carved the mark in his flesh. An explanation was not long forthcoming. Outside court, his followers passed out a typewritten statement bearing his name. I have X'd myself from your world. You have created the monster. I am not of you, from you, nor do I condone your unjust attitude toward things, animals, and people that you do not try to understand. I stand opposed to what you do and have done in the past. You make fun of God and have murdered the world in the name of Jesus Christ. My faith in me is stronger than all of your armies, governments, gas chambers, or anything you may want to do to me. I know what I have done. Your courtroom is man's game. Love is my judge. The Court People versus Charles Manson, Susan Atkins, Patricia Krenwinkel, and Leslie Van Houten All parties and counsel and jurors are present. Do the people care to make an opening statement? Bugliosi Yes, Your Honor. I began the people's opening statement, which was a preview of the evidence the prosecution intended to introduce in the trial, by summarizing the charges, naming the defendants, and after relating what had occurred at 10,050 Shallow Drive in the early morning hours of August 9, 1969, and at 3301 Waverly Drive the following night, identifying the victims. A question you ladies and gentlemen will probably ask yourselves at some point during this trial, and we expect the evidence to answer that question for you, is this. What kind of a diabolical mind would contemplate or conceive of these seven murders? What kind of mind would want to have seven human beings brutally murdered? We expect the evidence at this trial to answer that question and show that defendant Charles Manson owned that diabolical mind. Charles Manson, 
who the evidence will show at times had the infinite humility, as it were, to refer to himself as Jesus Christ. Evidence at this trial will show defendant Manson to be a vagrant wanderer, a frustrated singer-guitarist, a pseudo-philosopher. But most of all, the evidence will conclusively prove that Charles Manson is a killer who cleverly masqueraded behind the common image of a hippie, that of being peace-loving. The evidence will show Charles Manson to be a megalomaniac who coupled his insatiable thirst for power with an intense obsession for violent death. The evidence would show, I continued, that Manson was the unquestioned leader and overlord of a nomadic band of vagabonds who called themselves the family. After briefly tracing the history and composition of the group, I observed, We anticipate that Mr. Manson, in his defense, will claim that neither he nor anyone else was the leader of the family, and that he never ordered anyone in the family to do anything, much less commit these murders for him. Canarac, Your Honor, he is now making an opening statement for us. The court, overruled. You may continue, Mr. Bugliosi. Bugliosi. We therefore intend to offer evidence at this trial showing that Charles Manson was, in fact, the dictatorial leader of the family, that everyone in the family was slavishly obedient to him, that he always had the other members of the family do his bidding for him, and that eventually they committed the seven Tate LaBianca murders at his command. This evidence of Mr. Manson's total domination over the family will be offered as circumstantial evidence that on the two nights in question it was he who ordered these seven murders. The principal witness for the prosecution, I told the jury, would be Linda Kasabian. I then briefly stated what Linda would testify to, interrelating her story with the physical evidence we intended to introduce. The gun, the rope, the clothing the killers wore the night of the Tate murders, and so forth. We came now to the question that everyone had been asking since these murders occurred. Why? The prosecution does not have the burden of proving motive, I told the jury. We needn't introduce one single solitary speck of evidence as to motive. However, when we have evidence of motive, we introduce it, because if one has a motive for committing a murder, this is circumstantial evidence that it was he who committed the murder. In this trial, we will offer evidence of Charles Manson's motives for ordering these seven murders. If Manson and the defense were waiting to hear the word robbery, they'd wait in vain. Instead, Manson's own beliefs came back at them. We believe there to be more than one motive, I told the jury. Besides the motives of Manson's passion for violent death and his extreme anti-establishment state of mind, the evidence in this trial will show that there was a further motive for these murders, which is perhaps as bizarre, or perhaps even more bizarre, than the murders themselves. Briefly, the evidence will show Manson's fanatical obsession with helter-skelter, a term he got from the English musical group The Beatles. Manson was an avid follower of the Beatles, and believed that they were speaking to him across the ocean through the lyrics of their songs. In fact, Manson told his followers that he found complete support for his philosophy in the words of those songs. To Charles Manson, Helter Skelter, the title of one of their songs, meant the black man rising up and destroying the entire white race. That is, with the exception of Charles Manson and his chosen followers, who intended to escape from Helter Skelter by going to the desert and living in a bottomless pit, a place that Manson derived from Revelation 9, a chapter in the last book of the New Testament. Evidence from several witnesses will show that Charles Manson hated black people, but that he also hated the white establishment, whom he called pigs. 
the word pig was found printed in blood on the outside of the front door to the Tate residence. The words death to pigs, helter skelter, and rise were found printed in blood inside the LaBianca residence. The evidence will show that one of Manson's principal motives for these seven savage murders was to ignite Helter Skelter. In other words, start the black-white revolution by making it look as though the black man had murdered these seven Caucasian victims. In his twisted mind, he thought this would cause the white community to turn against the black community, ultimately leading to a civil war between blacks and whites, a war which Manson told his followers would see bloodbaths in the streets of every American city a war which Manson predicted and foresaw the black man as winning. Manson envisioned that black people, once they destroyed the entire white race, would be unable to handle the reins of power because of inexperience, and would therefore have to turn over the reins to those white people who had escaped from helter-skelter, i.e. Charles Manson and his family. In Manson's mind, his family, and particularly he, would be the ultimate beneficiaries of a black-white civil war. We intend to offer the testimony of not just one witness, but many witnesses on Manson's philosophy, because the evidence will show that it is so strange and so bizarre that if you heard it only from the lips of one person, you probably would not believe it. Thus far, all the emphasis had been on Manson. Convicting Manson was the first priority. If we convicted the others and not Manson, it would be like a war crimes trial in which the flunkies were found guilty and Hitler went free. Therefore, I stress that it was Manson who had ordered these murders, though his co-defendants, obedient to his every command, actually committed them. There was a danger in this, however. I was giving the attorneys for the three girls a ready-made defense. In the penalty phase of the trial, they could argue that since Atkins, Krenwinkel, and Van Houten were totally under Manson's domination, they were not nearly as culpable as he, and therefore should receive life imprisonment rather than the death penalty. Anticipating long in advance that I'd have to prove the very opposite, I laid the groundwork in my opening statement. What about Charles Manson's followers, the other defendants in this case? Susan Atkins, Patricia Krenwinkel, and Leslie Van Houten. The evidence will show that they, along with Tex Watson, were the actual killers of the seven Tate LaBianca victims. The evidence will also show that they were very willing participants in these mass murders, that by their overkill tactics, for instance, Rosemary LaBianca was stabbed 41 times, Wojciech Frykowski was stabbed 51 times, shot twice, and struck violently over the head 13 times with the butt of a revolver. These defendants displayed that even apart from Charles Manson, murder ran through their own blood. After mentioning Susan Atkins's confessions to Virginia Graham and Ronnie Howard, the fingerprint which placed Patricia Krenwinkel at the Tate murder scene and the evidence which implicated Leslie Van Houten in the LaBianca murders, I observed, the evidence will show that Charles Manson started his family in the Haight-Ashbury district of San Francisco in March of 1967. The family's demise, as it were, took place in October of 1969 at Barker Ranch, a desolate, secluded, rock-strewn hideout from civilization on the shadowy perimeters of Death Valley. Between these two dates, seven human beings and an eight-and-a-half-month baby boy fetus in the womb of Sharon Tate, met their death at the hands of these members of the family. The evidence at this trial will show that these seven incredible murders were perhaps the most bizarre, savage, nightmarish murders in the recorded annals of crime. Mr. Stovitz and I intend to prove not just beyond a reasonable doubt, which is our only burden, but beyond all doubt, 
that these defendants committed these murders and are guilty of these murders. And in our final arguments to you at the conclusion of the evidence, we intend to ask you to return verdicts of first-degree murder against each of these defendants. Noting that it would be a long trial, with many witnesses, I recall the old Chinese proverb, the palest ink is better than the best memory, urging the jury to take detailed notes to aid them in their deliberations. I closed by telling the jury that we felt confident that they would give both the defendants and the people of the state of California the fair and impartial trial to which each was entitled. Canarek had interrupted my opening statement nine times with objections, all of which the court had overruled. When I finished, he moved that the whole statement be stricken, or, failing in that, a mistrial declared. Older denied both motions. Fitzgerald told the press my remarks were scurrilous and slanderous, and called the helter-skelter motive a truly preposterous theory. I had a strong feeling that by the time of his closing argument to the jury, Paul wouldn't even bother to argue this. The defense reserving its opening statements until after the prosecution had completed its case, the people called their first witness, Colonel Paul Tate. With military erectness, Sharon's father took the stand and was sworn. Though 46, he looked younger and sported a well-trimmed beard. Before entering the courtroom, he had been thoroughly searched, it being rumored that he had vowed to kill Manson. Even though he glanced only briefly at the defendants and exhibited no discernible reaction, the bailiffs watched him every minute he was in the courtroom. Our direct examination was brief. Colonel Tate described his last meeting with Sharon and identified photos of his daughter, Miss Folger, Frykowski, Sebring, and the house at 10,050 Shallow Drive. Wilfred Parent, who followed Colonel Tate to the stand, broke down and cried when shown a photograph of his son, Stephen. Winifred Chapman, the Tate maid, was next. I questioned her in detail about the washing of the two doors. Then, wanting to establish a chronology for the jurors, I took her up to her departure from the residence on the afternoon of August 8, 1969, intending to recall her to the stand later so she could testify to her discoveries the next morning. On cross-examination, Fitzgerald brought out that she hadn't mentioned washing the door in Sharon's bedroom until months after the murders, and then she had told this not to LAPD, but to me. This was to be the start of a pattern. Having questioned each of the witnesses not once but a number of times, I had uncovered a great deal of information not previously related to the police. In many instances, I had been the only one who had interviewed the witness. Though Fitzgerald initially planted the idea, Canarek would nurture it until, in his mind at least, it budded into a full-bloomed conspiracy, with Bugliosi framing the whole case. Canarek had only one question for Mrs. Chapman, but it was a good one. Had she ever seen the defendant Charles Manson before her appearance in court? She replied that she had not. Although he had recently married and was not anxious to leave his bride, William Gerritsen had flown back from his home in Lancaster, Ohio, where he had returned after being released by LAPD. The former caretaker came across as sincere, though rather shy. Although I intended to call both officers Wisenhunt and Wolfer, the former to testify to finding the setting on Gerritsen's stereo at between four and five, the latter to describe the sound tests he had conducted, I did question Gerritsen in detail as to the events of that night, and I felt the jury believed him when he claimed he hadn't heard any gunshots or screams. I asked Gerritsen, how loud were you playing your stereo? Answer, it was about medium. It wasn't very loud. 
This, I felt, was the best evidence Gerritsen was telling the truth. Had he been lying about hearing nothing, then surely he would have lied and said the stereo was loud. Most of Fitzgerald's questions concerned Gerritsen's arrest and alleged rough handling by the police. At one point later in the trial, Fitzgerald would maintain that Gerritsen was involved in at least some of the Tate homicides. Since there wasn't even a hint of this in his cross-examination, I'd conclude that he was belatedly looking for a convenient scapegoat. Kanarak again asked the same question. No, he'd never seen Manson before, Gerritsen replied. When I'd interviewed Gerritsen prior to his taking the stand, he told me that he still had nightmares about what had happened. That weekend, before his return to Ohio, Rudy Altabelli, who was now living in the main house, arranged for Gerritsen to revisit 10,050 Shallow Drive. He found the premises quiet and peaceful. After that, he told me, the nightmares stopped. By the end of the day, we had finished with three more witnesses. Frank Guerrero, who had been painting the nursery that Friday. Tom Vargas, the gardener, who testified to the arrivals and departures of the various guests that day, and to his signing for the two steamer trunks. And Dennis Hurst, who identified Sebring from a photograph as the man who came to the front door when he delivered the bicycle about eight that night. The stage was now set for the prosecution's main witness, whom I intended to call to the stand first thing Monday morning. On hearing my opening statement, Manson must have realized that I had his number. At the conclusion of court that afternoon, Sheriff's Deputy Sergeant William Maupin was escorting Manson from the lockup to the ninth floor of the jail when, to quote from Maupin's report, inmate Manson stated to undersigned that it would be worth $100,000 to be set free. Inmate Manson also commented on how much he would like to return to the desert and the life he had before his arrest. Inmate Manson commented additionally that money meant nothing to him, that several people had contacted him regarding large sums of money. Inmate Manson also stated that an officer would only receive a six-month sentence if caught releasing an inmate without authority. Maupin reported the bribe offer to his superior, Captain Alley, who in turn informed Judge Older. Though the incident was never made public, Older gave the attorneys Maupin's report the next day. Reading it, I wondered what Manson would try next. Over the weekend, Susan Atkins, Patricia Krenwinkel, and Leslie Van Houten lit matches, heated bobby pins red hot, then burned X marks on their foreheads, after which they ripped open the burnt flesh with needles to create more prominent scars. When the jurors were brought into court Monday morning, the X's were the first thing they saw. Graphic evidence that when Manson led, the girls followed. A day or so later, Sandy, Squeaky, Gypsy, and most of the other family members did the same thing. As new disciples joined the group, this became one of the family's rituals, complete to tasting the blood as it ran down their faces. July 27th to August 3rd, 1970. Eight sheriff's deputies escorted Linda Kasabian from Sybil Brand to the Hall of Justice through an entrance that circumvented those patrolled by the family. When they reached the ninth floor, however, Sandra Good suddenly appeared in the corridor and screamed, You'll kill us all! You'll kill us all! Linda, according to those who witnessed the encounter, seemed less shaken than sad. I saw Linda just after she arrived. Though her attorney, Gary Fleischman, had purchased a new dress for her, it had been misplaced, and she was wearing the same maternity dress she'd worn when pregnant. The baggy tent made her look more hippie-like than the defendant's. After I'd explained the problem to Judge Older, he heard other matters in chambers until the dress was located and brought over. 
Later, a similar courtesy would be extended to the defense when Susan Atkins lost her bra. Bugliosi. The people call Linda Kasabian. The sad, resigned look she gave Manson and the girls contrasted sharply with their obviously hostile glares. Clerk. Would you raise your right hand, please? Canarac. Object, Your Honor, on the grounds this witness is not competent and she is insane. Bugliosi. Wait a minute. Your Honor, I move to strike that, and I ask the court to find him in contempt for gross misconduct. This is unbelievable on his part. Unfortunately, it was all too believable. Exactly the sort of thing we had feared since Canarac came on the case. Ordering the jury to disregard Canarac's remarks, Older called counsel to the bench. There is no question about it, Older told Canarac. Your conduct is outrageous. Bugliosi. I know the court cannot prevent him from speaking up, but God knows what he is going to say in the future. If I were to say something like this in open court, I would probably be thrown off the case by my office and disbarred. Defending Canarac, Fitzgerald told the court that the defense intended to call witnesses who would testify that Linda Kasabian had taken LSD at least 300 times. The defense would contend, he said, that such drug use had rendered her mentally incapable of testifying. Whatever their offer of proof, Older said, Matters of law were to be discussed either at the bench or in chambers, not in front of the jury. As for Canarac's outburst, Older warned him that if he did that once more, I am going to take some action against you. Linda was sworn. I asked her, Linda, you realize that you are presently charged with seven counts of murder and one count of conspiracy to commit murder? Answer, yes. Canarac objected, moving for a mistrial. Denied. It was some ten minutes later before I was able to get in the second question. Question. Linda, are you aware of the agreement between the district attorney's office and your attorneys that if you testify to everything you know about the Tate-LaBianca murders, the district attorney's office will petition the court to grant you immunity from prosecution and dismiss all charges against you? Answer. Yes, I am aware. Canarac objected on four different grounds. Denied. By bringing this in first, we defused one of the defense's biggest cannons. Question. Besides the benefits which will accrue to you under the agreement, is there any other reason why you have decided to tell everything you know about these seven murders? Another torrent of objections from Canarac before Linda was able to answer. I strongly believe in the truth, and I feel the truth should be spoken. Canarac even objected to my asking Linda the number of children she had. Often he used a shotgun approach, leading and suggestive, no foundation, conclusion and hearsay, in hope that at least some of the buckshot would hit. Many of his grounds were totally inapplicable. He would object to a conclusion, for example, when no conclusion was called for, or yell hearsay when I was simply asking her what she did next. Since I'd anticipated this, it didn't bother me. However, it took over an hour to get Linda up to her first meeting with Manson, her description of life at Spawn Ranch, and, over Canarac's very heated objections, her definition of what she meant by the term family. Answer. Well, we live together as one family, as a family lives together, as a mother and father and children. But we were all just one, and Charlie was the head. I was questioning Linda about the various orders Manson had given the girls when, unexpectedly, Judge Older began sustaining Canarac's hearsay objections. 
I asked to approach the bench. Lay people believe hearsay is inadmissible. Actually, there are so many exceptions to the hearsay rule that many lawyers feel the law should read, hearsay is admissible except in these few instances. Note. For example, Susan Atkins's confessions to Virginia Graham and Ronnie Howard were hearsay, but admissible under the admission exception to the hearsay rule. End of note. I told Older, I had anticipated many legal problems in this case, and I have done research on them, because I kind of play the devil's advocate. But I never anticipated I'd have any trouble showing Manson's directions to members of the family. Older said he sustained the objections because he couldn't think of any exception to the hearsay rule that would permit the introduction of such statements. This was crucial. If Older ruled such conversations inadmissible, there went the domination framework and our case against Manson. Shortly after this, court recessed for the day. Aaron, J. Miller Levy, and I were up late that night looking for citations of authority. Fortunately, we found two cases, People v. Fracciano and People v. Stevens, in which the court ruled you can show the existence of a conspiracy by showing the relationship between the parties, including statements made to each other. Shown the cases the next morning, Judge Older reversed himself and overruled Canarac's objections. Opposition now came from a totally unexpected direction. Aaron. Linda had already testified that Manson ordered the girls to make love to male visitors to induce them to join the family. When I asked her, Linda, do you know what a sexual orgy is? Canarac immediately objected, as did Hughes, who remarked in a somewhat revealing choice of words, We are not trying the sex lives of these people. We are trying the murder lives of these people. Not only were the defense attorneys shouting objections, many of which Older sustained, Aaron leaned over to me and said, Can't we skip this stuff? We're just wasting time. Let's get into the two nights of murder. Look, Aaron, I told him, Sato Voci, I'm fighting the judge. I'm fighting Canarac. I'm not going to fight you. I've got enough problems. This is important, and I'm going to get it in. As Linda finally testified, in between Canarac's objections, Manson decided when an orgy would take place. Manson decided who would and who would not participate, and Manson then assigned the roles each would play. From start to finish, he was the maestro, as it were, orchestrating the whole scene. That Manson controlled even this most intimate and personal aspect of the lives of his followers was extremely powerful evidence of his domination. Moreover, among the twenty-some persons involved in the particular orgy Linda testified to were Charles Tex Watson, Susan Atkins, Leslie Van Houten, and Patricia Krenwinkel. The sexual acts were not detailed, nor did I question Linda about other such group encounters. Once the point was made, I moved on to other testimony. Helter Skelter, The Black-White War, Manson's belief that the Beatles were communicating with him through the lyrics of their songs, his announcement, late on the afternoon of August 8, 1969, that now is the time for Helter Skelter. Describing her appearance on the stand, the Los Angeles Times noted that even in discussing the group's sex life, Linda Kasabian was surprisingly serene, soft-spoken, even demure. Her testimony was also at times very moving, telling how Manson separated the mothers and their children, and relating her own feelings on being parted from Tanya, Linda said, Sometimes, you know, when there wasn't anybody around, especially Charlie, I would give her my love and feed her.
Linda was describing Manson's directions to the group just before they left Spawn Ranch that first night, when Charlie, seated at the council table, put his hand up to his neck and, with one finger extended, made a slitting motion across his throat. Although I was looking the other way and didn't see the gesture, others, including Linda, did. Yet there was no pause in her reply. She went on to relate how Tex had stopped the car in front of the big gate, the cutting of the telephone wires, driving back down the hill and parking, then walking back up. As she described how they had climbed the fence to the right of the gate, you could feel the tension building in the courtroom. Then the sudden headlights. Answer. And a car pulled up in front of us, and Tex leaped forward with a gun in his hand. And the man said, Please don't hurt me. I won't say anything. And Tex shot him four times. As she described the murder of Stephen Parent, Linda began sobbing, as she had each time she had related the story to me. I could tell the jury was moved, both by the mounting horror and her reaction. Sadie giggled. Leslie sketched. Katie looked bored. By the end of the day, I had brought Linda to the point where Katie was chasing the woman in the white gown, Folger, with a knife, and Tex was stabbing the big man, Frykowski. He just kept doing it and doing it and doing it. Question. When the man was screaming, do you know what he was screaming? Answer. There were no words. It was beyond words. It was just screams. Reporters keeping track of Canarac's objections gave up on the third day when the count passed 200. Older warned Canarac that if he interrupted either the witness or the prosecution again, he would find him in contempt. Often a dozen transcript pages separated my question and Linda's answer. Bugliosi, we are going to have to go back, Linda. There has been a blizzard of objections. Canarac, I object to that statement. When Canarac again interrupted Linda in mid-sentence, Older called us to the bench. The court. Mr. Canarac, you have directly violated my order not to repeatedly interrupt. I find you in contempt of court, and I sentence you to one night in the county jail, starting immediately after this court adjourns this afternoon until 7 a.m. tomorrow morning. Canarac protested that, rather than my interrupting the witness, the witness interrupted me. By day's end, Canarac would have company. Among the items I wished to submit for identification purposes was a photograph, which showed the straight Satan sword in a scabbard next to the steering wheel of Manson's own dune buggy. Since the photograph had been introduced in evidence in the Beausoleil trial, I didn't get it until it was brought over from the other court. The district attorney is withholding great quantities of evidence from us, Hughes charged. Bugliosi. For the record, I just saw it for the first time a few minutes ago myself. Hughes. That is a lot of shit, Mr. Bugliosi. The court. I hold you in direct contempt of court for that statement. Though in complete agreement with Older's earlier sighting of Canarac, I disagreed with his finding against Hughes, feeling if he was in contempt of anyone, it was me, not the court. Two, it was based on a simple misunderstanding, one which, when explained to him, Hughes quickly accepted. Older was less understanding. Given a choice between paying a $75 fine or spending the night in jail, Hughes told the court, I am a pauper, Your Honor. With no sympathy whatsoever, Older ordered him remanded into custody. Canarac learned nothing from his night in jail. 
The next morning he was right back, interrupting both my questions and Linda's replies. Admonishments from the bench accomplished nothing. He'd apologize, then immediately do the same thing again. All this concerned me much less than the fact that he occasionally succeeded in keeping out testimony. Usually when older sustain an objection, I could work my way around it, introducing the testimony in a different way. For example, when Older foreclosed me from questioning Linda about the defendants watching the news of the Tate murders on TV the day after those murders occurred, because he couldn't see the relevance of this, I asked Linda if, on the night of the murders, she was aware of the identities of the victims. Answer, no. Question, when was the first time you learned the names of these five people? Answer, the following day on the news. Question, on television? Answer, yes. Question. In Mr. Spahn's trailer? Answer. Yes. Question. Did you see Tex, Sadie, and Katie during the day following these killings, other than when you were watching television with them? Answer. Well, I saw Sadie and Katie in the trailer. I cannot remember seeing Tex on that day. The relevance of this would become obvious when Barbara Hoyt took the stand and testified, one, that Sadie came in and told her to switch channels to the news. Two, that before this particular day, Sadie and the others never watched the news. And three, that immediately after the newscaster finished with Tate and moved on to the Vietnam War, the group got up and left. In my questioning of Linda regarding the second night, there was one reiterated theme. Who told you to turn off the freeway? Charlie. Was anyone else in the car giving directions other than Mr. Manson? No. Did anyone question any of Mr. Manson's commands? No. In her testimony regarding both nights, there were also literally a multitude of details which only someone who had been present on those nights of horrendous slaughter could have known. Realizing very early how damaging this was, Manson had remarked, loud enough for both Linda and the jury to hear, You've already told three lies. Linda, looking directly at him, had replied, Oh no, Charlie. I've spoken the truth, and you know it. By the time I had finished my direct examination of Linda Kasabian on the afternoon of July 30th, I had the feeling the jury knew it, too. When I know the defense has something which might prove harmful to the prosecution's case, as a trial tactic, I usually put on that evidence myself first. This not only converts a damaging left hook into a mere left jab, it also indicates to the jury that the prosecution isn't trying to hide anything. Therefore, I'd brought out, on direct, Linda's sexual permissiveness and her use of LSD and other drugs. Note. She had taken LSD about 50 times, she testified, the last time being in May 1969, three months prior to the murders. End of note. Prepared to destroy her credibility with these revelations, the defense found itself going over familiar ground. In doing so, they sometimes even strengthened our case. It was Fitzgerald, Krenwinkel's defense attorney, not the prosecution, who brought out that during the period Linda was at Spahn, I was not really together in myself. I was extremely impressionistic. I let others put ideas in me. And, even more important, that she feared Manson. Question. What were you afraid of? Fitzgerald asked. Answer. I was just afraid. He was a heavy dude. Asked to explain what she meant by this, Linda replied, He just had something, you know, that could hold you. He was a heavyweight. 
He was just heavy, period. Fitzgerald also elicited from Linda that she loved Manson, that I felt he was the Messiah come again. Linda then added one statement which went a long way toward explaining not only why she, but also many of the others had so readily accepted Manson. When she first saw him, she said, I thought, this is what I have been looking for, and this is what I saw in him. Manson, a mirror which reflected the desires of others. Question. Was it also your impression that other people at the ranch loved Charlie? Answer. Oh, yes. It seemed that the girls worshipped him, just would die to do anything for him. Helter-skelter, Manson's attitude toward blacks, his domination of his co-defendants. In each of these areas, Fitzgerald's queries brought out additional information which bolstered Linda's previous testimony. Often his questions backfired, as when he asked Linda, Do you remember who you slept with on August 8th? Answer, no. Question. On the 10th? Answer. No, but eventually I slept with all the men. Time and again, Linda volunteered information which could have been considered damaging, yet coming from her somehow seemed only honest and sincere. She was so open that it caught Fitzgerald off guard. Avoiding the word orgy, he asked her, regarding the love scene that took place in the back house, Did you enjoy it? Linda frankly answered, yeah, I guess I did. I will have to say I did. If possible, at the end of Fitzgerald's cross-examination, Linda Kasabian looked even better than she had at the end of the direct. It was Monday, August 3, 1970. I was on my way back to court from lunch, a few minutes before 2 p.m., when I was abruptly surrounded by newsmen. They were all talking at once, and it was a couple of seconds before I made out the words, Vince, have you heard the news? President Nixon just said that Manson's guilty. August 3rd to 19th, 1970. Fitzgerald had a copy of the AP wire. In Denver, for a conference of law enforcement officials, the president, himself an attorney, was quoted as complaining that the press tended to glorify and make heroes out of those engaged in criminal activities. He continued, I noted, for example, the coverage of the Charles Manson case. Front page every day in the papers. It usually got a couple of minutes in the evening news. Here is a man who was guilty, directly or indirectly, of eight murders. Yet, here is a man who, as far as the coverage is concerned, appeared to be a glamorous figure. Following Nixon's remarks, Presidential Press Secretary Ron Ziegler said that the President had failed to use the word alleged in referring to the charges. Note. On the way back to Washington on Air Force One, President Nixon issued a supplementary statement. I have been informed that my comment in Denver regarding the Tate murder trial in Los Angeles may continue to be misunderstood, despite the unequivocal statement made at the time by my press secretary. The last thing I would do is prejudice the legal rights of any person in any circumstances. To set the record straight, I do not now and did not intend to speculate as to whether the Tate defendants are guilty, in fact or not. All the facts in the case have not yet been presented. The defendants should be presumed to be innocent at this stage of the trial. End of note. We discussed the situation in chambers. Fortunately, the bailiffs had brought the jury back from lunch before the story broke. They remained sequestered in a room upstairs, and so as yet there was no chance of their having been exposed. 
Canarac moved for a mistrial. Denied. Ever suspicious that the sequestration was not effective, he asked that the jurors be voir dire to see if any had heard the news. As Aaron put it, it would be like waving a red flag. If they didn't know about it before, they certainly will after the voir dire. Older denied the motion without prejudice, so it could be renewed at a later time. He also said he would tell the bailiffs to inaugurate unusually stringent security measures. Later that afternoon, the windows of the bus used to transport the jury to and from the hotel were coated with Bonami to prevent the jurors from seeing the inevitable headlines. There was a TV set in their joint recreation room at the Ambassador. Ordinarily, they could watch any program they wished except the news, a bailiff changing the channels. Tonight, it would remain dark. Newspapers would also be banned from the courtroom, older specifically instructing the attorneys to make sure none were on the council table, where they might inadvertently be seen by the jury. When we returned to court, there was a smug grin on Manson's face. It remained there all afternoon. It isn't every criminal who merits the attention of the President of the United States. Charlie had made the big time. The jury was brought down, and Atkins's defense attorney, Day Shin, began his cross-examination of Linda. Apparently intent on implying that I had coached Linda in her testimony, he asked, Do you recall what Mr. Bugliosi said to you during your first meeting? Answer, Well, he is always stressed for me to tell the truth. Question, Besides the truth I'm talking about, as if anything else were important. Question, did Mr. Bugliosi ever tell you that some of your statements were wrong or some of your answers were not logical or did not make sense? Answer. No, I told him. He never told me. Question. The fact that you were pregnant, wasn't that the reason that you stayed outside the Tate residence instead of going inside to participate? Answer. Whether I was pregnant or not, I would never have killed anybody. Shin gave up after only an hour and a half. Linda's testimony remained unshaken. With a heavy, ponderous shuffle, Irving Canarak approached the witness stand. His demeanor was deceiving. There was no relaxing when Canarak was cross-examining. At any moment, he might blurt out something objectionable. There was also no anticipating him. He'd suddenly skip from one subject to another with no hint of a connecting link. Many of his questions were so complex that even he lost the thought and had to have the court reporter read them back to him. It was excruciatingly tiring listening to him. It was also very important that I do so, since unlike the two attorneys who preceded him, Canarek scored points. He brought out, for example, that when Linda returned to California to reclaim Tanya, she told the social worker that she'd left the state on August 6th or 7th, which, had this been true, would have been before the Tate-LaBianca murders occurred. If accurate, this meant that Linda had fabricated all of her testimony regarding those murders. And if she had lied to the social worker to get her daughter back, Canarak implied, she could very well lie to this court to get her own freedom. But mostly he rambled and droned on and on, tiring the spectators as well as the witness. Many of the reporters wrote off Canarak early in the proceedings. Given a choice of defense attorneys, they quoted Fitzgerald, whose questions were better phrased. But it was Canarak, in the midst of his verbosity, who was scoring. He was also beginning to get to Linda. At the end of the day, her sixth on the stand, she looked a little fatigued and her answers were less sharp. 
No one knew how many days of this lay ahead, since Canarac, unlike the other attorneys, consistently avoided answering Older's questions about the estimated length of his cross-examination. On my way home that night, I was again thankful the jury had been sequestered. You could see the headlines on every newsstand. The car radio had periodic updates. Hughes. I am guilty of contempt for uttering a dirty word, but Nixon has the contempt of the world to face. Fitzgerald. It is very discouraging when the world's single most important person comes out against you. The most reported quote was that of Manson, who had passed a statement to the press via one of the defense attorneys. Mimicking Nixon's remarks, it was unusually short and to the point. Here's a man who is accused of murdering hundreds of thousands in Vietnam, who is accusing me of being guilty of eight murders. The next day, in chambers, Canarac charged the president with conspiracy. The district attorney of Los Angeles County is running for attorney general of California. I say it without being able to prove it, that Avell Younger and the president got together to do this. If this was so, Canarac said, he shouldn't be president of the United States. The court. That will have to be decided in some other proceeding, Mr. Canarac. Let's stay with the issues here. I am satisfied there has been no exposure of any of these jurors to anything the press may have said. I see no reason for taking any further action at this time. Canarac resumed his cross-examination. On direct, Linda had stated that she had taken some 50 LSD trips. Canarac now asked her to describe what had happened on trip number 23. Bugliosi. I object to that question as being ridiculous, Your Honor. Though there is no such objection in the rule books, I felt there should be. Apparently, Judge Older felt similarly, as he sustained the objection, as well as others when I objected that a question had been repeated ad nauseum or was nonsensical. Just after the noon recess, Manson suddenly stood and, turning toward the jury box, held up a copy of the front page of the Los Angeles Times. A bailiff grabbed it, but not before Manson had shown the jury the huge black headline. Manson guilty, Nixon declares. Older had the jury taken out. He then demanded to know which attorney, against his express orders, had brought a newspaper into court. There were several denials, but no one confessed. There was no question now that the jury would have to be voir dired. Each member was brought in separately and questioned by the judge under oath. Of the twelve jurors and six alternates, eleven were aware of the full headline. Two saw only the words Manson guilty. Four only saw the paper or the name Manson. And one, Mr. Zamora, didn't see anything. I was looking at the clock at the time. Each was also questioned as to his or her reaction. Mrs. McKenzie. Well, my first thought was, that's ridiculous. Mr. McBride. I think if the president declared that, it was pretty stupid of him. Miss Mesmer. No one does my thinking for me. Mr. Dot, I didn't vote for Nixon in the first place. After an extensive voir dire, all 18 stated under oath that they had not been influenced by the headline and that they would consider only the evidence presented to them in court. Knowing something about jurors, I was inclined to believe them for a very simple reason. Jurors consider themselves privileged insiders. Day after day, they are a part of the courtroom drama. They hear the evidence. They and they alone determine its importance. 
They tend very strongly to think of themselves as the experts, those outside the courtroom, the amateurs. As juror Dawson put it, he'd listened to every bit of the testimony. Nixon hadn't. I don't believe Mr. Nixon knows anything about it. My overall feeling was that the jurors were annoyed with the president for attempting to usurp their role. It was quite possible that the statement might even have helped Manson, causing them to be even more determined that they, unlike the president, would give him every benefit of the doubt. A number of national columnists stated that if Manson was convicted, his conviction would be reversed on appeal because of Nixon's statement. On the contrary, since it was Manson himself who brought the headline to the attention of the jury, this was invited error, which simply means that a defendant cannot benefit from his own wrongdoing. One aspect of this did concern me just a little. It was a subtler point. Although the headlines declared that Manson, not the girls, was guilty, it could be argued that as Manson's co-defendants, the guilt slopped over onto them. Although I assumed this would be an issue they would raise on appeal, I felt fairly certain it would not constitute reversible error. There are errors in every trial, but most do not warrant a reversal by the appellate courts. This might have, had not older voir dired the jury and obtained their sworn statements that they would not be influenced by the incident. Nor did the three female defendants exactly help their case when the next day they stood up and said in perfect unison, Your Honor, the President said we are guilty, so why go on with the trial? Older had not given up his search for the culprit. Day Shin now admitted that just before court resumed, he'd walked over to the file cabinet where the bailiff had placed the confiscated papers, and had picked up several and brought them back to the council table. He'd intended to read the sports pages, he said, unaware that the front pages were also attached. Declaring Shin in direct contempt of court, Older ordered him to spend three nights in the county jail, commencing as soon as court adjourned. We were already past the usual adjournment time. Shin asked for an hour to move his car and get a toothbrush, but Older denied the motion and Shin was remanded into custody. The next morning, Shin asked for a continuance. Being in a strange bed and an even stranger place, he hadn't slept well the night before, and he didn't feel he could effectively defend his client. These were not all of his troubles, Shin admitted. I am now having marital problems, Your Honor. My wife thinks I am spending the night with some other woman. She doesn't read English. Now my dog won't even talk to me. Declining comment on his domestic woes, Older suggested that Shin catch a nap during the noon recess. Motion denied. Irving Canerac kept Linda Kasabian on the stand seven days. It was cross-examination in the most literal sense. For example, Mrs. Kasabian, did you go to Spawn Ranch because you wanted to seek out fresh men, men that you had not had previous relations with? Unlike Fitzgerald and Shin, Canerac examined Linda's testimony regarding those two nights as if under a microscope. The problem with this, as far as the defense was concerned, was that some of her most damning statements were repeated two, three, even more times. Nor was Canerac content to score a point and move on. Frequently, he dwelt on a subject so long he negated his own argument. For example, Linda had testified that on the night of the Tate murders, her mind was clear. She had also testified that after seeing the shooting of Parent, she went into a state of shock. Canerac did not stop at pointing out the seeming contradiction, but asked exactly when her state of shock ended. Answer, 
I don't know when it ended. I don't know if it ever ended. Question. Your mind was completely clear, is that right? Answer. Yes. Question. You weren't under the influence of any drug, is that right? Answer. No. Question. You weren't under the influence of anything, right? Answer. I was under the influence of Charlie. Although Linda remained responsive to the questions, it was obvious that Canarac was wearing her down. On August 7th, we lost a juror and a witness. Juror Walter Vizzelio was excused because both he and his wife were in ill health. The ex-security guard was replaced by lot by one of the alternates, Larry Sheely, a telephone maintenance man. That same day, I learned that Randy Starr had died at the Veterans Administration Hospital of an undetermined illness. The former Spawn ranch hand and part-time stuntman had been prepared to identify the Tate-Sebring rope as identical with the one Manson had. Even more important, since Randy had given Manson the .22 caliber revolver, his testimony would have literally placed the gun in Manson's hand. Though I had other witnesses who could testify to these key points, I was admittedly suspicious of Starr's sudden demise. Learning no autopsy had been performed, I ordered one. Starr, it was determined, had died of natural causes from an ear infection. Canarac. Mrs. Kasabian, I show you this picture. Answer. Oh, God. Linda turned her face away. It was the color photo of the very pregnant and very dead Sharon Tate. This was the first time Linda had seen the photograph, and she was so shaken, Older called a ten-minute recess. There was no evidence whatsoever that Linda Kasabian had been inside the Tate residence or that she had seen Sharon Tate's body. Aaron and I therefore questioned Canarex showing her the photograph. Fitzgerald argued that it was entirely possible that Mrs. Kasabian had been inside both the Tate and LaBianca residences and had participated in all of the murders. Older ruled that Canarex could show her the photo. Canarek then showed Linda the death photo of Wojciech Vykowski. Answer. He is the man that I saw at the door. Canarek. Mrs. Kasabian, why are you crying right now? Answer. Because I can't believe it. It is just... Question. You can't believe what, Mrs. Kasabian? Answer. That they could do that. Question. I see. Not that you could do that, but that they could do that? Answer. I know I didn't do that. Question. You were in a state of shock, weren't you? Answer. That's right. Question. Then how do you know? Answer. Because I know. I do not have that kind of thing in me to do such an animalistic thing. Canarek showed Linda the death photos of all five of the Tate victims, as well as those of Rosemary and Lino LaBianca. He even insisted that she handle the leather thong that had bound Lino's wrists. Perhaps Canarek hoped that he would so unnerve Linda that she would make some damaging admission. Instead, he only succeeded in emphasizing that, in contrast to the other defendants, Linda Kasabian was a sensitive human being, capable of being deeply disturbed by the hideousness of these acts. Showing Linda the photos was a mistake and the other defense attorney soon realized this. Each time Canarek held up a picture, 
then asked her to look closely at some minute detail. The jurors winced or squirmed uncomfortably in their chairs. Even Manson protested that Canarek was acting on his own. And still Canarek persisted. Ronald Hughes approached me in the hall during a recess. I want to apologize, Vince. No apology necessary, Ron. It was a heat-of-the-moment remark. I'm only sorry that Older found you in contempt. No, I don't mean that, Hughes said. What I did was a hell of a lot worse. I was the one who suggested that Irving Canarek become Manson's attorney. On Monday, August 10, 1970, the people petitioned the court for immunity for Linda Kasabian. Though Judge Older signed the petition the same day, it was not until the 13th that he formally dropped all charges against her and she was released. She had been in custody since December 3, 1969. Unlike Manson, Atkins, Krenwinkel, and Van Houten, she had been in solitary confinement the whole time. My wife, Gail, was worried. What if she goes back on her testimony, Vince? Susan Atkins did. Mary Bruner did. Now that she has immunity. Honey, I have confidence in Linda, I told her. I did, yet in the back of my mind was the question, where would the people's case be if that confidence was misplaced? The next day, Manson passed Linda a long handwritten letter. It seemed at first mostly nonsensical. Only on looking closer did one notice that key phrases had been marked with tiny check marks. Extracted, spelling errors intact, they read, Love can never stop if it's love. The joke is over. Look at the end and begin again. Just give yourself to your love and give your love to be free. If you were not saying what you're saying, there would be no trial. Don't lose your love. It's only there for you. Why do you think they killed J.C.? Answer, because he was a devil and bad. No one liked him. Don't let anyone have this or they will find a way to use it against me. This trial of man's son will only show the world that each man judges himself. Coming just after she had been granted immunity, the message could only have one meaning. Manson was attempting to woo Linda back into the family, in hopes that once freed, she would repudiate her testimony. Her answer was to give the letter to me. Though a number of people had seen Manson pass Linda the letter, Canarak maintained that she had grabbed it out of his hand. The most effective cross-examination of Linda Kasabian was surprisingly that of Ronald Hughes. Though this was his first trial, and he frequently made procedural mistakes, Hughes was familiar with the hippie subculture, having been a part of it. He knew about drugs, mysticism, karma, auras, vibrations. And when he questioned Linda about these things, he made her look just a little odd, just a wee bit zingy. He had her admitting that she believed in ESP that there were times at Spawn when she actually felt she was a witch. Question. Do you feel that you are controlled by Mr. Manson's vibrations? Answer. Possibly. Question. Did he put off a lot of vibes? Answer. Sure, he's doing it right now. Hughes. May the record reflect, Your Honor, that Mr. Manson is merely sitting here. Canarac. He doesn't seem to be vibrating. Hughes asked Linda so many questions about drugs that, had an unknowing spectator walked into court, he would have assumed Linda was on trial for possession. 
Yet Linda's alert replies in themselves disproved the charge that LSD had destroyed her mind. Question. Now, Mrs. Kasabian, you testified that you thought Mr. Manson was Jesus Christ. Did you ever feel that anybody else was Jesus Christ? Answer. The biblical Jesus Christ. Question. When did you stop thinking that Mr. Manson was Jesus Christ? Answer. The night at the Tate residence. Though I felt confident the jury was impressed with Linda, I was pleased to hear an independent evaluation. Hughes requested that the court appoint psychiatrists to examine Linda. Older replied, I find no basis for a psychiatric examination in this case. She appears to be perfectly lucid and articulate. I find no evidence of aberration of any kind insofar as her ability to recall, to relate. In all respects, she has been remarkably articulate and responsive. The motion will be denied. Hughes ended his cross-examination of Linda very effectively. Question. You have testified that you have had trips on marijuana, hash, THC, morning glory seeds, psilocybin, LSD, mescaline, peyote, methadrine, and romalar. Is that right? Answer. Yes. Question. And in the last year, you have had the following major delusions. You have believed that Charles Manson is Jesus Christ, is that right? Answer. Yes. Question. And you believed yourself to be a witch? Answer. Yes. Hughes. Your Honor, I have no further questions at this time. The basic purpose of redirect examination is to rehabilitate the witness. Linda needed little rehabilitating, other than being allowed to explain more fully replies which the defense had cut off. For example, I brought out that Linda meant state of shock figuratively, not medically, and that she was very much aware of what was going on. On redirect, the prosecution can also explore areas first opened on cross-examination. Since the theft of the $5,000 had come out on cross, I was able to bring in the mitigating circumstances, that after stealing the money, Linda had turned it over to the family, and that she neither saw it again nor benefited from it. Not until the redirect was I able to bring out why Linda had fled Spawn Ranch without Tanya. The delay in getting this in was actually beneficial, I felt, for by this time the jury knew Linda Kasabian well enough to accept her explanation. Direct. Cross. Redirect. Recross. Re-redirect. Re-recross. Just before noon on Wednesday, August 19th, Linda Kasabian finally stepped down from the stand. She had been up there 17 days, longer than most trials. Though the defense had been given a 20-page summary of all my interviews with her, as well as copies of all her letters to me, not once had she been impeached with a prior inconsistent statement. I was very proud of her. If ever there was a star witness for the prosecution, Linda Kasabian was it. Following the completion of her testimony, she flew back to New Hampshire for a reunion with her two children. For Linda, however, the ordeal was not yet over. Canarac asked that she be subject to recall by the defense, and she would also have to testify when Watson was brought to trial. Randy Starr was not the only witness the people lost during August. Still afflicted with wanderlust, Robert Kasabian and Charles Melton had gone to Hawaii. I asked Linda's attorney, Gary Fleischman, if he could locate them, 
but he said they were off on some uncharted island, meditating in a cave, and there was no way to reach them. I'd wanted Milton especially to testify to Texas' remark, maybe Charlie will let me grow a beard someday. The loss of the other witness was a far greater blow to the prosecution. Saladin Nodder, the actor whose life Linda had saved the night the LaBiancas were killed, had moved out of his apartment. He told friends he was going to Europe, but left no forwarding address. Although I requested the LaBianca detectives to try to locate him through the Lebanese consulate and the immigration service, they were unsuccessful. I then asked them to interview his former landlady, Mrs. Eleanor Lally, who could at least testify that during August 1969, the actor had occupied apartment 501, 1101 Oceanfront Walk, Venice. But with Nodder's disappearance, we lost the only witness who could even partially corroborate Linda Kasabian's story of that second night. On August 18th, however, we found a witness, one of the most important yet to appear. Over seven months after I had first tried to get Watkins and Poston to persuade him to come in for an interview, Juan Flynn decided he was ready to talk. Fearful that he would become a prosecution witness, the family had launched a campaign of harassment against the tall, lanky Panamanian cowboy that included threatening letters, hang-up phone calls, and cars racing past his trailer in the night their occupants oinking or shouting, Pig. All this had made Juan mad, mad enough to contact LASO, who in turn called LAPD. Since I was in court, Sartucci interviewed Flynn that afternoon at Parker Center. It was a short interview, transcribed, it ran to only 16 pages, but it contained one very startling disclosure. Sartucci. When did you first become aware of the fact that Charles Manson was being charged with the crimes that he is presently on trial for? Flynn. I became aware of the crimes that he is being charged with when he admitted to me of the killings that were taking place. In his broken English, Flynn was saying that Manson had admitted the murders to him. Question. Was there any conversation about the LaBiancas, or was that all at the same time, or what? Answer. Well, I don't know if it was at the same time, but he led me to believe. He told me that he was the main cause for these murders to be committed. Question. Did he say anything more than that? Answer. He admitted, he boasted, of 35 lives taken in a period of two days. When LAPD brought him to my office, I hadn't yet talked to Sartucci or heard the interview tape. So when in interviewing Flynn, I learned of Manson's very incriminating admission, it came as a complete surprise. In questioning Juan, I established that the conversation had taken place in the kitchen at Spawn Ranch, two to four days after the news of the Tate murders broke on TV. Juan had just sat down to lunch when Manson came in and, with his right hand, brushed his left shoulder, apparently a signal that the others were to get out, since they immediately did. Aware that something was up, but not what, Juan started to eat. Ever since the arrival of the family at Spawn Ranch, Manson had been trying to get the six-foot-five cowboy to join them. Manson had told Flynn, I will get you a big gold bracelet and put diamonds on it, and you can be my head zombie. There were other enticements. When first offered the same bait as the other males, Juan had sampled it eagerly, to his regret. That damn case of clap just wouldn't go away, Juan told me. Not for three, four months. Though he had remained at Spawn, Juan had refused to be anybody's zombie, let alone little Charlie's. Of late, however, Manson had become more insistent. 
Suddenly, Manson grabbed Juan by the hair, yanked his head back, and putting a knife to his throat, said, You son of a bitch, don't you know I'm the one who's doing all of these killings? Even though Manson had not mentioned the Tate-LaBianca murders by name, his admission was a tremendously powerful piece of evidence. Note. Legally, Manson's statement was an admission rather than a confession. An admission is a statement by a defendant which is not a complete acknowledgement of guilt, but which tends to prove guilt when considered with the rest of the evidence. A confession is a statement by a defendant which discloses his intentional participation in the criminal act for which he is on trial, and which discloses his guilt for that crime. End of note. The razor-sharp blade still on Juan's throat, Manson asked, Are you going to come with me, or do I have to kill you? Juan replied, I am eating, and I am right here, you know. Manson put the knife on the table. Okay, he said. You kill me. Resuming eating, Juan said, I don't want to do that, you know. Looking very agitated, Manson told him, Helter Skelter is coming down, and we've got to go to the desert. He then gave Juan a choice. He could oppose him or join him. If he wanted to join him, Charlie said, go down to the waterfall and make love to my girls. Manson's My Girls was in itself a powerful piece of evidence. Juan told Charlie that the next time he wanted to contract a nine-month case of syphilis or gonorrhea, he'd let him know. It was at this point that Manson boasted of killing 35 people in two days. Juan considered it just that, a boast, and I was inclined to agree. If there had been more than seven Manson-ordered murders during that two-day period, I was sure that at some point in the investigation we would have found evidence of them. Two, as far as the immediate trial was concerned, the latter statement was useless, as it was obviously inadmissible as evidence. Eventually, Manson picked up the knife and walked out. And Juan suddenly realized he didn't have much appetite left. I talked to Juan over four hours that night. Manson's admission was not the only surprise. Manson had told Juan in June or July 1969, while Juan, Bruce Davis, and Clem were standing on the boardwalk at Spawn, Well, I have come down to it. The only way to get Helter Skelter going is for me to go down there and show the black man how to do it, by killing a whole bunch of those fucking pigs. Among Flynn's other revelations, Manson had threatened to kill him several times, once shooting at him with the twenty-two Longhorn revolver. On several occasions, Manson had suggested that Juan kill various people. And Flynn had not only seen the group leave Spawn on probably the same night the LaBiancas were killed. Sadie had told him just before they left, we're going to get some fucking pigs. Suddenly, Juan Flynn became one of the prosecution's most important witnesses. The problem now was protecting him until he took the stand. Throughout our interview, Juan had been extremely nervous. He'd tense at the slightest noise in the hall. He admitted that, because of his fear, he hadn't had a full night's sleep in months. He asked me if there was any way he could be locked up until it came time for him to testify. I called LAPD and requested that Juan be put in either jail or a hospital. I didn't care which, just so long as he was off the streets. Bemused by this unusual turnabout, Sartucci, when he picked up Juan, asked him what he wanted to be arrested for. Well, Juan said, thinking a bit, he wanted to confess to drinking a beer in the desert a couple of months ago. Since he was in a national park, that was against the law. 
Flynn was arrested and booked on that charge. Juan remained in jail just long enough to decide he didn't like it one bit. After three or four days, he tried to contact me. Unable to reach me right away, he called Spawn Ranch and left a message for one of the ranch hands to come down and bail him out. The family intercepted the message and sent Irving Canarac instead. Canarac paid Juan's bail and bought him breakfast. He instructed Juan, don't talk to anyone. When Juan had finished eating, Canarac told him that he had already called Squeaky and the girls and that they were on their way over to pick him up. Hearing this, Juan split. Though he remained in hiding, he called in periodically to assure me that he was still all right and that when the time came, he would be there to testify. Although it would never be mentioned in the trial, Juan had a special reason for testifying. Shorty Shea had been his best friend. August 19th to September 6th, 1970. After Kasabian left the stand, I called a series of witnesses whose detailed testimony either supported or corroborated her account. These included Tim Ireland, counselor at the girls' school down the hill from the Tate residence, who heard the cries and screams, Rudolph Weber, who described the hosing incident and dropped one bombshell, the license plate number, John Swartz, who confirmed that was the number on his car, and who told how, on two different nights in the first part of August 1969, Manson had borrowed the vehicle without asking permission. Winifred Chapman, who described her arrival at 10,050 Shallow Drive on the morning of August 9, 1969. Jim Ason, who called the police after Mrs. Chapman ran down Shallow screaming, murder, death, bodies, blood. The first LAPD officers to arrive at the scene, DeRosa, Wisenhunt, and Burbridge, who described their grisly find. Bit by bit, piece by piece, from Chapman's arrival to the examination of the cut phone wires by the telephone company representative, the scene was recreated. The horror seemed to linger in the courtroom even after the witnesses had left the stand. Since Leslie Van Houten was not charged with the five Tate murders, Hughes did not question any of these witnesses. He did, however, make an interesting motion. He asked that he and his client be permitted to absent themselves from the courtroom while those murders were discussed. Though the motion was denied, his attempt to separate his client from these events ran directly counter to Manson's collective defense, and I wondered how Charlie was reacting to it. When McGann took the stand, I questioned him at some length as to what he had found at the Tate residence. The relevancy of many of the details, the pieces of gun grip, the dimensions and type of rope, the absence of shell casings, and so on, would become apparent to the jury later. I was especially interested in establishing that there was no evidence of ransacking or robbery. I also got in, ahead of the defense, that drugs had been found, and a pair of eyeglasses. Anticipating the next witness, Los Angeles County Coroner Thomas Noguchi, Canarac asked for a conference in chambers. He'd had a change of heart, Canarac said, Though he'd earlier shown the death photos to Mrs. Kasabian, I have thought about it and I believe I was in error, Your Honor. Canarac asked that the photos, particularly those which were in color, be excluded. Motion denied. The photos could be used for identification purposes, Older ruled. As to their admissibility as evidence, that motion would be heard at a later time. Each time Canarac tried such a tactic, I thought, surely he can't better this and each time I found he not only could, but did. Although I had interviewed Dr. Noguchi several times, I had a last conference with him in my office before we went to court, 
The coroner, who had conducted Sharon Tate's autopsy, as well as supervised those of the other four Tate victims, had a habit of holding back little surprises. There are enough of these in a trial without getting them from your own witnesses, so I asked him outright if there was anything he hadn't told me. Well, one thing, he admitted. He hadn't mentioned it in the autopsy reports, but after studying the abrasions on her left cheek, he had concluded, Sharon Tate was hung. This was not the cause of death, he said, and she had probably been suspended less than a minute, but he was convinced the abrasions were rope burns. I revised my interrogation sheets to get this in. Although almost all of Dr. Noguchi's testimony was important, several portions were especially so in terms of corroborating Linda Kasabian. Noguchi testified that many of the stab wounds penetrated bones. Linda had testified that Patricia Krenwinkel had complained that her hand hurt from her knife striking bones. Linda testified that the two knives she'd thrown out the car window had about the same blade length, estimating with her hands an approximate length of between five and one-half and six and one-half inches. Dr. Noguchi testified that many of the wounds were a full five inches in depth. This was not only close to Linda's approximation, it also emphasized the extreme viciousness of the assaults. Linda estimated the blade width at about one inch. Dr. Noguchi said the wounds were caused by a blade with a width of between one and one and one-half inches. Linda estimated the thickness as maybe two or three times that of an ordinary kitchen knife. Dr. Noguchi said the thickness varied from one-eighth to one-half inch, which corresponded to Linda's approximation. Linda, who on Manson's instructions had several times honed knives similar to these while at Spawn Ranch, testified that the knives were sharpened on both sides, on one side all the way back to the hilt, on the other at least an inch back from the tip. Dr. Noguchi testified that about two-thirds of the wounds had been made by a blade or blades that had been sharpened on both sides for a distance of about one and one-half to two inches, one side then flattening out while the other remained keen. Note. The other one-third of the wounds, Noguchi said, could have been made by a single-edged blade but he didn't rule out the possibility that even these might have been made by a double-edged weapon, the unsharpened portion blunting the wound pattern so it appeared, on the surface, that a single-edged blade had been used. End of note. As I'd later argue to the jury, Linda's description of those two knives, their thickness, width, length, even the fine point of the double-edged blade, was strong evidence that the two knives she was talking about were the same knives Dr. Noguchi had described. In his cross-examination of Noguchi, Canarac not only repeatedly referred to the victim's passing away, he spoke of Abigail Folger running to her place of repose. It was beginning to sound like a guided tour of forest lawn. The idiocy of all this was not lost on Manson. He complained, Your Honor, this lawyer is not doing what I am asking him to do, not even by a small margin. He is not my attorney, he is your attorney. I would like to dismiss this man and get another attorney. I was not sure whether Manson was serious or not. Even if he wasn't, it was still a good tactical move. Charlie was, in effect, telling the jury, don't judge me by what this man says or does. Canarac then questioned Noguchi about each of Miss Folger's 28 stab wounds. His purpose, as he admitted at the bench, was to establish the culpability of Linda Kasabian. Had she run for help, he suggested, perhaps Miss Folger might still be alive. There were several problems with this. At least for the purpose of the questioning, Canarac was in effect admitting Linda's presence at the scene. 
He was also stressing, over and over and over again, the involvement of Patricia Krenwinkel. There was nothing unethical about this. Canarek's client was Manson. What was surprising was that Krenwinkel's own attorney, Paul Fitzgerald, didn't object more often. Aaron spotted the basic fallacy of all this. Your Honor, had Dr. Christian Bernard been present with an operating room already set up to operate on the victim, the wound to the aorta would still have been fatal. Later, while the jury was out, Older asked Manson if he still desired to replace Canarac. By this time, Charlie had changed his mind. During the discussion, Manson made an interesting observation as to his own feelings on the progress of the trial thus far. We did pretty good at the first of it. Then we kind of lost control when the testimony started. Although Channel 7 newscaster Al Wyman had actually been the first to spot the clothing the TV crew found, we called cameraman King Baggett to the stand instead. Had we used Wyman as a witness, he wouldn't have been able to cover any portion of the trial for his station. Before Baggett was sworn, the judge and attorneys conferred with him at the bench to make sure there was no mention of the fact that Susan Atkins's confession had led them to the clothing. Thus, when Baggett testified, the jury got the impression that the TV crew just made a lucky guess. After Baggett identified the various items of apparel, we called Joe Granato of SID. Joe was to testify to the blood samples he had taken. Joe wasn't on the stand very long. He'd forgotten his notes and had to go get them. Fortunately, we had another witness ready, Helen Tabb, the deputy at Sybil Brand who had obtained the sample of Susan Atkins's hair. Although I liked Joe as a person, as a witness he left much to be desired. He appeared very disorganized, couldn't pronounce many of the technical terms of his trade, often gave vague, inconclusive answers. Granado's failure to take samples from many of the spots, as well as his failure to run subtypes on many of the samples he had taken, didn't exactly add to his impressiveness. I was particularly concerned about his having taken so few samples from the two pools of blood outside the front door. I took a random sampling, then I assumed the rest of it was the same, and his failure to test the blood on the bushes next to the porch. At the time, I guess, I assumed all of the blood was of similar origin. My concern here was that those samples he had taken matched in type and subtype the blood of Sharon Tate and Jay Sebring, although there was no evidence that either had run out the front door. While I could argue to the jury that the killers, or Frykowski himself, had tracked out the blood, I could foresee the defense using this to cast doubt on Linda's story. So I asked Joe, You don't know if the random sampling is representative of the blood type of the whole area here? Answer, That is correct. I would have had to scoop everything up. Granato also testified to finding the buck knife in the chair, and the clock radio in Parent's car. Unfortunately, someone at LAPD had apparently been playing the radio, as the dial no longer read 12.15 a.m., and I had to bring out that this occurred after Granato observed the time setting. Shortly after the trial, Joe Granato left LAPD to join the FBI. Denied access to the courtroom, the family began a vigil outside the Hall of Justice at the corner of Temple and Broadway. I'm waiting for my father to get out of jail, Sandy told reporters as she knelt on the sidewalk next to one of the busiest intersections in the city of Los Angeles. We will remain here, Squeaky told TV interviewers, as traffic slowed and people gawked, until all our brothers and sisters are set free. 
In interviews, the girls referred to the trial as the second crucifixion of Christ. At night, they slept in the bushes next to the building. When the police stopped that, they moved their sleeping bags into a white van which they parked nearby. By day, they knelt or sat on the sidewalk, granted interviews, tried to convert the curious young. It was easy to tell the hardcore Mansonites from the transient camp followers. Each of the former had an X carved on his or her forehead. Each also wore a sheathed hunting knife. Since the knives were in plain view, they couldn't be arrested for carrying concealed weapons. The police did bust them several times for loitering, but after a warning, or at most a few days in jail, they were back, and after a time the police left them alone. Nearby city and county office buildings provided restroom facilities, also public phones, where at certain prearranged times, one of the girls would await check-in calls from other family members, including those wanted by the police. Several sob sisters who were covering the trial wrote largely sympathetic stories about their innocent, fresh, wholesome good looks and their devotion. They also often gave them money. Whether it was used for food or other purposes is not known. We did know the family was adding to its hidden caches of arms and ammunition. The family was against hunting animals, and it was a safe guess that they were stockpiling for something other than self-protection. The deaths of her mother and stepfather had caused Susan Struthers to have a nervous breakdown. Though she was slowly recovering, we called Frank Struthers to the stand to identify photographs of Lino and Rosemary LaBianca and to describe what he'd found on returning home that Sunday night. Shown the wallet found in the standard station, Frank positively identified it and the watch in the change compartment as his mother's. On questioning by Aaron, Frank also testified that he had been unable to find anything else missing from the residence. Ruth Civic testified to feeding the LaBianca dogs on Saturday afternoon. No, she saw no bloody words on the refrigerator door. Yes, she had opened and closed the door to get the food for the dogs. News vendor John Fokianos, who testified to talking to Rosemary and Lino between 1 and 2 a.m. that Sunday, was followed by Hollywood Division officers Rodriguez and Klein, who described their arrival and discoveries at the crime scene. Klein testified to the bloody writings. Galindo, the first of the homicide officers to arrive, gave a detailed description of the premises, also stating, I found no signs of ransacking. I found many items of value, which he then enumerated. Detective Broda testified to seeing, just prior to the autopsy of Lino LaBianca, the knife protruding from his throat, which, because of the pillowcase over the victim's head, the other officers had missed. This brought us to Deputy Medical Examiner David Katsuyama and a host of problems. According to the first LaBianca investigative report, the bread knife recovered from Lino LaBianca's throat appeared to be the weapon used in both homicides. There was absolutely no scientific basis for this, since Katsuyama, who conducted both autopsies, had failed to measure most of the victim's wounds. However, since the knife belonged to the LaBiancas, if this was let stand, the defense could maintain that the killers had gone to the residence unarmed. Ergo, they did not intend to commit murder. While a killing committed during the commission of a robbery is still first-degree murder, this could affect whether the defendants escaped the death penalty. More important, it negated our whole theory of the case, which was that Manson, and Manson alone, had a motive for these murders, and that that motive was not robbery, a motive thousands of people could have, but to ignite helter-skelter. 
Shortly after I received the LaBianca reports, I ordered scale blow-ups of the autopsy photos and asked Katsuyama to measure the length and thickness of the wounds. Initially, I presumed there was no way to determine their depth, which would indicate the minimum length of the blade. However, in going over the coroner's original diagrams, I discovered that two of Rosemary LaBianca's wounds had been probed, one to the depth of five inches, the other five and one-half inches, while two of Lino LaBianca's wounds were five and one-half inches deep. After many, many requests, Katsuyama finally measured the photos. I then compared his measurements with those of the bread knife. They came out as follows. Length of blade of bread knife, four and seven-eighths inches. Depth of deepest measurable wound, five and one-half inches. Thickness of blade of bread knife, just under one-sixteenth of an inch. Thickness of thickest wound, three-sixteenths of an inch. Width of blade of bread knife, from three-eighths to one and three-sixteenths inch. Width of widest wound, one and one-fourth inches. There was no way, I concluded, that the LaBianca's bread knife could have caused all the wounds. Length, width, thickness. In each, the dimensions of the bread knife were smaller than the wounds themselves. Therefore, the killers must have brought their own knives. Recalling, however, how Katsuyama had confused a leather thong for electrical cord before the grand jury, I showed him the two sets of figures and, questioning him in much the same manner as I would in court, asked him, had he formed an opinion as to whether the bread knife found in Lino LaBianca's throat could have made all of the wounds? Yes, he had, Katsuyama replied. What was his opinion? Yes, it could have. Suppressing a groan, I asked him to compare the figures again. This time he concluded there was no way the LaBianca knife could have made all those wounds. To be doubly safe, the day I was to call him to the stand, I interviewed him again in my office. Again, he decided the knife could have made the wounds. Then again, he changed his mind. Doctor, I told him, I'm not trying to coach you. If it's your professional opinion that all the wounds were made by the bread knife, fine. But the figures that you yourself gave me indicate that the bread knife couldn't possibly have caused all the wounds. Now, which is it? Only don't tell me one thing now and something different on the stand. You've got to make up your mind. Even though he stuck to his last reply, I had more than a few apprehensive moments when it came time to question him in court. However, he testified, These dimensions of the bread knife are much smaller than many of the wounds which I previously described. Question. So it's your opinion that this bread knife, which was removed from Mr. LaBianca's throat, could not have caused many of the other wounds, is that correct? Answer. Yes, it is. Rosemary LaBianca, Katsuyama also testified, had been stabbed 41 times, 16 of which wounds, mostly in her back and buttocks, having been made after she had died. Under questioning, Katsuyama explained that after death, the heart stops pumping blood to the rest of the body. Therefore, post-mortem wounds are distinguishable by their lighter color. This was very important testimony, since Leslie Van Houten told Diane Lake that she had stabbed someone who was already dead. Though Dr. Katsuyama had come through on direct, I was worried about the cross-examination. In his initial report, the deputy coroner had the LaBiancas dying on the afternoon of Sunday, August 10th, a dozen hours after their deaths actually occurred. This not only contradicted Linda's account of the events of that second night, it gave the defense an excellent opportunity to go alibi. 
Conceivably, they could call numerous people who would testify, truthfully, that while horseback riding at Spawn Ranch that Sunday afternoon, they had seen Manson, Watson, Krenwinkle, Van Houten, Atkins, Grogan, and Kasabian. I not only hadn't asked Katsuyama about the estimated time of death on direct, I hadn't even asked Noguchi this on the Tate murders, because, though I knew his testimony would have supported Linda's, I didn't want the jury to wonder why I asked Noguchi and not Katsuyama. Since Fitzgerald let off the cross-examination, he always had first chance to explode any bombs in the defense arsenal, and this was certainly a big one. But he only said, No questions, Your Honor. As to my amazement did Shin, Kanarak, and Hughes. I could think of only one possible explanation for this. Though they had received all these reports through discovery, none of the four had realized their importance. Susan Atkins had a stomachache. Though a fairly minor occurrence, in this instance, it led to Aaron Stovitz's being yanked off the Tate-LaBianca case. Four court days were lost when Susan Atkins complained of stomach pains, which the doctors who examined and tested her said did not exist. After sending the jury out, Judge Older called Susan to the stand, where she dramatically enumerated her ailments. Unimpressed and convinced she is now putting on an act, Older brought the jury back in and resumed the trial. As he was leaving the courtroom, a reporter asked Aaron what he thought of Susan's testimony. He replied, It was a performance worthy of Sarah Bernhardt. The next morning, Aaron was ordered to appear in District Attorney Younger's office. After the Rolling Stone interview, Younger had told Aaron, no more interviews. Being somewhat easygoing by nature, Aaron had trouble complying with the edict. Once, when Younger was in San Francisco, he turned on the radio to hear Aaron commenting on some aspect of the day's courtroom proceedings. Though Aaron's comments were not in violation of the gag order, on his return to L.A., Younger warned Aaron, one more interview and you're off the case. I accompanied Aaron to Younger's office. There was no way Aaron's comment could be called an interview, I argued. It was simply a passing remark. All of us had made many such during the trial. Note. Although for diplomatic reasons I didn't mention it, Younger, who was currently running for Attorney General of California on the Republican ticket, had himself called several press conferences during the trial, much to the displeasure of Judge Older. End of note. But Younger autocratically declared, No, I've made up my mind. Stovitz, you're off the case. I felt very badly about this. In my opinion, it was completely unfair. But in this case, there was no appeal. Since I had prepared the case and examined most of the witnesses, Aaron's removal did not affect this portion of the trial. We had agreed, however, that we would share the arguments to the jury, each of which would last several days. Having to handle them all myself added a tremendous burden to the load I was already carrying. In terms of time alone, it meant another two hours of preparation each night, when I was already putting in four or five. Although two young deputy DAs, Donald Musich and Stephen Kay, had been assigned to replace Aaron, neither was familiar enough with the case to handle either the questioning or the arguments. Ironically, Steve Kay had once dated family member Sandra Good, the pair, both of whom had grown up in San Diego, having gone on a date arranged by their mothers. Sergeants Bowen and Dolan of the latent print section of SID came across as the experts they were. Latents, exemplars, lift cards, smudges, fragmentary ridges, non-conductive surfaces, points of identity. 
By the time the two officers had finished, the jury had been given a mini-course in fingerprint identification. Bowen described how he had lifted the latent prints found at the Tate residence, particularly focusing on the latent found on the outside of the front door and the latent on the inside of the left French door in Sharon Tate's bedroom. Using diagrams and greatly magnified photographs I'd ordered prepared, Dolan indicated 18 points of identity between the print lifted from the front door of the Tate residence and the right ring finger on the Watson exemplar, and 17 points of identity between the print lifted from the door of the master bedroom and the left little finger on the Krenwinkel exemplar. LAPD, he testified, requires only 10 points of identity to establish a positive identification. After Dolan had testified that there has never been a reported case of two separate persons having an identical fingerprint, or of any single person having two matching prints, I brought out, through him, that in 70% of the crimes investigated by LAPD's fingerprint men, not a single readable print belonging to anyone is obtained. Therefore, I could later argue to the jury, the fact that none of Susan Atkins's prints were found inside the Tate residence did not mean she had not been there, since the absence of a clear readable print is more common than uncommon. Note. I could have broken this down further. A print matching that of a defendant is obtained at only 3% of the crime scenes visited by LAPD. Therefore, 97% of the time they don't find a matching print. 97% is a powerful statistic when introduced in a case where none of the defendant's prints are found. My reason for not mentioning it in this case was obvious. LAPD had found not one but two matching prints at 10,050 Shallow Drive. End of note. No print belonging to Manson, Krenwinkel, or Van Houten had been found at the LaBianca residence. Anticipating that the defense would argue this proved that none of them had been there, I asked Dolan about the handle of the fork found protruding from Lino LaBianca's stomach. It was ivory, he said, a surface which readily lends itself to latent prints. I then asked him, Did you secure anything at all from that fork? A smudge? A trace? A fragmentary fingerprint? Anything at all? Answer, No, sir. There was not so much as a slight smudge on it. In fact, it gave the impression to me, Canarek objected, but Older let Dolan finish, it gave the impression to me that the handle of that particular fork had been wiped. Later, Dolan testified he'd run a test. He'd grasped the fork with his fingers, then dusted it, and found fragmentary ridges. Although Mrs. Civic had opened and closed the refrigerator door about 6 p.m. on the night of the murders, Dolan had found not a smudge on the chrome handle or enamel surface of the door. However, in examining the door, he testified, he did find wipe-type marks. Also important were the locations of the Krenwinkel and Watson Latents at the Tate residence. That Krenwinkel's print had been found on the inside of the door which led from Sharon Tate's bedroom outside to the pool not only proved that Patricia Krenwinkel had been inside the residence, Together with other evidence, it indicated that she had probably chased Abigail Folger out this door. Blood spots inside the house, on the door itself, and outside the door were determined to be BMN, Abigail Folger's type and subtype. Note, although Parent and Frykowski also had BMN, there was no evidence Parent ever entered the Tate residence, while there was evidence that Frykowski had run out the front door. End of note. Therefore, finding Krenwinkel's print here was completely consistent with Linda Kasabian's testimony that she saw Abigail running from this general direction, chased by the knife-wielding Krenwinkel. Even more conclusive was the position of the Watson print. 
Although Bowen testified that it was on the outside of the front door, he'd also said that it was six to eight inches above the handle, near the edge, the tip of the finger pointing downward. As I illustrated to the jury, to leave the print where he did, Watson would have to be inside the Tate residence coming out. To make the print, had he been outside, he would have had to twist his arm in a very uncomfortable and extremely unnatural direction. Using the right ring finger and trying it both ways on a door, the reader will see what I mean. The logical assumption was that Watson left his print while chasing Frykowski, Krenwinkel while in pursuit of Folger. These were the strong points of the fingerprint testimony. There was one weak spot. Anticipating that the defense would try to make the most of those unidentified latents, 25 of the 50 found at the Tate residence, 6 of the 25 found at the LaBianca residence, I brought this out myself. But with several possible explanations. Since, as Dolan testified, no person has two matching fingerprints, it was possible the 25 unmatched Tate latents could have been made by as few as three persons, while the six at the LaBiancas could even have been made by one person. Moreover, I established through Dolan that latent fingerprints can have a long life. Under ideal conditions, those inside a residence may last for several months. I could afford to point this out, since I'd already established that the two prints I was most concerned about, Krenwinkel's and Watson's, were on surfaces Winifred Chapman had recently washed. I expected Fitzgerald to hit hardest on that one-week spot. Instead, he attacked Dolan where he was least vulnerable, his expertise. Earlier, I'd brought out that Dolan had been in the latent print section of SID for seven years, while assigned there conducting over 8,000 fingerprint investigations and comparing in excess of 500,000 latent fingerprints. Fitzgerald now asked Dolan, Correct me if my mathematics are incorrect, Sergeant, but you testified you went to the scene of 8,000 crimes. If you went to one a day and worked an average of 200 days a year, you would have been doing this for 40 years? Answer, I would have to figure that out on a piece of paper. Question, assuming that you went to one crime scene per day, is that a fair statement, that you went to one crime scene per day, Sergeant? Answer, no, sir. Question, how many crime scenes did you go to per day? Answer, anywhere for two or three years there between 15 and 20. Question, a day? Answer, yes, sir. Fitzgerald had been knocked on his rump. Instead of getting up, dusting himself off, and moving on to safer territory, he set himself up for another pratfall by trying to attack the statistics. Had he done his homework, and since a fingerprint was the only physical evidence linking his client to the murders, there was no excuse whatsoever for his not doing so, he would have learned, as the jury now did, that since 1940, SID had kept detailed records indicating exactly how many calls each officer made, the number of readable latency obtained, and the number of times a suspect is thus identified. Cataract, in his cross-examination of Dolan, tried to imply that in using benzidine to test for blood, Granado could have destroyed some of the prints at the LaBianca residence. Unfortunately for Cataract, Dolan noted that he had arrived at the LaBianca residence before Granado did. Though Canarek did less well with Dolan than some of the other prosecution witnesses, this didn't mean I could relax my guard. At any moment, he was apt to do something like the following. Canarek, Your Honor, in view of the fact that the Los Angeles Police Department did not even choose to compare Linda Kasabian's fingerprints, Pugliosi, How do you know that, Mr. Canarek? Canarek, 
I have no further questions of this witness. The court. Your comment is out of order. Bugliosi. Would your honor admonish the jury to disregard that gratuitous remark of Mr. Canarex? Holder did so. Hughes's cross was brief and to the point. Had the witness compared a fingerprint exemplar of Leslie Van Houten with the Leightons found at the LaBianca residence? Yes. And none of those prints matched the prints of Leslie Van Houten, is that correct? Yes, sir. No further questions. Hughes was learning, fast. Apparently believing Canarac was really on to something, Fitzgerald reopened his cross-examination to ask, Now, did you have occasion to compare the latent fingerprints obtained at the Tate residence and the latent fingerprints obtained at the LaBianca residence against an exemplar of one Linda Kasabian? Answer, yes, sir, I did. Question, what was the result of that comparison? Answer, Linda Kasabian's prints were not found at either scene. Fitzgerald, thank you. As much as possible, I tried to avoid embarrassing LAPD. It wasn't always possible. Earlier, for example, I'd had to bring in Sergeant DeRosa's pushing the gate control button so the jury wouldn't wonder why there was no testimony regarding that particular print. In my direct examination of 11-year-old Stephen Weiss, I stuck to his finding the 22 caliber revolver on September 1, 1969, and did not go into the subsequent events. However, Fitzgerald, on cross, brought out that although an officer had recovered the gun that same day, it was December 16, 1969, before LAPD homicide claimed the weapon, after Stephen's father called and told them they already had the gun they were looking for. Fitzgerald also brought out how, after Stephen had taken care not to eradicate any prints, the officer who picked up the gun had done so literally, putting his hands all over it. I felt sorry for the next witness. The spectators had barely stopped laughing when Officer Watson of the Valley Services Division of LAPD took the stand to testify that he was the officer who recovered the gun. Officer Watson's testimony was essential, however, for he not only identified the gun, bringing out that it was missing its right-hand grip and had a bent barrel and broken trigger guard. He also testified that it contained two live rounds and seven empty shell casings. Sergeant Calkins then testified that on December 16, 1969, he had driven from Park Center to the Valley Services Division to pick up the 22 caliber revolver. On cross, Fitzgerald brought out that between September 3rd and 5th, 1969, LAPD had sent out some 300 gun flyers, containing a photograph and detailed description of the type of revolver they were looking for, to different police agencies in the United States and Canada. Lest the jury begin wondering why LAPD hadn't recovered the gun from the Valley Services Division immediately after the flyers went out, I was forced to ask Hawkins on redirect, Did you ever send a flyer to the Valley Services Division of the Los Angeles Police Department in Van Nuys? Answer, Not to my knowledge, sir. To avoid further embarrassment to LAPD, I didn't ask how close the Valley Services Division was to the Tate residence. September 7th to 10th, 1970. Because of the state bar convention, court recessed for three days. I spent them working on my arguments and worrying about a telephone call I'd received. When court reconvened on the 10th, I made the following statement in chambers. One of our witnesses, Barbara Hoyt, has left her parents' home. I don't have all the details, but the mother said Barbara received a threat on her life 
that if she testified at this trial, she would be killed, and so will her family. I know two things. I know the threat did not come from the prosecution, and it did not come from an aunt I have that lives in Minnesota. I think the most reasonable inference is it came from the defense. I'm bringing this out because I want the defense attorneys and their clients to know that we are going to prosecute whoever is responsible for subordination of perjury. Not only will we prosecute, when our witnesses take the stand, I will do my best to bring out, in front of the jury, that they received threats on their lives. It is relevant. I suggest the defendants tell their friends this. When we returned to the courtroom, I had to leave such concerns behind and focus completely on the evidence we were presenting. It was crucial. Piece by piece, we were trying to link the gun to Spawn Ranch and Charles Manson. On Friday, before our long adjournment, Sergeant Lee of the Firearms and Explosives Unit of SID positively identified the Sebring bullet as having been fired from the gun. Lee also stated that while the other bullets recovered from the Tate scene lacked sufficient stria to make a positive identification, he found no markings or characteristics which would rule out the possibility that they too were fired from the same gun. When I attempted to question Lee about still another link in this chain, the shell casings we had found at Spawn Ranch, Fitzgerald asked to approach the bench. It was the defense's contention, he said, that the shell casings were the product of an illegal search and therefore inadmissible. Anticipating that just such an objection might be raised, I told the court, I obtained George Spawn's permission on tape. Sergeant Calkin should have it, I said. He was there with me. Only Calkins didn't have the tape. And now, nearly a week later, he still hadn't found it. Finally, I called Calkins to the stand to testify that we had obtained Spawn's permission. Cross-examined by Canarac, Calkins denied that the tape had disappeared or was lost. He just hadn't been able to locate it, he said. Older finally ruled the search valid, and Lee testified that when examined under a comparison microscope, the shell casing he'd test-fired from the gun and 15 of the shell casings he'd found at Spawn Ranch had identical firing pin compression marks. Stria, lands, grooves, firing pin marks. After hours of highly technical testimony and more than a hundred objections, most of them by Irving Canarac, we had placed the Tate murder gun at Spawn Ranch. Although he had agreed to testify, Thomas Walloman, a.k.a. T.J., was a reluctant witness. He'd never completely broken with the family. He'd drift away, drift back. He seemed attracted by the easy lifestyle, repelled by the memory of the night he saw Manson shoot Bernard Crow. Though I knew I couldn't get the shooting itself in during the guilt trial, I did question T.J. as to the events immediately prior to it. He recalled how, after receiving a telephone call, Manson borrowed Swartz's 59 Ford, got a revolver, then, with T.J. accompanying him, drove to an apartment house on Franklin Avenue in Hollywood. After stopping the car, Manson handed T.J. the revolver and told him to put it in his belt. Question. Then you both entered the apartment, is that correct? Answer. Yes. This was as far as I could go. I then showed T.J. the 22 caliber high-standard revolver and asked, have you ever seen that particular revolver before? Answer. I don't think so. It looks like it, but I don't know for sure, you know. T.J. was hedging. I wasn't about to let him get away with it. Under further questioning, he admitted that this gun differed from the gun he had seen that night in only one particular, 
half the grip was missing. Question. Now, your first statement, I believe, was to the effect that you didn't think this was the revolver, and then you said it looked like it. Answer. I mean, I don't know for sure whether it was the revolver, but it looks like the revolver. There are a lot of those made. I wasn't worried about that little qualification, for Lomax of high standard had already testified that this model was relatively uncommon. Though qualified, T.J.'s testimony was dramatic, as he was the first witness to connect Manson and the gun. LAPD contacted me that night. Barbara Hoyt was in a hospital in Honolulu. Someone had given her what was believed to be a lethal dose of LSD. Fortunately, she had been rushed to the hospital in time. I did not learn many of the details until I talked to Barbara. After fleeing Barker Ranch, the pretty 17-year-old had returned home. Though she had cooperated with us, Barbara was extremely reluctant to testify, and when she was contacted by the Manson girls on the afternoon of September 5th and offered a free vacation in Hawaii in lieu of testifying, she'd accepted. Among the family members who'd helped persuade her were Squeaky, Gypsy, Weesh, and Clem. Barbara spent that night at Spawn Ranch. The next day, Clem drove Barbara and Weesh to one of the family hideouts, a house in North Hollywood which was being rented by one of the newer family members, Dennis Rice. Note. Rice, 31, had a rap sheet that went back to 1958, and, in common with Clem, had been convicted of offenses ranging from narcotics possession to indecent exposure. He was currently on probation for assaulting a police officer. Though new to the family, he became one of its most hardcore members. End of note. Rice took the pair to the airport, bought them tickets, and gave them $50 in cash plus some credit cards, including, not inappropriately, a TWA getaway card. Using assumed names, the two girls flew to Honolulu, where they booked the penthouse suite of the Hilton Hawaiian Village Hotel. Barbara saw little of the islands, however, since Weish, sure the police would be looking for Barbara, insisted they remain in the suite. While there, the pair, who had been close friends, had several long talks. Weish told Barbara, We all have to go through helter-skelter. If we don't do it in our heads, we'll have to do it physically. If you don't die in your head, you'll die when it comes down. Weish also confided that Linda Kasabian was not long for this world. At the most, she had six months to live. At approximately the same time each morning, Weish made a long-distance call. The number was that of a payphone in North Hollywood, three blocks from the Rice residence. At least one of these calls was to Squeaky, the unofficial leader of the family in Manson's absence. Just after the call on the 9th, Weish's manner suddenly changed. She became very serious and looked at me kind of strangely, Barbara said. Weish told Barbara that she had to go back to California, but that Barbara was to remain in Hawaii. She called and made a reservation on the 115 flight to Los Angeles that afternoon. They caught a cab to the airport, arriving just before noon. Weish said she wasn't hungry, but suggested that Barbara eat something. They went into a restaurant, and Barbara ordered a hamburger. When it arrived, Weish took it and went outside, telling Barbara to pay the check. There was a line at the cash register, and for several minutes Barbara lost sight of Weish. When she came out, Weish gave her the hamburger, and Barbara ate it while they were waiting for Weish's flight. Just before she was to board, Weish remarked, Imagine what it would be like if that hamburger had ten tabs of acid in it. 
Barbara's response was, wow. She had never heard of anyone taking more than one tab of LSD, Barbara later said, and the thought was kind of frightening. After Weesh left, Barbara began feeling high. She tried to take a bus to the beach, but became so sick she had to get off. Panicked, she then started running and ran and ran and ran until she collapsed. A social worker, Byron Galloway, saw the young girl sprawled on a curb near the Salvation Army headquarters. Fortuitously, Galloway was employed at the state hospital, his specialty, drug cases. Realizing that the girl was extremely ill, he rushed her to Queens Medical Center, where her condition was diagnosed as acute psychosis, drug-induced. The doctor who examined her was able to get her name and her Los Angeles address, but the rest made little sense. According to the hospital records, patients said, Call Mr. Bogliogi and tell him I won't be able to testify today in the Sharon Tate trial. After giving her emergency treatment, the hospital called the police and Barbara's parents. Her father flew to Hawaii and was able to bring her back to Los Angeles with him the next day. On receiving the first fragmentary report, I told LAPD I wanted the persons involved charged with attempted murder. Since Barbara was a witness in the Tate case, the investigation was given to Tate detectives Calkins and McGann. September 11th to 17th, 1970. Though I knew Danny DiCarlo was afraid of Manson, the motorcyclist did a good job of disguising it while on the stand. When Charlie and the girls smiled at Donkey Dan, he grinned right back. I was concerned that DiCarlo might qualify his answers, as he had in the Beausoleil trial. After only a few minutes of testimony, however, my concern suddenly shifted from DiCarlo to older. When I tried to establish the Manson-Watson relationship through DiCarlo, older repeatedly sustained the defense objections. He also sustained objections to Manson's dinnertime conversations when he discussed his philosophy about blacks and whites. Back in chambers, Older made two remarks which totally stunned me. He asked, what is the relevance of whether or not Manson was the leader? And he wanted an offer of proof as to the relevance of Helter Skelter. It was as if Older hadn't even been present during the trial thus far. That I was more than a little disturbed at his stance came across in my reply. The offer of proof is that he used to say that he wanted to turn blacks against whites. Of course, this is only the motive for these murders. That is all it is. Other than that, it is not much else. I noted, the prosecution is alleging Mr. Manson ordered these murders. It was his philosophy that led up to these murders. The motive for these murders was to ignite helter-skelter. I think it is so obviously admissible that I am at a loss for words. The court. I would suggest this to you, Mr. Bugliosi. Over the noon hour, give some careful thought as to what you contend your proof is going to show. Now I realize that part of it may have to come in through one witness and part through another. This is not unusual. But so far I can't see any connection between what Mr. Manson believed about blacks and whites in the abstract and any motive. I sweated through that noon hour. Unless I could establish Manson's domination of the other defendants, I wouldn't be able to convince the jury they had killed on his instructions. And if Older foreclosed me from bringing in Manson's beliefs about the black-white war from DiCarlo, when my heavyweight witnesses on this, Jacobson, Poston, and Watkins, were still to come, then we were in deep trouble. I returned to Chambers armed with citations of authority as to both the admissibility and the relevance of the testimony. Yet even after a long impassioned plea, 
it appeared that I had not changed Older's mind. He still couldn't see, for instance, the relevance of Watson's subservience to Manson, or why I was trying to bring out through to Carlo that Tex had an easygoing, rather weak personality. The relevance, of course, was that if I didn't establish both, the jury could very well infer that it was Watson, not Manson, who had ordered these murders. Bugliosi. I think the court can tell the relevancy by the fact that defense counsel are on their hind legs trying to keep it out. Canarac. I think the heart of what we have here is this, that Mr. Bugliosi has lost his cool, because he has a monomania about convicting Mr. Manson. Bugliosi. He is charged with seven murders, and I am going to be tenacious on this. I intend to go back with these witnesses and find out who Tex Watson was other than a name, Your Honor. The Court. I am not going to stop you from trying, Mr. Bugliosi. On returning to court, I asked DiCarlo exactly the same question I had asked hours earlier. What was your impression of Tex Watson's general demeanor? Canarek. Your Honor, I will object to that as calling for a conclusion. Bugliosi. People versus Zollner, Your Honor. I so anticipated Older saying, sustained, that I almost thought I was imagining it when he said, overruled, you may answer. DiCarlo. He was happy-go-lucky. He was a nice guy. I liked Tex. He didn't have no temper or anything that I could see. He never said much. Glancing back, I saw both Don Musich and Steve Kay staring in open-mouthed disbelief. Moments ago, in chambers, Older had objected to my whole line of inquiry. He'd now completely reversed himself. Going as fast as I could through the questioning, before he again changed his mind, I brought out that whenever Charlie told Tex to do anything, Tex did it. That Older had gone along with us on the domination issue didn't mean that he saw the relevance of Helter Skelter. My fingers were crossed when I asked, Do you recall Mr. Manson saying anything about blacks and whites? Black people and white people? Stunned and perturbed, Canarek objected. It is the same question that he was asking previously. The court. Overruled. You may answer. Answer. He didn't like black people. DiCarlo testified that Manson wanted to see the blacks go to war with the police and the white establishment, both of whom he referred to as pigs. That Charlie had told him that the pigs ought to have their throats cut and be hung up by their feet and that he had heard Manson use the term helter-skelter many, many times. Through all this, Canarek objected repeatedly, often in the midst of DiCarlo's replies. Older told him, You are interrupting, Mr. Canarek. I have warned you several times today. I warn you now for the last time. Canarek, I don't wish to make unnecessary objections, Your Honor. The court, Don't you? Then cease from doing it. Within minutes, however, Canarek was doing it again, and Older called him to the bench. Very angrily, Older told Canarek, You seem to have some sort of physical infirmity or mental disability that causes you to interrupt and disrupt testimony. No matter how many times I warn you, you seem to do it repeatedly, again and again and again. You are trying to disrupt the testimony of this witness. It is perfectly clear. Now I have gone as far as I am going to go with you, Mr. Canarek. Canarek complained, I am trying to conscientiously follow your orders. The court, No, no, I am afraid your explanation won't go. I have heard too much from you. 
I am very familiar with your tactics, and I am not going to put up with it any longer. Older found Canarac in contempt of court, and at the conclusion of the day's testimony, sentenced him to spend the weekend in the county jail. Danny DiCarlo had never really understood Helter Skelter, or cared to. As he admitted to me, his major interests while at Spawn were booze and broads. He couldn't see how his testimony about this black-white stuff really hurt Charlie, and he testified to it freely and without qualification. But when it came to the physical evidence, the knives, the rope, the gun, he saw the link and pulled back. Not much, but just enough to weaken his identifications. In interviewing Danny, I'd learned a great many things which were not on the LAPD tapes. For example, he recalled that in early August 1969, Gypsy had purchased 10 or 12 buck knives, which had been passed out to various family members at Spawn. The knives, according to DiCarlo, were about 6 inches in length, 1 inch in width, 1 eighth inch in thickness, very close to the dimensions provided by Kasabian and Noguchi. In going through the sheriff's reports of the August 16th raid, I found that a large number of weapons had been seized, including a submachine gun in a violin case, but not a single buck knife. The logical presumption, I'd later argued to the jury, was that after the murders, the rest of the buck knives had been ditched. I intended to call Sergeant Gleason from LASO to testify that no knives were found in the raid. First, however, I wanted Danny to testify to the purchase. He did, but he qualified it somewhat. When I asked him who bought the buck knives, he replied, I'm not sure. I think Gypsy did. I'm not sure. When it came to the Tate Sebring rope, DiCarlo testified it was similar to the rope Manson had purchased at the Jack Frost store. I persisted. Does it appear to be different in any fashion? Answer, no. DiCarlo had told me that Charlie preferred knives and swords to guns because in the desert guns could be heard for a long distance. I asked DiCarlo if, among the guns at Spawn Ranch, Manson had a special favorite. Yeah, DiCarlo said, a high standard twenty-two caliber buntline revolver. I showed him the gun and asked him, have you ever seen this revolver before? Answer. I saw one similar to it. Question. Does it appear to differ in any fashion? Answer. The trigger guard is broken. Other than that? Answer. I can't be sure. Question. Why can't you be sure? Answer. I don't know. I don't know the serial number of it. I am not sure that is it. DiCarlo had cleaned, cared for, and shot the gun. He had an extensive background in weapons. The model was unusual, and he had made a drawing of it for LAPD even before he was told that such a gun had been used in the Tate homicides. I'd already introduced the drawing for identification purposes over Canarac's objection that it was hearsay. If anyone should have been able to make a positive identification of that revolver, it was Danny DiCarlo. He didn't do so, I suspected, because he was afraid to. Though he was a shade weaker on the stand than in our interviews, I did succeed in getting a tremendous amount of evidence in through DiCarlo. Though court was interrupted for another three-day recess, DiCarlo's direct took less than a day and a half of actual court time. I completed it on September 17th. That morning, Manson passed word through Fitzgerald and Shin that he wanted to see me in the lockup during the noon recess. Canarek was not present, though the other two attorneys were. 
I asked Manson what he wanted to talk to me about. I just wanted you to know that I didn't have anything to do with the attempted murder of Barbara Hoyt, Manson said. I don't know whether you ordered it or they did it on their own, I replied. But you know and I know that in either case they did it because they thought it would please you. Manson wanted to rap, but I cut him off. I'm not really in the mood to talk to you, Charlie. Maybe, if you have enough guts to take the stand, we'll talk then. I asked McGann what was happening on the Honolulu hamburger case, as the papers had dubbed the Hoyt murder attempt. McGann said he and Calkins hadn't been able to come up with any evidence. I asked Phil Sartucci of the LaBianca team to take over. Phil efficiently turned in a detailed report with information on the airline tickets, credit cards, long-distance calls, and so forth. It was December, however, before the case was taken to the grand jury. In the interim, Weish, Squeaky, Clem, Gypsy, and Rice remained at large. I'd often see them with the other family members at the corner of Temple and Broadway. On cross-examination, Fitzgerald asked to Carlo, is it not true that Mr. Manson indicated to you that he actually loved the black people? Danny replied, yeah, there was one time he said that. On redirect, I asked DiCarlo about that single conversation. Charlie had told him he loved the blacks, he said, for having the guts to fight against the police. Shin brought out that DiCarlo was aware of, and more than passingly interested in, the $25,000 reward, thereby establishing that he had a reason to fabricate his testimony. Kanarek pursued the subject in detail in his cross. He also dwelt at length on DiCarlo's fondness for weapons. Earlier, DiCarlo had testified that he loved guns. Would he describe that love? Kanarek asked. DiCarlo's reply brought down the house. Well, I love them more than I do my old lady. It was easy to see where Kanarek was heading. He was trying to establish that it was DiCarlo, not Manson, who was responsible for all the weapons being at Spawn Ranch. Kanarek switched subjects. Wasn't it true, he asked DiCarlo, that during the entire time you were at the ranch you were smashed? Answer, I sure was. Question, were you so smashed that on many occasions you had to be carried to bed? Answer, I made it a few times myself. Kanarek hit hard on DiCarlo's drinking, also his vagueness as to dates and times. How could he remember one particular Saturday night, for example, and not another night? Well, that particular night, DiCarlo responded, Gypsy got mad at me because I wouldn't take my boots off when I made love to her. Question. The only thing that is really pinpointed in your mind that you really remember is that you had a lot of sex, right? Answer. Well, even some of that I can't remember. Kanarek had scored some points. He brought out that DiCarlo had testified on an earlier occasion, during the Beausoleil trial, that while at Spawn he was smashed 99% of the time. The defense could now argue that DiCarlo was so inebriated that he couldn't perceive what was going on, much less recall specific conversations. Unfortunately for the defense, Fitzgerald unintentionally undermined this argument by asking DiCarlo to define the difference between drunk and smashed. Answer, my version of drunk is when I'm out to lunch on the ground. Smashed is just when I'm walking around loaded. September 18, 1970. That afternoon, we had a surprise visitor in court, 
Charles Tex Watson. After a nine-month delay that would necessitate trying him separately, Watson had finally been returned to California on September 11th, after U.S. Supreme Court Justice Hugo Black refused to grant him a further stay of extradition. Sergeants Sartucci and Gutierrez, who accompanied Watson on the flight, said he spoke little, mostly staring vacantly into space. He had lost about 30 pounds during his confinement, most of it during the last two months, when it became obvious his return to Los Angeles was imminent. Fitzgerald had asked that Watson be brought into court to see if DiCarlo could identify him. Realizing that Fitzgerald was making a very serious mistake, Canarek objected, strenuously, but Older granted the removal order. The jury was still out when Watson entered the courtroom. Though he smiled slightly at the three female defendants, who grinned and blew him kisses, he seemed oblivious to Manson's presence. By the time the jury came in, Watson was already seated and appeared just another spectator. Fitzgerald. Mr. DiCarlo, you previously testified that a man by the name of Tex Watson was present at Spawn Ranch during the period of time that you were there in 1969, is that correct? Answer, yeah. Question, do you recognize Mr. Watson in this courtroom? Answer, yeah, right over there. Danny pointed to where Tex was sitting. Obviously curious, the jury strained to see the man they had heard so much about. Fitzgerald. Could I have this gentleman identify himself for the court, Your Honor? The court. Will you please stand and state your name? Watson stood after being motioned to his feet by one of the bailiffs, but he remained mute. Fitzgerald's mistake was obvious the moment Watson got up. One look, and the jury knew that Charles Tex Watson was not the type to order Charles Manson to do anything, much less instigate seven murders on his own. He looked closer to 20 than 25. Short hair, blue blazer, gray slacks, tie. Instead of the wild-eyed monster depicted in the April 1969 mugshot, when Watson had been on drugs, he appeared to be a typical clean-cut college kid. Off stage, Watson could be made to seem the heavy. Having once seen him, the jury would never think this again. Since our first meeting in Independence, I had remained on speaking terms with Sandy and Squeaky. Occasionally, one or both would drop in at my office to chat. I usually made time for such visits, in part because I was still attempting to understand why they, and the three female defendants, had joined the family, but also because I was remotely hopeful that if another murder was planned, one or the other might alert me. Neither, I was sure, would go to the police, and I wanted to leave at least one channel of communication open. I'd had more hopes for Sandy than Squeaky. The latter was on a power trip, acting as Manson's unofficial spokesman, running the family in his absence, and it seemed unlikely she would do anything to jeopardize her status. Sandy, however, had gone against Manson's wishes on several occasions, I knew. They were minor rebellions. When her baby was due, for example, she had gone to a hospital rather than have it delivered by the family. But they indicated that maybe, behind the pat phrases, I'd touch something responsibly human. On her first visit to my office, about two months earlier, we talked about the family credo. Sandy had maintained it was peace. I'd maintained it was murder, and had asked how she could stomach this. People are being murdered every day in Vietnam, she'd countered. Assuming for the sake of argument that the deaths in Vietnam are murders, I responded, how does this justify murdering seven more people? 
As she tried to come up with an answer, I told her, Sandy, if you really believe in peace and love, I want you to prove it. The next time murder is in the wind at Spawn Ranch, I want you to remember that other people like to live just as much as you do. And as another human being, I want you to do everything possible to prevent it from happening. Do you understand what I mean? She quietly replied, Yes. I'd hoped she really meant that. That naive hope vanished when, in talking to Barbara Hoyt, I learned that Sandy had been one of the family members who had persuaded her to go to Hawaii. As I left court on the afternoon of the 18th, Sandy and two male followers approached me. Sandy, I'm very, very disappointed in you, I told her. You were at Spawn when Barbara's murder was planned. There's no question in my mind that you knew what was going to happen. Yet though Barbara was your friend, you said nothing, did nothing. Why? She didn't reply, but stared at me as if in a trance. For a moment I thought she hadn't heard me, that she was stoned on drugs. But then, very slowly and deliberately, she reached down and began playing with the sheath knife that she wore at her waist. That was her answer. Disgusted, I turned and walked away. Looking back, however, I saw that Sandy and the two boys were following me. I stopped. They stopped. When I started walking again, they followed. Sandy still fingering the knife. Gradually, they were closing the distance between us. Deciding it was better to face trouble than have my back to it, I turned and walked back to them. Listen, you goddamn bitch, and listen good, I told her. I don't know for sure whether you were or weren't involved in the actual attempt to murder Barbara, but if you were, I'm going to do everything in my power to see that you end up in jail. I then looked at the two males and told them if they followed me one more time, I was going to deck them on the spot. I then turned and walked off. This time they didn't follow me. My reaction was, I felt, exceptionally mild, considering the circumstances. Canterac felt otherwise. When court reconvened on Monday, the 21st, he filed a motion asking that I be held in contempt for interfering with a defense witness. He also asked that I be arrested for violating Section 415 of the Penal Code, charging that I had made obscene remarks in the presence of a female. September 21st to 26th, 1970. Finding nothing in Sandra Good's declaration that in my opinion constitutes contemptuous conduct on the part of Mr. Bugliosi, Judge Older dismissed Canterac's several motions. Again, Manson asked to see me in the lockup during the noon recess. He hoped I wasn't taking all this, the attempted murder, the knife incident, the trial, personally. No, Charlie, I told him. I was assigned to this case. I didn't ask for it. This is my job. By now, it should be obvious to me, Manson said, that the girls were acting on their own, that nobody was dominating them. When I raised a skeptical eyebrow, Manson said, Look, Bugliosi, if I had all the power and control that you say I have, I could simply say, Brenda, go get Bugliosi, and that would be it. It was interesting, I thought, that Manson should single out Brenda McCann, true name Nancy Pittman, as his chief assassin. Later, I'd have good reason to recall Manson's remarks. Nothing personal. But immediately after this, the middle-of-the-night hang-up calls began. They'd continue even after we changed our unlisted number. And several times, when I left the Hall of Justice at night, I was followed by various family members, including Sandy. 
Only the first time disturbed me. Gail and the kids were circling the block in our car, and I was afraid they would be identified or the license number spotted. When I pretended not to see her, Gail quickly sized up the situation and drove around until I was able to shake my followers, though as she later admitted to me, she was far less cool than she appeared. Though concerned with the safety of my family, I didn't take any of this very seriously until one afternoon when, apparently enraged at the domination testimony that was coming in, Manson told a bailiff, I'm going to have Bugliosi and the judge killed. By telling a bailiff this, Manson was making sure we got the message. Older was already under protection. The next day, the district attorney's office assigned me a bodyguard for the duration of the trial. Additional precautions were taken, which, since they're probably used in protecting others, needn't be enumerated, though one might be noted. In order to prevent a repetition of the events at 10,050 Shallow Drive, a walkie-talkie was installed in our home, which provided instant communication with the nearest police station in case the telephone wires were cut. Though Older and I were the only trial principals who had bodyguards, it was no secret that several, if not all, of the defense attorneys were frightened of the family. Day Shin, I was told by one of his fellows, kept a loaded gun in each room of his house, in case of an unannounced visitation. What precautions, if any, Canarek took, I never learned, though Manson often assigned him top spot on his kill list. According to another defense attorney, Manson threatened numerous times to kill Canarek. It was only fair, Manson supposedly said, since Canarek was killing him in court. Manson at one point had Fitzgerald draw up papers for Canarek's dismissal. According to Paul, who told the story to me, Canarek literally got down on his knees and, with tears in his eyes, begged Manson not to fire him. Manson relented, and, though they continued to disagree, Canarek remained on the case. Each week, a member of the Los Angeles Board of Supervisors issued a press release itemizing trial costs to date. Yet even with Canarek's multitudinous objections, many of which called for lengthy conferences, we were covering a tremendous amount of testimony each day. A veteran court reporter said he'd never seen anything like it in 20-odd years. Thus far, Judge Older had done a remarkable job of holding Canarek in check. Had he granted even half the evidentiary hearings Canarek was always calling for, the ten-year estimate might have become a reality. Instead, each time Canarek made the request, Older said, put your motion in writing with supporting citations. Because of the time involved, Canarek rarely took the trouble. For our part, although I'd originally planned to call some hundred witnesses, I'd cut that number down to about eighty. In a case of this magnitude and complexity, this was a remarkably low number. Some days saw as many as a half-dozen witnesses taking the stand. Whenever possible, I'd use a single witness for several purposes. In addition to his other testimony, for example, I asked DiCarlo the names and approximate ages of each of the family members, so it would be apparent to the jury that Manson, being older than all of them, was not likely to have played a subservient role. When I called Sheriff's Deputy William Gleason to testify that when Spawn Ranch was raided on August 16th, not one buck knife was found, Canarac, seeing the implication of this, objected, and Older sustained the objection. I'd almost given up getting this in when Fitzgerald, apparently thinking the absence of such knives was a plus for the defense, asked on cross-examination, Did you find any buck knives at the Spawn Ranch on the date of August the 16th, 1969? Answer, No, sir. 
The family's attempt to silence Barbara Hoyt backfired. Once a reluctant witness, she was now very willing to testify. Barbara not only confirmed Linda's story of the TV incident. She recalled that the previous night, the night of the Tate murders, Sadie called her on the field phone at the back house, asking her to bring three sets of dark clothing to the front of the ranch. When she arrived, Manson told her they already left. Barbara's story was both support for Linda Kasabian's testimony and powerful evidence of Manson's involvement, and, though unsuccessful, Canarek fought hard to keep it out. I was not able to bring out the Myers Ranch conversation until after a full half-day of argument in chambers, and then, as I'd anticipated, I could only get in part of it. One afternoon in early September 1969, Barbara had been napping in the bedroom at Myers Ranch when she awoke to hear Sadie and Weesh talking in the kitchen. Apparently thinking Barbara was still asleep, Sadie told Weesh that Sharon Tate had been the last to die because, to quote Sadie, she had to watch the others die. I got this in, finally. What I couldn't get in because of Aranda was the rest of the conversation. Barbara had also heard Sadie tell Weesh that Abigail Folger had escaped and run out of the house, that Katie had caught up with her on the lawn, and that Abigail had struggled so much that Katie had to call for help from Tex, who ran over and stabbed Abigail. In chambers, Shin argued that he should be allowed to question Barbara about this. Older, as well as the other defense attorneys, strongly disagreed. By arandizing the conversation, omitting all reference to her co-defendants, this put the onus for all five murders on Susan, Shin complained, adding, But other people were there too, Your Honor. Bugliosi. They were, Day? Inadvertently, Shin had admitted that Susan Atkins was present at the Tate murder scene. Fortunately for both attorney and client, this dialogue took place in chambers and not in open court. As with the other ex-family members, I was able to bring in through Barbara numerous examples of Manson's domination, as well as a number of Manson's conversations about Helter Skelter. The one thing I couldn't get in was the family's attempt to prevent Barbara Hoyt from testifying. During his cross-examination of Barbara, Canarek attacked her for everything from her morals to her eyesight. Aware that Barbara had very poor vision, Canarek had her take off her glasses. Then he moved around the courtroom, asking how many fingers he had up. Question. How many can you see now? Answer. Three. Canarek. May the record reflect she said three, and I have two up clearly, Your Honor. The court. I thought I saw your thumb. Canarek finally proved Barbara had bad eyesight. The issue, however, wasn't her sight, but her hearing. She didn't claim to have seen Sadie and Weesh in the kitchen at Myers Ranch, only to have heard them. Canarek also asked Barbara, Have you been in any mental hospital for the last couple of years? Ordinarily, I would have objected to such a question, but not this time, for Canarek had just opened wide the door through which I could, on redirect, bring in the murder attempt. Redirect is limited to the issues raised on cross-examination. For example, on redirect, I had Barbara approximate the distance between the bedroom and the kitchen at Myers Ranch, then conducted a hearing experiment. She passed with no trouble. Asking to approach the bench, I argued that since Canarek had implied that Barbara Hoyt was in a mental hospital for an extended period of time, I had the right to bring out that she was in a mental ward only overnight, and that it was not because of a mental problem. Older agreed with one limitation. I couldn't ask who gave her the LSD. 
Once I'd brought out the circumstances of her hospitalization, I asked, Did you take this overdose voluntarily? Answer, No. Question, Was it given to you by someone else? Answer, Yes. Question, Were you near death? Canarac, Calls for a conclusion, Your Honor. The court, Sustained. It was good enough. I was sure the jury could put two and two together. On Saturday, September 26, 1970, an era came to an end. A raging fire swept Southern California. Whipped by 80-mile-an-hour winds, a wall of flame as high as 60 feet charred over 100,000 acres. Burned in the inferno was all of Spawn's movie ranch. As the ranch hands tried to save the horses, the Manson girls, their faces illuminated by the light of the conflagration, danced and clapped their hands, crying out happily, Helter Skelter is coming down! Helter Skelter is coming down! September 27th to October 5th, 1970 Juan Flynn, who described his job at Spawn Ranch as manure shoveler, seemed to enjoy himself on the stand. Of all the witnesses, however, the lanky Panamanian cowboy was the only one who openly showed animosity to Manson. When Charlie tried to stare him down, Juan glared back. After positively identifying the revolver, Juan remarked, And Mr. Manson on one occasion fired this gun, you know, in my direction, you see, because I was walking with a girl on the other side of the creek. It was difficult to stop Juan once he got started. The girl had come to Spawn Ranch to ride horses. She'd ignored Manson, but went off down the creek with amorous-minded Juan. Charlie was so miffed he'd fired several shots in their direction. Cataract succeeded in having all this, except Juan's seeing Manson fire the revolver struck. He also tried, but failed, to keep out the two most important pieces of evidence Juan Flynn had to offer. One night in early August 1969, Juan had been watching TV in the trailer when Sadie came in, dressed in black. Where are you going? Juan asked. We're going to get some fucking pigs, Sadie replied. When she left, Juan looked out the window and saw her get into Johnny Swartz's old yellow Ford. Charlie, Clem, Tex, Linda, and Leslie got in also. According to Juan, the incident had occurred after dark, about 8 or 9 p.m., and though he wasn't able to pinpoint the date, he said it was about a week before the August 16th raid. The logical inference was that he was describing the night the LaBiancas were killed. Juan's story was important both as evidence and as independent corroboration of Linda Kasabian's testimony. Not only did the time, participants, vehicle, and color of Susan Atkins's clothing coincide, Juan also noticed that Manson was driving. Juan then testified to the kitchen conversation which occurred a day or so later, when, putting a knife to his throat, Manson told him, You son of a bitch, don't you know I'm the one who's doing all of these killings? The newsmen rushed for the door. Manson admitted murders, Spawn Ranch Cowboy claims. Canarac's objections kept out another piece of extremely damaging evidence. One night in June or July 1969, Manson, Juan, and three male family members were driving through Chatsworth when Charlie stopped in front of a rich house and instructed Juan to go in and tie up the people. When he'd finished, Manson said, he was to open the door and, to quote Manson, will come in and cut the motherfucking pigs up. Juan had said no thanks. 
This was, in effect, a dress rehearsal for the Tate-LaBianca murders. But ruling that the prejudicial effect far outweighs the probative value, Older wouldn't permit me to question Juan about this. I was also unable, for the same reason, to get in a comment Manson made to Juan. Adolf Hitler had the best answer to everything. That answer, of course, was murder. But owing to Canarac's objections, neither of these two incidents was heard by the jury or ever made public. On cross-examination, Fitzgerald brought out an interesting anomaly. Even after Manson had allegedly threatened him, not once but several times, Juan still stuck around. After the raid, he'd even accompanied the family to Death Valley, remaining with them a couple of weeks before splitting to join Crockett, Poston, and Watkins. That had puzzled me, too. One possible explanation was that, as Juan testified, at first he had thought Manson was bullshitting about the murders, that nobody in their right mind is going to kill somebody and then boast about it. Also, Juan was easygoing and slow to anger. Probably more important, Juan was an independent cuss. Like Paul Crockett, who didn't leave Death Valley until long after Manson threatened to kill him, he didn't like to be intimidated. Canarek picked up on Fitzgerald's discovery. Now, Mr. Flynn, were you scared to be at the Myers Ranch with Mr. Manson? Answer, well, I was aware and precautious. Question, just answer the question, Mr. Flynn. I understand you are an actor, but would you just answer the question, please? Answer, well, I liked it there, you know, because I wanted to think nice things, you know. But every time I walked around the corner, well, that seemed to be the main subject, you know, about how many times they could do me in. Then finally I just left. Question. Now, Mr. Flynn, will you tell me how you were aware and precautious? How did you protect yourself? Answer. Well, I just protected myself by leaving. Canarek brought out that when Flynn was interviewed by Sartucci, he'd said nothing about Manson putting a knife to his throat. You were holding that back, is that it, Mr. Flynn? To spring on us in this courtroom? Is that right? Answer. No, I told the officers about this before, you see. Ignoring Flynn's response, Canarek said, You mean, Mr. Flynn, that you made it up for the purposes of this courtroom. Is that correct, Mr. Flynn? Canarek was charging that Flynn had recently fabricated his testimony. I made a note of this, though as yet unaware how important this bit of dialogue would soon be. After focusing on all the things I had brought out which were not in the Sartucci interview, Canarak asked Juan when he first mentioned the knife incident to anyone. Answer. Well, there was some officers in Shoshone, you see, and I talked to them. Flynn, however, couldn't recall their names. Canarak strongly implied several times that Flynn was fictionalizing his story. Juan didn't take kindly to being called a liar. You could see his temper rising. Intent on proving that Flynn was testifying so he could further his movie career, Juan had had bit parts in several westerns. Canarek asked, You recognize, do you not, that there is lots of publicity in this case against Mr. Manson, right? Answer. Well, it is the type of publicity that I wouldn't want, you big catfish. The court. On that note, Mr. Canarek, we will adjourn. After court, I questioned Juan about the Shoshone interview. He thought one of the officers was from the California Highway Patrol, but he wasn't sure. That evening, I called the DA's office in Independence 
and learned that the man who had interviewed Juan was a CHP officer named Dave Stuber. Late that night, I finally located him in Fresno, California. Yes, he'd interviewed Flynn, as well as Crockett, Poston, and Watkins on December 19, 1969. He taped the whole conversation, which had lasted over nine hours. Yes, he still had the original tapes. I checked my calendar. I guessed Flynn would be on the stand another day or two. Could Stuber be in L.A. in three days with the tapes and prepared to testify? Sure, Stuber said. Stuber then told me something I found absolutely incredible. He had already made a copy of the tapes and given it to LAPD. On December 29, 1969. Later, I learned the identity of the LAPD detective to whom the tapes had been given. The officer, since deceased, recalled receiving the tapes but admitted he hadn't played them. He thought he had given them to someone but couldn't remember to whom. All he knew was that he no longer had them. Perhaps it was because the interview was so long, nine hours, or perhaps it being the holiday season, in the confusion they were mislaid. Neither explanation, however, erases the unpleasant fact that as early as December 1969, the Los Angeles Police Department had a taped interview containing a statement in which Manson implied that he was responsible for the Tate-LaBianca murders, and as far as can be determined, no one even bothered to book it into evidence, much less play it. Ordinarily, there would have been no way I could introduce the Stuber tape into evidence at the trial, for you cannot use a previously consistent statement to bolster a witness's testimony. However, there is an exception to that rule. Such evidence is admissible if the opposing side contends the witness's testimony was recently fabricated and the prior consistent statement was made before the declarant had any reason to fabricate. When Canarek asked, You mean, Mr. Flynn, that you made it up for the purposes of this courtroom, is that correct, Mr. Flynn? He was charging recent fabrication and opening the door for me to bring the prior consistent statement in. A lot of doors were opened on cross-examination, but at first the biggest did not look like a door at all. The defense had made much of the fact that Juan did not tell his story to the authorities until long after the events occurred. With this opening, I argued, I should be allowed to bring out the reason why. He was in fear of his life. Responding to Canarek's objection, Older said, You can't go into all of these things on cross and expect the other side to do nothing about them, Mr. Canarek. You can't paint them in a corner and say they can't work their way out. Juan was permitted to testify that he didn't go to the police because I didn't think it was safe for me to do that, you see. I got a couple of threat notes. Actually, Juan had received three such notes, all handed him by family members, the last as late as two weeks ago, when Squeaky and Larry Jones had discovered that Juan was living in John Swartz's trailer in Canoga Park. Arguing against their admission, Fitzgerald made an interesting statement. My life has been threatened three times, and I haven't come forward and talked about it. Bugliosi, has the prosecution threatened you? Fitzgerald, no, I am not saying that. He didn't elaborate. Older ruled that Juan could testify to the notes, though not the identities of the persons who gave them to him. Juan also testified to the hang-up calls, the cars that raced past in the night, their occupants oinking and screaming, motherfucker and pig. I asked him, and you considered these threats, is that correct? Answer, well, they sounded, you know, pretty strong to me. Question, 
Are those among the reasons why you didn't want to come downtown and talk? Answer. Well, this was one of the reasons, yes. Question. Because of fear of your life? Answer. Yes. When I asked about the other reasons, Juan described how Manson, Clem, and Tex had creepy-crawled Crockett's cabin at Barker Ranch. All of this came in because the defense so gratuitously opened the door on Cross. Because Canarek had questioned Juan about Manson's programming of family members, I was able to bring in a conversation Manson had with Juan in which he explained that he had to unprogram his followers to remove the programming placed upon them by their parents, schools, churches, and society. To get rid of the ego, Manson told him, you had to obliterate all the wants that you had. Give up your mother and father. All the inhibitions. Just blank yourself out. Since Manson's techniques differed depending on whether his subject was male or female, I asked what Manson had said about unprogramming the girls. I didn't anticipate that Juan would go into the detail he did. Answer? Well, he says, you know, to get rid of the inhibitions, you know, you could just take a couple of girls and, you know, have them lay down, you know, and have them eat each other. Or for me to take a girl up in the hills, you know, and just lie back and let her suck my dick all day long. Canarek, Your Honor, Your Honor, may we approach the bench, Your Honor? Earlier, one of the alternate jurors had written Judge Older a letter, complaining about the sexual explicitness of some of the testimony. I didn't look at him, but I suspected he must be having apoplexy. As I passed the counsel table on the way to the bench, I told Manson, Don't worry, Charlie, I'm keeping all the bad stuff out. Older struck the entire answer as non-responsive. I asked Juan, did Mr. Manson discuss with you, without going into what he said, Juan, plans that he had to unprogram the people in the family? When he replied, yes, I let it go at that. What Manson never explained to his family was that in the process of unprogramming them, he was reprogramming them to be his abject slaves. Throughout his cross-examination, Canarek had implied, as he had with many of the earlier witnesses, that Juan had been coached by me. I thought Canarek was going to do this again for the umpteenth time, when on recross he started, Mr. Flynn, when a question is asked of you that you think may not help the prosecution in this case, Bugliosi, oh, stop arguing. Canarek, Your Honor, he's interrupting. Bugliosi, be quiet. The court, Mr. Bugliosi, now I'm not going to warn you again, sir. Bugliosi, what's he doing, Your Honor? He's accusing me of something, and I don't like it. The court. Approach the bench. Bugliosi. I am not going to take it. I've had it up to here. My indignation was as much a matter of trial tactics as anything else. If I let Canarek get away with the same trick time after time, the jury might assume there was some truth to his charges. At the bench, I told Older, I'm not going to be accused of a serious offense by this guy day in and day out. The court. That's absurd. You interrupted, Mr. Canarek. You made outrageous statements in front of the jury. I find you in direct contempt of court, and I find you $50. To the amusement of the clerk, I had to call my wife to come down and pay the fine. Later, the deputy DAs in the office put up a buck each for a Bugliosi defense fund and reimbursed her. As with the earlier citation of Hughes, I felt if I was in contempt of anyone, it was Canarac, not the court. The following day, for the record, 
I responded to the contempt, noting among other things that in the future I would ask the court to please consider two obvious points. This is a hotly contested trial and tempers become a little frayed, and also take into consideration what Mr. Kanarek is doing which incites a response on my part. With my citation, we now had a perfect score. Every attorney involved in the trial had either been cited for contempt or threatened with it. The defense tried their best to ridicule Juan's fear of Manson. Hughes brought out that since Manson was locked up, it was hardly likely he could hurt anyone. Did Mr. Flynn actually expect the jury to believe that he was afraid of Mr. Manson? Juan might have been speaking for all the prosecution witnesses when he answered, well, not of Mr. Manson himself, but the reach that he has, you know. By now I could see the pattern. The more damaging the testimony, the more chance Manson would create a disturbance, thereby assuring that he, and not the evidence itself, would get the day's headlines. Juan Flynn's testimony was hurting him badly. Several times while Flynn was on the stand, Older had to order Manson and the girls removed because of their outbursts. When it happened again, on October 2nd, Manson turned to the spectators and said, Look at yourselves. Where are you going? You're going to destruction. That's where you're going. He then smiled a very odd little smile and added, It's your judgment day, not mine. Again, the girls parroted Manson, and Older ordered all four removed. Kanarek was livid. I just showed the judge the transcript pages where Kanarek accused Flynn of lying. Older ruled, There is no question. There was an implied, if not expressed, charge of recent fabrication. Highway Patrolman Dave Stuber would be permitted to play that portion of the taped interview dealing with Manson's incriminating admission. Note. Stuber had been investigating a stolen auto report, not murder, when he talked to Flynn, Post and Crockett and Watkins in Shoshone. However, realizing the importance of their story, he had spent over nine hours quizzing them on their knowledge of Manson and his family. After the trial, I wrote a letter to the California Highway Patrol commending Stuber for the excellent job he had done. End of note. After establishing the circumstances of the interview, Stuber set up the tape recorder and began playing the tape at the point where the statement had begun. There is something about such physical evidence that deeply impresses a jury. Again, in words very similar to those they had heard him use when he was on the stand, the jurors heard Juan say, Then he was looking at me real funny, and then he grabbed me by the hair like that, and he put a knife by my throat. And then he says, Don't you know I'm the one who is doing all the killings? Monday, October 5th, 1970. Bailiff Bill Murray later said he had a very strong feeling that something was going to happen. You get a kind of sixth sense dealing with prisoners day after day, he said, noting that when he brought Manson into the lockup, he was acting very tense and edgy. Although they had made no assurances that they would conduct themselves properly, Older gave the defendants still another chance, permitting them to return to the courtroom. The testimony was dull, undramatic. There was, at this point, no clue as to its importance, though I had a feeling Charlie just might suspect what I was up to. Through a series of witnesses, I was laying the groundwork for destroying Manson's anticipated alibi. LASO Detective Paul Whiteley had just finished testifying, and the defense attorneys had declined to cross-examine him, when Manson asked, May I examine him, Your Honor? The court, No, you may not. Manson, 
You were going to use this courtroom to kill me? Older told the witness he could step down. Manson asked the question a second time, adding, I am going to fight for my life one way or another. You should let me do it with words. The court. If you don't stop, I will have to have you removed. Manson. I will have you removed if you don't stop. I have a little system of my own. Not until Manson made that very startling admission did I realize that this time he wasn't play-acting, but deadly serious. The court. Call your next witness. Bugliosi. Sergeant Gutierrez. Manson. Do you think I'm kidding? It happened in less time than it takes to describe it. With a pencil clutched in his right hand, Manson suddenly leaped over the council table in the direction of Judge Older. He landed just a few feet from the bench, falling on one knee. As he was struggling to his feet, Bailiff Bill Murray leaped too, landing on Manson's back. Two other deputies quickly joined in, and after a brief struggle, Manson's arms were pinned. As he was being propelled to the lockup, Manson screamed at Older, In the name of Christian justice, someone should cut your head off. Adding to the bedlam, Atkins, Krenwinkle, and Van Houten stood and began chanting something in Latin. Older, much less disturbed than I would have expected, gave them not one but several chances to stop, then ordered them removed also. According to the bailiffs, Manson continued to fight even after he had been taken into the lockup, and it took four men to put cuffs on him. Fitzgerald asked if counsel might approach the bench. For the record, Judge Older described exactly how he had viewed the incident. Fitzgerald asked if he might inquire as to the judge's state of mind. The court. He looked like he was coming for me. Fitzgerald. I was afraid of that. And although... The court. If he had taken one more step, I would have done something to defend myself. Because of the judge's state of mind, Fitzgerald said, he felt it incumbent upon him to move for a mistrial. Hughes, Shin, and Canarac joined. Older replied, It isn't going to be that easy, Mr. Fitzgerald. They are not going to profit from their own wrong. Denied. Out of curiosity, after court, Murray measured the distance of Manson's leap. Ten feet. Murray wasn't too surprised. Manson had very powerful leg and arm muscles. He was constantly exercising in the lockup. Asked why, he once told a bailiff, I'm toughening myself up for the desert. Murray tried to recreate his own leap. Without that sudden shot of adrenaline, he couldn't even jump up on the council table. Though Judge Older instructed the jury to disregard what you saw and what you have heard here this morning, I knew that as long as they lived, they'd never forget it. All the masks had been dropped. They'd seen the real face of Charles Manson. From a reliable source, I learned that after the incident, Judge Older began wearing a 38 caliber revolver under his robes, both in court and in chambers. Judgment Day Echoing Manson, the girls waiting outside on the corner spoke of it in conspiratorial whispers. Wait till Judgment Day. That's when Helter Skelter will really come down. Judgment Day. What was it? A plan to break out Manson? An orgy of retribution? As important was the question of when. The day the jury returned their verdict of not guilty or guilty? 
or if the latter, the day the same jury decided life or death, or perhaps the day of sentencing itself, or might it even be tomorrow? Judgment Day. We began to hear those words more and more often, without explanation, as yet unaware that the first phase of Judgment Day had already begun with the theft from Camp Pendleton Marine Base of a case of hand grenades. October 6th to 31st, 1970. Some weeks earlier, on returning to my office after court, I'd found a phone message from attorney Robert Steinberg, who was now representing Virginia Graham. On the advice of her previous attorney, Virginia Graham had withheld some information. Steinberg had urged her to give this information to me. Specifically, the phone message read, Susan Atkins laid out detailed plans to Miss Graham concerning other planned murders, including the murders of Frank Sinatra and Elizabeth Taylor. Since I was very busy, I arranged to have one of the co-prosecutors, Steve Kay, interview her. According to Virginia, a few days after Susan Atkins told her about the Hinman, Tate, and LaBianca murders, probably on November 8th or 9th, 1969, Susan had walked over to Virginia's bed at Sybil Brand and begun leafing through a movie magazine. It reminded her, Susan said, about some other murders she had been planning. She had decided to kill Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton, Susan matter-of-factly stated. She was going to heat a knife red-hot and put it against the side of Elizabeth Taylor's face. This was more or less to leave her mark. Then she'd carved the words helter-skelter on her forehead, after which she was going to gouge her eyes out. Charlie had shown her how. And... Virginia interrupted to ask what Richard Burton was supposed to be doing during all this. Oh, both would be tied up, Susan said. Only this time the rope would be around their necks and their feet, so they couldn't get away, like the others. Then, Susan continued, she would castrate Burton, placing his penis, as well as Elizabeth Taylor's eyes, in a bottle. And dig this, would you? Susan laughed. And then I'd mail it to Eddie Fisher. As for Tom Jones, another of her intended victims, she planned to force him to have sex with her at knife point, and then, just as he was climaxing, she would slit his throat. Steve McQueen was also on the list. Before Susan could explain what she had in mind for McQueen, Virginia interrupted, saying, Sadie, you can't just walk up to these people and kill them. That would be no problem, Susan said. It was easy to find out where they lived. Then she'd simply creepy-crawl them just like I did to Tate. She had something choice for Frank Sinatra, Susan continued. She knew that Frank liked girls. She'd just walk up to his door and knock. Her friends, she said, would be waiting outside. Once inside, they'd hang Sinatra upside down. Then, while his own music was playing, skin him alive. After which, they'd make purses out of the skin and sell them to hippie shops. So everyone would have a little piece of Frank. She had come to the conclusion, Susan said, that the victims had to be people of importance so the whole world would know. Shortly after this, Virginia terminated the conversation with Susan. When asked by Steve Kay why she hadn't come forward with the story before this, Virginia explained that it was just so insane that she didn't think anyone would believe her. Even her former attorney had advised her to say nothing about it. Were these Sadie's own plans or Charlie's? Knowing as much as I did about Susan Atkins, I doubted if all this came from her. Though I had no proof, it was a reasonable inference that she had probably picked up these ideas from Manson. 
In any case, it didn't matter. Reading a transcript of the taped interview, I knew I'd never be able to introduce any of this in evidence. Legally, its relevance to the Tate-LaBianca murders was negligible, and whatever limited relevance it did have would be outweighed by its extremely prejudicial effect. Though Virginia Graham's statement was useless as evidence, a copy of it was made available to each of the defense attorneys under discovery. It would soon make its own kind of legal history. Although it was Ronnie Howard who first went to the police, I called Virginia Graham to the stand first, since Susan had initially confessed to her. Her testimony was unusually dramatic, since this was the first time the jury had heard what had happened inside the Tate residence. Since their testimony was only against Susan Atkins, only Shin cross-examined Graham and Howard. His attack was less on their statements than their backgrounds. He brought out, for example, 16 different aliases Ronnie Howard had used. He also asked her if she made a lot of money as a prostitute. Asking him to approach the bench, Older said, You know the rules, Mr. Shin. Don't give me that wide-eyed innocent stare and pretend you don't know what I am talking about. Shin, does your honor mean I cannot ask a person their occupation? The prosecution had made no deals with either Virginia Graham or Ronnie Howard.